Your journey continues on the enigmatic episode 100 spectacular of So Many Insane Plays. All right, next up we have Unsummon. Another one of those cards that when you refer to the effect these days, you refer to this card. For you, it's an instant that says return creature to owner's hand. Enchantments on creature are carded. That's a typo. Unsummon cannot be played during the damage dealing phase of an attack, which is fantastic. It's funny that this one did not get reworded for beta, but it did get the typography fixed because it does say that the enchantments on the creature are capital card space ED, which was probably a find and replace error on the card file where they were replacing the word card with something at one point and didn't set it back in the case of this card. But anyway, that's just a hypothesis on my part. Unsummon to me has always been a, um, an undercosted effect in my opinion. Even if today it's not widely played, uh, it did it did have its day in in like legacy for a bit when you got the I forget the version that also your opponent lost a life vapor snag. The vapor snag has some play in legacy, I think. But I've always found this effect to be undercosted because the tempo boost of unsummoning something that cost two, three, four times as much mana as this always felt very aggressive to me, and there's a reason why. I mean, this is maybe the really the first card that caused me to evaluate tempo as a concept before I knew what that was. But I did intuit early on in my days of magic that, hey, if I bounce that thing you just spent five mana on, you've got to spend five mana on it again. It's almost like a time walk. And that was me intuitively deriving that everything's a time walk, I think. <laughs> What's your experience with Unsummon like, Steve? Um... You know, I, I have very little memories about it except for, um, except for in Alpha League where, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, where I, um, it's very frustrating to have a Jade statue unsummoned. Let me just put it that way. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's a lot of mana investment. <laughs> yeah. You saw six mana into that just to turn it sideways. Yeah. Um, Outside of that, I I can't really say that I've. I think what happened is by the time you get to Legends, Boomerang is just better, so no one plays Unsummon. So Unsummon has this small window of play, right between between like October ninety three to you know July August ninety four. Um, sure, so I, sure. Back in the day, I have no memory of people playing Unsummon. Yeah, it was. I don't have any recollection of it being like a, a tournament card, so to speak, but I've always been drawn to how efficient it was. And it's also, I mean, it's worth noting that the effect is a serious beating in limited environments, so much so that it's still, this is one of those cards where the cost was, it was hard to, I think, understand in the early days that this card was costed correctly, but this card was reprinted as recently as M20. Completely unchanged. Just completely unchanged. And even at the same rarity. It hasn't shifted around in rarities throughout its numerous reprintings. This card has been a staple, but it took a bit of a break. Let's see. Yeah, there was a gap. So 5, 6, 7, 8. It skipped ninth. Then 10, M10, 
11, 12, 13. Yeah, it took a gap. It took a break. M13, and then it was in Hour of Devastation and Ixalan, and then M20. So kind of spotty appearance in the, the, the mid to late teens there. But many, many reprintings, and I think rightly so. I think it, it's a good core effect of magic, and I think it's properly costed and properly positioned in blue. So <laughs> what's your read on this art? My take is that what's being depicted here is what it looks like to see a creature unsummoned and that the figure in the foreground with their back is reacting in surprise to seeing some creature that had been in front of them a moment ago disappear. Is that how you read that? Yeah, I, I think so. <laughs> I've always thought that was pretty funny. There's some things like twiddle that are real hard to depict visually. And there are some things like Unsummoned that, for some reason, this just this just clicks with me. This Doug Schuler art. I I like the art, by the way. I like that it's just a straightforward fantasy feel. You've got a, a kind of monster demon like figure being unsummoned, and then a, a mage, robed mage in the foreground. And I don't mind that it looks awkward or comic-y. I find that more endearing. Yeah, yeah, I'm with you. It does make me wonder if this card has changed at all from Gamma. Let me do a quick check. Yeah, this card is unchanged from Gamma. Single mana, instant return creature to its owner's hand. Yeah, completely unchanged. Good design on this one. They really nailed it. Yep, except for the uh, are carded. <laughs> except for the, your enchantment's getting carded. Yeah. I guess your enchantments just didn't look old enough. <laughs> exactly. All right, let's move on to Uthden Troll. Another Boy. card that we've kind of partly reviewed oi indeed <laughs> a thin troll is 2r summon troll and the text box it's a 2-2 and the text box is simply r colon regenerates obviously this is one of the <laughs> the hilarious uh, you know grouping of cards in red creatures in red by rarity at the same mana cost as compared to gray ogre and granite gargoyle as well as sedge troll um often trolls on the comparatively short list of creatures with native regeneration in limited edition but this card did work i mean as a as a kid opening revised packs i was like oh that's neat and i started playing a little bit and thought wow this just this is just like a a bigger drudge skeleton that does better work and and fights more things and kills your opponent faster i just loved this card every time i got to play it plus that art (laughs) yeah yeah the art is fantastic I don't know what to make of this exactly. I mean, it's like, it looks almost like a mechanical troll. On the, It's like, they're trying to make it, I don't know. Douglas Schuler's got some weird things going on, but it's so endearing at the same time. <laughs> um, yeah, I, this card is, you know, the regeneration theme is very interesting across black and red. You know, that you get it. Is is this Is this troll supposed to be some sort of like, I don't know. Is it supposed to be some sort of like straw man or something? Is that why it regenerates? Or is this actually like a flesh and blood creature? That's a really good question. And I don't really know the answer. I mean, I've always read it as an organic thing. But the notion of regeneration is from a top down standpoint. I just thought that this was a I just thought this was a straight up Tolkien-esque reference to trolls and how difficult to kill they are. Not so much. Um, regeneration in the form of, uh, I don't know, regrowing limbs or something like that, but just the form of if you hit this thing hard enough, it doesn't die and it'll heal over time. That's how I read that. 
Yeah, it does. It does look look a little scarecrow esque or mechanical mechanical esque or you know golem esque. I don't know. I've always read um, that it's just leathery skin, <laughs> but I don't know. Are there any Are there any other references to Uthden in Magic, by the way, or is this the only? Oh, what an interesting question. So let's see. Um, nope. Sure enough, this is the only card that references Uthden in its title or in its flavor text that I can tell. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> this flavor text is is one of the classics. Um, let me let me try to do it justice here. So it goes like this: Oi oi oi, me gotta hurt him in here. Oi oi oi, me smell a thing is near. Gonna bash and gonna gnash and gonna hurt till disappear, which is attributed to traditional. <laughs> so uh, me thinks that's part of the Uthden culture, a uh, culture we know very little about. <laughs> this is like a. A weird mishmash of like black Caribbean vernacular and Australian. It's weird. It's weird. <laughs> I, I I don't know what to make. It's 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 very cool though. It's, it, <laughs> I don't know as you're meant to make anything about it. I really don't. <laughs> yeah. So Steve, have you ever played with the Uthden Troll? I have. Trying to think, I've definitely faced down these trolls. Um. They're you know they're not quite as menacing as the central. Central is clearly more of the um, more of a menace. But um, I have seen I've definitely played against this both back in the day and contemporaneously. I suspect that probably people played it back in the day either because they didn't they weren't playing black, but also just because of pure flavor, right? <laughs> that no, I was attracted. Is, yeah, I was attracted to it for both those reasons. Yeah. And it's pretty good it, when you've got a you know a, a red or a nearly mono red deck in just kind of just the revised era. It's pretty good at gumming up the ground when you're otherwise trying to kill your opponent with dragon whelps and shivan dragons. It's pretty good at that. Yeah, it's the thing is it's got the body of a gray ogre, but the regeneration is just unpredictably useful in different kinds of contexts. Right, regeneration clearly shines on defense. Um, if you can if you can boost this thing again like with unholy strength then this becomes real menacing because it plows forward and you have to make decisions about what to block and what to sacrifice in other contexts you have to decide um you know what kind of removal can actually get around this on defense like you know how do you how do you double hit it <laughs> right so that so they they're tapped down and they can't regenerate is often the dilemma when facing regenerators you see yeah, what I'm saying? And, yeah, absolutely, I do. And that's, you know, it, when it comes to creature combat, that's one of the reasons why it's so satisfying in, <laughs> in limited edition. At the same time, it's just a shame that this thing suffered. You know, the two most efficient and best removal spells in the set both dodge yeah. regeneration, which I think in hindsight was a, 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 a holistic set design mistake for limited edition. Agreed. Totally agreed. Yeah, it really was a miss. It, yeah. <laughs> In some ways, like I'm, don't get me wrong. I'm glad that Swords to Plowshares exists. I just wish it wasn't in limited edition. Like, <laughs> why or couldn't it, it wasn't so darn efficient, right? I mean, that yeah. effect should cost between two and three mana by today's <laughs> standards. Still, well, it probably wouldn't still be vintage playable if it didn't cost one. I mean, but, it should at least be parallel with Terror. It should at least cost one W, even in limited edition. I just wish it would have been in the dark. Let's say instead of. <laughs> <you> <laughs> okay, know. fair enough. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, as a person who has benefited from the resolution of Swords to Plowshares many times, I'm not unhappy about its existence, but I do think it was a mistake. Uh, it's of note that this troll, which was just called Troll in Gamma, is unchanged. Three mana, 2-2, two, two, yep. regenerates. No difference there. I think it's pretty clear this is top-down Tolkien design here and that the magic version of this thing was a little more comical. But still, <laughs> you know, the Tolkien trolls are a source of comedy, too. Someday, someday we need to have a setting of Ufton explore that realm. We've, we've been to Urborg. Right. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, all manner of settings referred to in in Alpha have been have been mentioned or expanded upon, like Shiv, uh, for example, example which was only brought to us by the Shiv and Dragon. Yeah, I mean, uh, Often has got to be a great context for a comedic set. So that's a good point. Maybe we can get there in the next unset. All right. Next up, we have a personal favorite of mine, Verdurin Enchantress. One GG summon Enchantress. While Ver- Enchantress is in play, you may immediately draw a card from your library each time you cast an enchantment. And she is a 0-2. This card is on the short list, as we've already discussed, of repeatable card advantage sources in this set. And it, and in no small amount either, right? I mean, after you get past the blue spells, like Ancestral Geyser or Twister, right? You've got Lich, and you've got this, and the list is otherwise pretty short. And I can tell you from personal experience, this thing can generate you some cards. Yeah. It's, yes. no, it's noteworthy, going to our previous conversation about right. ti- tranquility, that green is, for some reason, the color of both benefiting from enchantments and destroying them all, which I think is strange. Yes. Yes, it is very... It's, very, it's the oddity I pointed out. So... um I'm glad you point out there's so few ways to just draw cards. And this is an enormous, like both Lich and Verdur and Enchantress, and of course Howling Mine, present recurring, very uh, unbounded <laughs> ways of drawing cards. But among all of them, this might be just the easiest way, if you have green, to get enormous amounts of card draw. Well, right? this is the only one that doesn't Asym- have some horrible drawback. <laughs> right? And it's asymmetric inherently, right? So that, well, I yes. guess that's one of the drawbacks of, <laughs> of Howling Mine well, is that I mean, your a draws first. Precisely. And Lich's drawback is obviously You're legendary. Dead. Right. <laughs> and, and even the draw sevens, right? The drawback is, as we articulated with Time Twister, uh, giving your opponent cards, right? This is on the level of Brain Geyser or Ancestral in terms of uh, the asymmetry and the power. Right. So a couple of things to point out about Verdur and Enchantress. Um, I mentioned before that uh, Time Twister was the kind of critical eye of the needle for a lot of these ni- mid-90s combo decks, right? That you had to thread through that in order to usually win the game. Um, Verdur and- so first of all, before I talk about the Enchantress decks of the mid-90s, let me just say that in Legacy, around, about a decade ago, Enchantress was a real, a real deck. Like... <laughs> That was a very powerful combo deck. Now, it didn't use Verdur and Enchantress. It used Enchantress's presence, and what was the other one, Kevin? Argothian? Yeah, Argothian the, Enchantress. Like, that was, a, that was like a real combo deck in Legacy. It had, you know, City of Solitude, so the opponent couldn't cast spells. It, you, you could wild growth up lands and generate gobs of mana. It could mm. do a lot of very good things. That was a and, real thing. And Sarah's Sanctum to really ramp. Really ramp. Um, but the mid-90s, because there just weren't a lot of ways to generate lots of card advantage, there was Howling Mind, Verdurn Enchantress was often crammed into 
decks that were ostensibly not about enchantments, but rather about just mana and, and drawing, right? So I'll give you a couple of examples. So Zach Dolan, as I mentioned before, published some of these in The Duelist. Um, so he published the Looping Deck and the Churning Deck, and um, also Mark Chalice, around the same time, who was a brilliant Bay Area innovator, at, developed the Vercursion, he called it Vercursion and Fork Recursion decks. Nice. Those decks were, yeah. So so what did they do? So the Looping and Churning Deck, let me tell you what the Zach Dolan's Looping Deck was. Zach Dolan's Looping Deck was Verdurn Enchantress at the core, four of them, with its Sylvan Libraries, Unstable Mutation, Stone Calendar as a kind of proto-Helm Helm of Awakening, right? He had Spirit Link, which is interesting, Dance of Many, um, a Berserk, Bizarre Baghdad, Instill Energy, and Fast Bonds, Island Sanctuary, Time Twister, so on. And so the idea with this, the looping deck was, as he put it, um, w- once you reach eight cards total in your hand, graveyard and library, it doesn't matter where your opponent cuts your deck after you cast Time Twister, you'll know exactly what you're going to draw. Well, that's tautological. But he says at this point, you have <laughs> enough to set up the loop. You can draw, cast the potent restricted cards that are aimed at your, harming your opponent, cast Time Twister to draw them again, and repeat this until you defeated your opponent. What are those cards? Um, I don't really see anything directly damages the opponent. You, it's mostly, I guess, well, you have instill energy, so you can, I guess, just attack with a huge Verdurn Enchantress. He has Mana Flare, too. So the next deck, though, is the Fork is the fork Recursion deck and then the Recursion when Fork is restricted. I'll just describe to you the Recursion deck instead of the Fork Recursion deck, because Fork... But basically, it, Mark Chalice has four Verdurn Enchantresses, three Fast Bonds, four Forgotten Lores, uh, Mana Flare, Mesmeric Trance, four Dance of Many to to copy the Enchantress, I assume. Um, and it's got Mirror Universe, Candelabra, Time Twister, Time Walk Recall, Regrowth, Wheel of Fortune, Fireball, Disintegrate, Dark Heart of the Wood. A bunch of mana. So basically the idea for the Vercursion deck, Kevin, is... Here's what he says. Basically what you want to do is get Dark Heart of the Wood, Dance of Many, Fast Bond, and other enchantments is part of the draw engine. Ma- mana Flare and Candelabra are part of the mana, you know, part of the engine. And that um, eventually you can hit a critical point where you can take infinite loops with Time Twister or Time Walk and Forgotten Lore and just drawing tons of cards with the Enchantress through the loops with Fast Bond. Um, He doesn't have this in here, but if you add Glacial Chasm as a land drop, Fast Bond won't do you any damage to the loops either. Right, right. Yeah, Fast Bond seems like an especially powerful interaction (laughs) with the Enchantress just in general. And you and I don't have much, well... In, in the vintage context, we don't have much experience with a time in which you could play four fast bonds and Verdurin Enchantress was any kind of a card, right? Right. But in old school, or maybe Alpha League, Alpha League, which not. ones of those are, yeah. Uh, so, Kevin, fast bond was not restricted in Type 1 until 1996. We already talked about that before. Right. Um, but basically, fast bond is unrestricted in most old school environments. So, um, so it does make a good combo in old school with Enchantress. No doubt. Um, and as, as aforementioned, Wild Growth is, is obviously textbook here because it allows for turn two Enchantresses with some reliability. Fast Bond would too, I suppose, if you had a sufficient density of lands. Right. Um, in Alpha League, they've just decided they want to restrict Fast Bond, so you can't, even, you can't really do anything with it, which I think is unfortunate. Um, yeah. It would be, well, they I'm have not it, sure how I feel about that. They have, Kevin, they have Fast Bond... In the um, in the power group, 
which means that you have to choose between Fast Bond, Time Walk, Time Twister, Ancestral Recall, Wheel of Fortune, or Time Vault. So it's like super restricted. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. Well, so I understand they don't want people playing Fast Bond and Wheel of Fortune and Time Twister together, but I think you could separate those out. I think having like being able to play either Time Twister or Wheel with Fast Bond is probably okay because even if someone goes fast, I mean, that's the main use for Fast Bond, right? Is Fast Bond <laughs> a Wheel or Time Twister? Right. If you're. <laughs> The if card you, basically becomes unplayable without being able to do one of those things. Yeah, I mean, the only other thing you can really do with it is a, is a Verdurin Enchantress, which is moderated because it's rare to three, which is fine, but that that means you can't play with any of the other big, the, the other cards we just mentioned. You can't play with Ancestral, Time Twister, or Time Walk. So, yeah. Fastbond is extremely narrowly constrained in Alpha League. I think I think Fastbond should just be restricted if they want to restrict it at all, not super restricted in the power group. So that you could play it with with the draw sevens, but that's just my opinion. I think they're also afraid that someone goes t- fast bond, time twister, regrowth, time twister, time twister. I mean, that sequence is going to happen like once in a blue moon, you know. <laughs> I guess in a forty card deck, that is more likely and also more likely to win the game. But you have to be able to go first of all in your opening hand. You have to have fast bond three lands, and the Time Twister or Wheel, because you can't play both, right? And then you've got to, you know, I don't know, you've got well, to... I mean, finding the Time Twister is is the is the bottleneck there. You don't have to have Fast Bond in your opener. If you have Time Twister, you can just twist her into it, right? Yeah, but not on turn but, one. No, I, I, no, I don't okay. think turn one is really the risk. But I yeah. do think that any deck featuring that combination is going to be more consistent at executing that combination than you might at first think. When they're all no, I, one-offs. <laughs> I agree. I just think it would be fun. So I, <laughs> well, I think it should be allowed. But but yes, it's. I, I do I think, think super restricted is overzealous on fast bond. But let's get back to the enchantress. Yes. So enchantress is just I think as you say like inc- the other thing I remember from back in the day in the mid nineties, Kevin, is that people would build the um, rabid wombat deck with enchantress, and oh, yeah. boy, things got out of hand fast. <laughs> that that what you just described was my first really well-constructed, well-conceived casual deck. And it was the first thing, when I saw this Enchantress and I, I goofed around with it, and then they printed Rabid Wombat. Well, that, uh, Rabid Wombat has already been printed, but then they reprinted Rabid Wombat, which is when I could get copies was of Was that it. in Fourth or Chronicles? Uh, I can't remember exactly which set. It might have been Chronicles. Anyway, point is, Rabid Wombat got, got reprinted, which made it easier for me to get copies of, because even though Legends was not horribly expensive... Uh, it's not even today anymore for Rabid Wombat, but the point is um, they weren't around. I couldn't get them in my local shop. So anyway, once Rabid Wombat became more available, then I thought, oh, I got something here. I'm going to do this. Yeah. So I built the deck and it was, <laughs> you know, it was four enchantresses and it was only two Wombats, I think, in my list. But then I had all manner of um, Aspect of Wolf and Spirit Link. I mean, it was just fun stuff to put on a Rabid Wombat and draw cards and make it enormous. And um it's noteworthy that if you put multiple copies of Spirit Link on a creature, they all trigger independently because it's oh, not nice. it's not life link, it's a trigger it's ability. It's paralyze. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They're cumulative. Yeah, exactly. So anyway, that I have a strong affection for that deck because it was really the first well conceived constructed deck that I ever made, not for tournaments, but for casual play. That's cool. That's cool. Yeah. By the way, Kevin, I forgot to mention this when we were talking about Alpha League, but in Alpha League you can play an unlimited number of wild growth. Which is also oh, pretty wow, good that's with. super good for the enchantress. Holy moly! <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> wow, could you could make a case for there being an enchantress deck just because of that oh, alone? Yeah. 
You could have Definitely. like ten, 10 wild growths and your three enchantresses and then just things like, um, well, you could probably just kill your opponent with hurricanes and other stuff at that point. You could put just wooden spheres and hurricanes, right? <laughs> I mean, probably you, you can really go nuts that way. I'm sure there's more cards to be added that I'm not thinking of offhand, you, but that formula you, is really strong. I think you do run a risk of actually decking. You'd have to, you know, the problem is the more you expand the deck beyond 40, the less consistent the enchantresses are going to be. And you can't play both Fastbond and Time Twister, so you have to probably make a hard decision about which to include. It well, might need to be Time Twister and Regrowth. But you, know? the, you have to learn how to play it correctly and meter out your resources. That's a good point. But at the same time, the Enchantress's draw is optional. Yeah. So you're not going to get forced into decking that way. That's true. That's a good point. Yeah, yeah because but, but land the, destruction is so few and far between in the Alpha right. League context, you can really load up one land yep. with multiple And then multiple just start fireballing or whatever. Yeah. That does sound like fun. This is a great piece of art, too. Oh, I was excited to get to that point because, yes, what is there not to like about this art? It's um, it's so it's a feast for the eyes, right? <laughs> and the composition is really it's super dramatic and it draws your eye all around the picture like in a circle as you just keep looking at this thing and then this thing and then this thing. Because, you know, it's, if you start in the lower left, her arm it, you know, is reaching up and the vines are coming out of it, which draws your 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 eye up. And then you follow the vines and her hair yeah. into the right. And then you get to the flower. And the flower is there in her other arm, which then comes yes. down and, and you follow the shape of her leg and the vines wrapping around the lower right. I mean, this whole thing this is, is, a, is a wonderful... Yeah, it's just a wonderful It's compositionally piece. very satisfying. And then the, the texture, the color, everything is... It's awesome. Yeah, her, her hair is really well rendered, in my opinion. You know, her dress is well rendered, the fabric. Also, there's stuff going on in the background. Like, it didn't need to have background, but for some reason, Kev Brockschmidt just gave this a detailed background. I mean, look at that. There's more detail in the background of this card than there is in the Plains art. (laughs) Yeah. This is, I wish I had an enlarged, a really large version of this because it's just, there's so much going on. It's such an intricate, but, but also it doesn't feel overly complicated. It's intricate, but it doesn't feel cluttered. it's inter- you're right, but the subject is there. It's very clear that this this woman is a central figure, and she's got this magical power, and that she's. I guess the idea is that she's enchanting this flower. She's a very powerful sorceress. Yeah, yeah. She's got yeah, like vines coming out of her fingers. Yeah, yeah. This is one of the, one of my first rares from uh, revised. After I got past my whole Timmy obsession with Force of Nature. This is one of the first rares and revised where I was really like enamored with all aspects of the card, from the art to the design to the power and everything. Really wanted to play with it as soon as I saw it. Yeah, so Verdurin Enchantress was reprinted basically in every core set up through ninth edition, and it had they hit it kept gold this, with this one. Yeah, it kept this same art until seventh. So it's only been printed in two arts. In seventh edition, they got new art from Rob Alexander, which is also a beautiful piece. Less um less a feast for the eyes and more um, placing this figure as a, as a kind of a forest creature and, and yeah, interacting with the druid. forest. Um, that car- card is also really beautiful if you can get a 7th edition foil, but those probably cost $10,000. I have no idea. 7th edition foils are so difficult to find. Why? Because, because it was the first core set with foils and because the set by today's standards is still very underprinted. It's it's hard to you can't I I don't know if the data is actually there for us to co- specifically quantify it but the simple fact is is that any of those 
early core sets just pale in comparison to the print runs for today. Hmm. And so there's just the quantity is just not there by comparison to today's player base. It's also worth noting that the creature type on Verdurin Enchantress has changed several times over the years. In Alpha, it's an Enchantress, and it's an Enchantress until 6th edition, where she becomes a wizard. But then the very next printing, she's a druid. Right. <laughs> and then Make druid up your for mind. 8th edition. I know. And then in ninth edition, she's a human druid. Human druid. And now that's her final creature type. So she briefly Don't dabbled think, in wizardry. <laughs> I think she should be a human wizard, honestly. But I think wizard's she, fine. I think she seems fine. like a powerful... No, because a, a druid is not necessarily a powerful magician. She's clearly a powerful magician here. A druid uh, is, yeah. is 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 a re, is a religion in which people worship nat- you know certain aspects of nature. Blah blah blah. It's a complex. Yeah. <laughs> this is not a druid. This is a wizard. This is a sorceress, in my opinion. Yeah, I'm with you. It's definitely more magical than druid. I'm, I'm with you there. Also, great flavor text in Alpha. It simply says, "Some say magic was first practiced by women who have always felt strong ties to the land," which I think is just simple and nice fantasy lore. Yeah, <laughs> I like it. Some say. <laughs> Some say, yeah. Study show. <laughs> yeah, I don't wanna I don't wanna belabor the parallels to the speech patterns of our acting president. Um uh, there's every uh, everything about this card is um to be loved. Just this top well, to bottom. I, I would have to say the exact I, I agree, but I, I feel that way and perhaps even more str- a sh- a shade more strongly about our next card if we could transition to that which has a lot <laughs> right, of the well, same features uh, I, I just, just want to point out before we move on that uh, Verdurn Enchantress was not in Gamma is one of the cards added into Alpha and uh, you're right because the next card is Vesuvan Doppelganger now it's going to take me a minute to read this one 3UU <laughs> Summon Doppelganger upon summoning Doppelganger acquires all normal characteristics except color of any one creature in play on either side any enchantments on the original creature are not copied. During controller's upkeep, Doppelganger may take on the characteristics of a different creature in play instead. Doppelganger may continue to copy a creature even after that creature leaves play, but if it switches, it won't be able to switch back. Another nice, satisfying bit of uh, strategic advice there. Yeah, what's not to love about Vesuvian Doppelganger, Steve? I mean, um, it, it's hard for me to look past the art on this card at anything yes, else. It's the, <sighs> this, the art is phenomenal, and the symmetry of the art, I think, makes it incredibly satisfying. It really, really does. And obviously, that was the precursor to the art on Morphling. Yes. <laughs> and any subsequent Morphling variants. But um, yeah, this card is just immensely satisfying to look at. I, there's... Some cards, I, well, you, you set it as a, as a tie to the previous, previous card, Verdurin Enchantress, which is also a feast for the eyes. This one is a feast in a different way because of the exactitude of the art. The Quentin Hoover line art is just incredible. Yes. The yes. symmetry of the thing and this, the brick of text I personally find very yeah. satisfying. <laughs> it's awesome. <laughs> it's so true. It's so weirdly satisfying. To just it's, it's, just, it's just look at a card and see this thick text box, <laughs> and it's it's oddly appealing. I I know it's just something about, and and you don't you don't get the same magic when you get to the revised edition because the the white border highlights yeah. the art in completely different ways. 
Yes. I, I, I like the black border so much more on this card. By the way, this is nine lines of text. That's a lot. For the record, yeah. <laughs> I, I don't remember if that's the most in, out, in limited edition, but it's darn close if it's not. Yeah. I'll count Lich while we continue. But <laughs> <laughs> So, obviously, Vesuvian Doppelganger creates a pairing with um, Clone in the set. There's no yes. denying that, right? Yep. And I want to just reiterate something that I observed about Clone, which I had not appreciated until we did this review. And that is that Clone has a lot of the same language on it. It starts with upon summoning. It requires all normal characteristics, blah, blah, blah. Clone says including color. Vesuvian says excluding color. But Clone ends with Clone cannot be played if there are no creatures in play, which I'm not going to rehash it, but that's a very clear statement of effect. Like you can't play a clone if there's no creatures in play if you chose to it would come into play and be a zero zero and immediately die but the simple fact is you should be able to do that and in the case of vesuvian doppelganger you can do that so there's a really interesting strange you know difference in functionality for these two otherwise clones because aside from the upkeep ability and the color issue with Vesuvian Doppelganger, it functions exactly like a clone the turn you cast it. There's just no other difference aside from color that turn. That's so very if your strange opponent, to me. It, so it's very possible that they wanted to include that text, but this is, I believe this is the record at nine. Lich, <laughs> it couldn't fit, Lich, yeah. Lich is a mere seven and a half lines, Kevin. <laughs> this is basically a full nine. You know? <laughs> um, yeah. There are very few that come even close. I think I just kind of word of command. I think it's seven, basically seven plus one word. <laughs> well, so you know, they they could have included that same line of text that Clone has if they had just left off their strategic advice on yeah. this card. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, that's funny. Yeah, yeah I, I don't mean, think lore, that, that line lore is and Siren's Call are also a full eight, but this is I think the only nine, the nine one. That's amazing. Illusionary Mask is not even a full eight. Um. Yes, yeah, so so what's your read, Kevin? If you play this and there are no creatures in play, what is this? A zero zero and dies? What is it? Well, yeah, it's a zero zero. I mean so yeah. <laughs> um the the funny thing is is that there's no optionality here, which is I'm pretty sure why they chose it to, to do it with clone, right? Because it, it says in both cases, upon summoning, this acquires all normal characteristics of any one creature in play on either side. You don't have a choice. You can't cast a Vesuvian Doppelganger with other creatures in play and have it come in as a 0-0, according to the alpha wording. You don't have a choice. The oracle wording today gives you that choice. The first phrase is, you may have it enter the battlefield as a copy, which means you may not. You can cast a Vesuvian Doppelganger as a copy of nothing, and it's just a Vesuvian Doppelganger with its own ability to, to change during upkeep and if you had something that increased its toughness it would sit in play as a card named vesuvian doppelganger with one yeah, the, ability the master's edition of this card which is the most recent quote-unquote printing <laughs> mm-hmm. um has it as a zero zero and by yes. the way that, that that has eight lines of text just for the record <laughs> well and the same goes for clone all modern clones now are zero zeros instead of star stars you know star star means a different thing star is reserved for when an variable. effect sets yeah when an effect sets the quality of, of a valuable or sorry a variable but that's not what's happening with clones so they are just zero zero creatures that become something else 
I, so I find it interesting that Clone and Vesuvian, in the Alpha context at least, behave meaningfully different in that regard. Now, it's not very helpful, not really, yeah. <laughs> but you could, for example, have Castle in play in good point in a game in a game of alpha and you could just cast a vesuvian doppelganger and have it sit there as a zero two and wait for some other creature to come and play you can't do that with clone in alpha yeah it's a good point so so kevin i mean well why don't why don't you talk about your experience with this card since it hasn't been printed since what was it revised edition it's not like (laughs) it's seen play late i know brian demars loves this card in his um battle bond battle box battle box Uh, yeah Oh yeah, it's a, it's a it's an awesome card. Well, it it was rare. It, it is rare. And as such, I didn't get one for a long time. Like there was there was several months, most of the first year I played Magic when there were many cards I just didn't even laid eyes on, right? I mentioned the story about Royal Assassin. It was months before I saw Force of Nature and was able to acquire one. This is one of those cards I didn't get for a long time. And then when I got it, I thought, well that's silly. I already have some clones because they were uncommon. And I'm already rarely using those. This is just more than a clone. So I didn't really see the value of the switching for a long time. By the time I did, the, the moment had kind of passed. So so at this point, I've rarely cast Vesuvian Doppelganger. And it's a real shame because, as you said, the car is so aesthetically pleasing. Um, at this point, I just kind of want to own an Alpha or a Beta one just to kind of hang it on the wall. <laughs> <laughs> yeah because it's not i mean there are it's a zillion better clones absurdly these days expensive in alpha by the way oh i can only it's assume like, it's like fifteen hundred dollars or something good grief that's that's a lot maybe i'll buy a collector's edition one <laughs> <laughs> yeah but otherwise i just kind of revere this card as a beautiful aesthetic piece but have no experience playing with it and never never was really the right time for me do you know of any situations where Vesuvan was really the the bee's knees, where it's switching to some other thing in play was really where it's at? <laughs> well, you know, there were certainly a time in like 1994, 1995, where I remember people playing around with Vesuvan. I think the problem that Vesuvan had is that it just, it, it was so dependent upon your opponent having something in play, or you having something in play. Yeah. So, the, yeah, the switching, not really. No, honestly, like in... in in games that I recall playing it, it would probably switch at most once or twice at most. It wasn't yeah. the sort of thing where you were constantly shifting it like, oh, I'm going to turn into a Vesuvian doppelganger this turn. Oh, I'm going to turn <laughs> it into a Sarah Angel this turn. Oh, wait, now it's a Birds of Paradise. You know what I mean? It, it wasn't like that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I completely understand. I mean, also, it really suffers. The mana cost, there's a lot of cards in, yeah. in Alpha that... Um, that have great mana costs and are, and are under-costed or aggressively costed. This one suffers a lot because the things you would want it to copy cost the same, if not less. So why not yep. just play an air elemental? Yep. Why not just play a juggernaut? Like clone was okay because you could frequently trade up because frequently the things you wanted to cost copy cost four or five, but there are very few by comparison things that cost six or more that you want to copy that you're getting a good rate on with Vesuvian. Especially once Arabian Nights is in the picture, yeah. then you're usually trading down. Yeah. Yeah. It's a real shame. Um, this is another one of those cards, by the way, alluding to something you observed uh, earlier. Uh, Vesuva as a place was eventually printed as a land. You know, now we have the land Vesuva, and this is the, the card that inspired that land. It's awesome. It's the only Vesuvan card in, in limited edition. 
Yeah, I think I'm going to forego an alpha or beta one. I think I'm going to get me, <laughs> get me, at me, the prices. <laughs> get me a nice square-cornered one. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think Damar's got an unlimited one, which is still gorgeous. Yeah. But... <laughs> yeah, the, even the beta ones are like 500 bucks, even for weak condition. Yeah, that's, that's pretty impressive. Yeah, the card is just so strikingly beautiful. It's an art piece in and of itself. Yeah. It's funny, too. I'm... I mean, I'm not surprised that people seek Good this card God. in those printings because of how beautiful it is. I am a little surprised that Verdurin Enchantress doesn't hold similar cachet because Enchantress yeah. is similarly beautiful, but also much more playable. It's it's because it's green. <laughs> no, you're right. It's had a long, much longer tail. I, I don't know. I don't know. I think it, I think it, they both have phenomenal art. By the way, I'm looking at the TCG Player Marketplace. Uh-huh. There's two Alpha Vesuvian doppelgangers. They're both for twenty five hundred, twenty five hundred, and thirty five hundred. So yeah, well, TCG. <laughs> in, in the case of high end cards like this, TCG is always going to be way overpriced. You could probably get one for seventy five percent, if not less, of that rate if yeah, you went player to player. But the fact remains is that's really really expensive. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I. It is weird. What what catches on? What has you know? What gains popularity? What doesn't? It's an it's a weird alchemy of nostalgia art utility you know re- yeah. re- reputation all of that color <laughs> hard to know yeah you're right you're right okay our next well our ne- go ahead no you go ahead well our next card has very interesting uh, alchemy behind it <laughs> <laughs> i know i've actually been looking forward to reviewing this particular yes. card for a long time <laughs> we're, we're talking of course about veteran bodyguard 3ww summon bodyguard it's a 2-5 unless bodyguard is tapped any damage done to you by unblocked creatures is done instead to bodyguard you may not take this damage yourself though you can prevent it if possible yes so there's so many things to say about this card (laughs) um first of all the the image has a striking bears a striking resemblance to Harrison Ford. So uh, this card in the back of the day was known as like the Harrison Ford card. But Sans, with the body of Arnold Schwarzenegger. Exactly. That's what I was gonna say. <laughs> right. Uh, it's great. Um. Yeah. And the, the this is one of my favorite pieces from Douglas Schuler. It's it's just great. I mean the body. I have no idea what this background is supposed to be and how that adds to the image, but it just creates another layer of... I, I've oddity. always thought of it as, um, hey, I'm the guy who painted the mountains, remember? <laughs> yeah, possibly. It's an unfinished piece of background art, you know, with some weird shading and tinting and very strange chioscuro. Like, the art, the, yes. the lighting and shading is just inexplicable. Like It, it really doesn't make sense. No. It just doesn't. It doesn't. Um... I played with this card in my blue white decks in in like back in the mid nineties for a bit, Kevin. Oh yeah, yeah, I did actually because I um, that's a decent answer to a black knight. <laughs> well, I would put this mostly as a defensive card. You know, before I began acquiring moats, I think I probably played this. You know, um, is defensive. It would allow me to just basically survive incidental damage. Um, until yeah. I could establish control and then deploy Sarah's. I, once I got moats, this was quickly jettisoned. But the, the frustrating thing about it for a blue white deck is that 2-5 is just not good enough defense. It's just not good enough. And so against like, against like 
pesky swarm decks, you know, it actually can be just fine because it can block pesky crit apes or, you know, small, small critters. But what, what it doesn't do is it doesn't defend you from enough, A, direct damage. So, you know, it doesn't stop bolts or chain lightnings or incinerates back in the day. And it also just didn't do enough against unblocked creatures because you have enough creatures. It, like, if this had been 2-6, I would have been so much happier with it. Or, mm. or even more impressively, if it had been 2-7. But at 2-5, it just doesn't hit the right curve in terms of being able to defend you against Juzums, being able to defend you against, um, against, um, juggernauts, or even from the sky against like a fat Modi, you know? Yeah. Um, it just isn't quite enough. But yes, what it does do is basically, it's really in practice what this thing is. It's a two-headed giant of Fourier that, that doesn't survive. as It's not quite as survivable. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. In practice, I would agree. It's really only good in like protecting you against one or two creatures, right? That's it. If, yeah. you, if you are facing off against a Black Knight and what's some other, a Hypnotic Spectre. Okay, bad example. You're still going to discard to the specter i think but um the the simple truth is this can protect you know a couple of smaller creatures or one bigger one i'm pretty sure that two five was chosen tactically so that it stood in the way of two two twos or one of the many four fours right so that you don't get hit by their sarah angel or singer vampire with this in play but it can't do any more than that as soon as they have five power worth of creatures there's no way to profitably keep this thing around right <laughs> right because you don't have a choice about the damage if they attack you with a let's call it a gray ogre and a hill giant this thing's just going to die yeah no matter how you block so it doesn't even matter how you block this thing just dies right because if you block either of them the other one hits this and kills it if you block neither of them they but, both hit this and kill it right. the only choice you've got is whether or not you can kill one of their attackers in the meantime yeah i mean i re- Basically, what we're both pointing out is that it's extremely vulnerable, and it's totally out of your control. Is the that's problem. that's yeah. the thing? It's yeah. It's, it's I mean, two five is a fine body, but you don't have any choices. Right. The only choice so, you have is whether or not you want to attack with this first. I guess to keep so it from dying. You basically have two options. You can keep it in, but you have to figure out ways to boost or protect it, and which yes. leads you to things like castle Re- and crap like regeneration. That. Regeneration. Yeah, regeneration. Is, is big game. Well, if yeah. just in just in blue white, you don't get regeneration, but Oh, right. sure. Um, Castle's good. Yeah, Castle can help, but it's it's still not quite enough. Um, <laughs> no, no, it is not. Even Yeah, that's the problem. Um, this card doesn't appear to be in Gamma either, so it must have been a late ad. Um, yeah. I, 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 was, I find this card incredibly flavorful. It really does. It really is a bodyguard. I mean, that's really what it is. And he does protect you, but he does, it's mainly what it does is it protects you from an alpha strike is his, what he really can do. He saves you from it for a turn, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. That's basically it. And if your opponent just has one attacker for a little while, then you buy yourself some time, but right. Yeah. Yeah. I remember this is one of those rares. So it's funny. Um, take a look at the alpha version, which has one, two, three, four, five, six lines of text. And then you look at the revised version, which has three, four, five, six. Oh, it also has six lines of text, but it's just tiny. I don't know how they did it, but the alpha version is like a medium-sized font in six lines, and the revised version 
Oh, I know why. It's because they sh- they added a line of text to the revised version. The revised version says, unless bodyguard is tapped, any damage done to you by blocked creatures, I'm oh, sorry, unblocked creatures is done to the bodyguard. You may not take this damage yourself, though you may prevent it if possible. Then they added this. No more than one bodyguard of your choice can take damage for you in this manner each turn. That's, (laughs) that's really interesting because it does, it does, it does remind you of an ambiguity in the rules with the alpha version. What happens if you have two of them? But that's straight up. Does an unblocked creature deal damage to both of them? But that is straight up errata. (laughs) I mean, it's power level errata. Well, how do you think it's supposed to work in the alpha context? If you have two of these in play yeah. and, and I attack you with a curd ape and you don't block, what's supposed I assume, to happen? I assume that it would stack. I mean, basically, functionally, right? That you would do one and then the leftover damage would go to the next. What, what do you mean stack, So though? it says... Like, uh, so it, you could basically treat it like a replacement ability. It is a replacement. Even in the alpha yeah. context, it does use the word instead. Right. So yeah. the, so what you would have is multiple replacements. And, and so the first replacement ability would occur... Right, and, and then there'd would, be nothing for the second one to replace. Exactly. Yeah, I see your point. I think that's reasonable. So I think that the I I don't feel the revised wording as errata so much as clarification, because I think that just clarifies how it should work, and you intuited the right way. I think it's funny though. <laughs> what about you? Did you do you recall seeing people playing with this? Oh, sorry. I started my comment about the revised version having tiny text because I this is one of those cards I opened pretty early. Maybe not my first starter, but pretty soon I had one of these and I studied it and I thought about it and I looked at it and I I put it in a deck or two and then I was like, this is just not working. (laughs) I don't even remember the rules interactions or whatever interactions. I just remember playing with it and then thinking... Why is this? In, why isn't this good? <laughs> and I think, in in hindsight, I don't remember it this way. But in hindsight, it must just have been the fact that you have no choice. I looked at it as this is really going to stand in the way of, of, of multiple attackers. It's going to be great. But in practice, you just it just dies. There's kind of nothing to it. Like as soon as they put together five power, you're out of luck. Yeah. It's also terrible against Juggernaut. <laughs> yes. Just, yes. It's just really wretched against Juggernaut. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so I remember having this. I remember looking at it. I remember reading and rereading the text because it's so tiny and there's so much of it. And I remember trying it and I remember just throwing it in the bin. It was just useless. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Harrison Schwarzenegger. Yeah. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> so if, this is apropos of nothing, Steve, if you had to make yourself a screen name for Hollywood, would you choose Arnold Ford or Harrison God. Schwarzenegger? <laughs> Uh, I'm not going to choose. They're both great. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's move on to one that I know you're getting. It's getting a lot of exercise for you lately. Yeah. And that is volcanic eruption. This one is a feast for your rules language interpretation. <laughs> so it's X-U-U-U. You heard that right. X-U-U-U for a sorcery that says destroys X mountains of your choice, comma, and does X damage to each player and each creature in play. Now, let me carefully point out that the destruction of the mountains referenced in that phrase, it's only one sentence, is not tied to the damage done to the creatures. It doesn't say destroys X target mountains. Yes. It just says destroys X mountains of your choice and does X damage to each player and each creature in play. This spell in the alpha context is not targeted. Yes. And in fact, that continues through revised. 
It says yeah. it's the same text. Um, yeah, so many of Alpha's sins were replicated, still and revised. Targeting does not exist here until it, the fourth edition is the first change where it says destroy X target mountains. Period. Yes. Volcanic eruption do- deals one damage to each creature and player for each mountain put into the graveyard this way. The Alpha <laughs> through revised version of it has a I forget what the grammatical or syntactical term for this is, but basically they're independent clauses. Yes. Because the first of all, the comma indicates that the second clause is independent, right? There's a comma, so it's not it's not conjunctive in, the, in a logical sense. The second is that the second is that like it's clearly not dependent. It's not a dependent clause, right? It doesn't say it does. It's it yeah. does do damage based upon the number that they say, but it doesn't. It doesn't. Um, yeah, sorry. but X is determined by the mana cost, not by the mountains that are destroyed. Right. Exactly. However, in revised, that's changed. In revised, it does say the second clause does make it dependent. Now, not not grammatically dependent, but it says it yeah. does one damage to each player and each creature in play for each mountain destroyed. Which is an important functional change. Very much. And then fourth edition, it becomes even clearer. It, it just separates it into two sentences. Now, Kevin, I want to direct your attention to something. I want to direct, direct your attention to the gamma version of the card. Which is very okay. interesting and revealing in a very different way. So the gam- <laughs> <laughs> the gamma version of the card is much closer to flash flyers and tsunami. Oh yes, very much so. So what it says is in gamma it costs um, two blue blue. There's no X. The total mana cost is four. Two generic blue blue. Each mountain does one damage to its owner. And is discarded. Period. Good grief. <laughs> that, so it's a tr- significantly different card, but holy moly. <laughs> yeah. Totally different card. I mean, this card, the gamma version of it is basically Tsunami, four mana Tsunami, blue, blue, two, but it has, it it's basically does the, um, was it Ice Quake, you know, version yeah. of it that does damage to, to each owner there's nothing nothing here about damage to creatures whatsoever right there's no x right doesn't scale up or down just destroys all mountains it's hard to know what to make of that i mean obviously if you're playing blue red you you can't play the gamma version but you could play the alpha version because you could just destroy your opponent's mountains (laughs) even Um, in even in gamma design, everybody just wanted blue to be the best color. Like, <laughs> like, hey, let's take a green card and uh, just make it do more. <laughs> How's that? Yeah. Well, it's also giving blue a very powerful anti-red effect, right? But there's red. The, the funny thing is, red doesn't have an, a similar anti-blue. They put that in green. Right. <laughs> and <laughs> and green is an allied color of blue. And never mind, why is blue using volcanoes to do things? Yeah, so it's very weird. Um, The volcanic part of the volcanic island is the red part. (laughs) So when I first started playing Alpha League this year, the first thing I started mocking was why is volcanic eruption restricted? Well, I quickly discovered the reason why. The reason is because (laughs) they play it according to the Alpha text, by which it basically means that you you could... Basically what this is, it's it's a blue rolling thunder. Right? Is that the yeah. closest analog, Kevin? It's basically an earthquake. Yeah. It's an earthquake and hurricane <laughs> for blue. 
that does direct damage to all creatures and all players, and incidentally can destroy mountains if they're in play. But it does not require you to hit mountains. It just says destroys X mountains of your choice, comma, and does X damage to each player and each creature in play, which mm-hmm. means that in their Alpha League rules, you can play this even if your opponent, ha- if no players have any mountains in play. They will just do X damage to each creature and each player in play. And I have used this to win many games with Mono Blue. Um, I've gotten my opponent pretty low in life. I realize they- they've stalled out the board. I power sync them, and then I just use this as a blue fireball. Seems reasonable. <laughs> Not. <laughs> and then against, <laughs> against, go- against goblins? Oh my god, this is- card is totally demoralizing. I also played this against blue-red, and I got my opponent to tap down, and then I played this. He had he or she, had, I think it was he had three mountains in play, and I think two orcish artilleries, and I cast this for three. One oh, of his or- artilleries, yeah, one of his artilleries was summoning sick, by the way. That was pretty demoralizing for him. <laughs> it was, <laughs> it was great. <laughs> imagine, I just, I mean, imagine trying to template the way the alpha card works in today's um, game. How would you do it? Well, it it would be X U U U deal X damage to each creature and player. Then you may destroy up to X mountains of your choice. Yes, that that, that's what it. it would say. Yep. Yeah. Yes. That that card should not be. <laughs> it's ridiculous. It's quite good. I very much enjoy this card. Let me just put it that way. <laughs> yeah. Well, Which is something is, I never could have possibly predicted. <laughs> <laughs> right. Because the card well, was just patently unplayable, you know, back in the day. Well, yeah, this is another one of those uh revised rares that I unfortunately opened a handful of copies of and every time I looked at it I just threw it in the bin. I mean, I didn't even ever try playing this. <laughs> And for good reason, right? Because as soon as you make the card work the way it's supposed to, which they almost did, almost correctly did in revised, it's garbage. It's it's hot well, garbage. Well, giving giving blue earthquake is the most absurd part about the alpha templating. <laughs> yes, I mean, absolutely. But I I think it would have been very interesting, very interesting if they had printed basically a better templated version of the gamma card. That would have totally been an interesting and I think playable card. Blue, blue, I two mean, destroy all mountains, and their owner well, takes one damage against those like ramp overpowered. decks. What? I mean, it's overpowered. It does. It's card doesn't need to be better than tsunami, right? No, but I'm. For, yeah, but it it would have seen play. Is my point? Oh, absolutely. For that effect, I would have costed it at five. But yeah. that's neither here nor there. <laughs> it wasn't up to you, <laughs> <laughs> right? I, I just the thing that bothers me about this card once you get past the alpha interpretation and quote-unquote misprinting i guess or at least mistemplating is the the complete flavor fail here all you have to do is look at this art if you you know if you're just just do do the do the classic um director thing and, and draw a box around this art to your eyes you know and just look at the art like that's a red card through and through just like force of will right the original art for force of will was meant to be a red counter spell this is supposed to be a red effect. Yes, it might hurt red, so there's a th- reason why that maybe shouldn't exist, but there's no reason why blue should be manipulating volcanoes and using lava. And the card that this became, as you properly identified, uh, well, there's Rolling Earthquake, but then there was uh, the one that this really became, the combination of this and uh, Fireball became, I think, um, became Torrent of Lava in Mirage, which is a complicated card in its own right. But the point is, 
this is what this should have been a red card. This should have been a red effect. And if it needed to destroy mountains, well, then so be it. That's just red sacrificing itself, I guess. But for red to say sacrifice X mountains and do X damage to each creature and player, that's a very red effect, right? That would make a ton of sense from a design standpoint. I'm fine with a little bit of color pie flavor fail in in alpha and limited edition. I mean, we get that with wall of ice, which was in gamma. We'll talk about that soon, which in gamma was a blue card and then was plane shifted and limited edition to green. Um, No, I, I, I hear you. It is. It's a, it's a, problem but you have to look at it holistically does the benefit outweigh the the harm and i think the answer is probably yes they well, wanted uh, yeah I, I my point is simply that you can you can design the card could have done differently yeah um you can design it to either be a different effect or just be a different flavor right. which is either one of those should have been done the result of what actually got printed in alpha i think this is a textbook example of um of design intent right the printed text is obviously in direct conflict with the design intent of this card yeah it was never meant to do what it does in practice in alpha and my guess is that when someone played this in alpha this is one of those situations where they just intuitively looked past the rules language much like say lich right you and i reviewed the fact that when you cast lich you should just immediately lose the game (laughs) there's just no two ways about it there's nothing on that card that says you don't lose the game um, but when you're playtesting a game, especially doing it as a side project or whatever, when you're in college or whatever, it's real easy to look past, past things you take for granted. Well, next, Steve, we have one of the handful of cards that are not actually in limited edition alpha. And that is of course, volcanic Island. Uh, we don't need to treat it any differently though, except for that historical footnote. We've already basically talked about Volk in almost every possible way without directly reviewing it, right? Including that it might be the most played duel, right? Owing to our discussions about Tundra and Underground Sea. Um, What else is there to say? I mean, Volk, especially in the last (laughs) couple of decades of vintage, has been just a powerhouse. You know, Blue-Red has been so dominant in the format. Yeah, it's the... It it really is one of the most powerful combinations. A large part of the rise of Volcanic Island has to do with the orientation of magic around planeswalkers and there being just a plethora of (laughs) fantastic blue planeswalkers, beginning with Dak Faden, but more recently with Oko and Narset and others besides, making Mm -hmm. Pyroblast kind of a unique card in the scheme of the vintage card pool. Mm -hmm. And not, not in, in being, and then the fact that it's basically targeted planeswalker removal. (laughs) <laughs> which was not part of the design concept for planes for uh, pyroblast. Um so pyroblast plays a much larger outsized role in the environment as right. a removal and counterspell. The other thing I would just mention about Volcanic Island is that it's oddly not in limited edition alpha. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> Among a handful of cards that we'd mentioned were omitted namely COP black and then version C of all five of the basic lands. Right. Right. Yeah, which is just, a, in my opinion, a clearly obvious, just a printing error, you know, the equivalent of a typographical error in the card <laughs> file. I've never really heard any particular anecdotes about how or why that came to be. Have you ever heard anything specific? No. Yeah. Well, these things happen when you're in a new game and a new product. Yeah, they're bound to be errors, and there were plenty. <laughs> I'm glad it was corrected as soon as possible. <laughs> well, it also means that the only... English blackboarded version of this is beta. 
Right. Right. Unless, of course, you're Danny Friedman and you've got those <laughs> alpha cut, <laughs> those alpha cut vaults. Um, let's talk about the art a little bit. This is Brian Snowdy, and this is when when we were talking about the strange um, composition and sidelong view for Tropical Island, which causes it to lack depth and context. We've got the exact opposite here with Volcanic Island, right? We've got the isometric three dimensional view, and the the island in this case is obviously set in a vast blue. But it's also erupting, which gives you a sense of scale as well. I think the art on this card is, uh, it's simple, but it's yeah. pretty effective. Yeah, it's, it's simple. Um, it does, it gets the job done. Yeah. So let's there sh- are a number of expressions of islands throughout limited edition. This is not my favorite. <laughs> Island it's, it's sanctuary. List, maybe. <laughs> Birds yeah. of paradise. <laughs> precisely, precisely. It, it gets the job done though. Let's, Let's just review briefly, though, the artists that were given the chore of representing the dual lands. So Jesper did Tundra, um, Bayou, Bayou, mm-hmm. and didn't he? He did Tropical Island, and then yes. Rob Alexander did Underground Sea, uh, and Badlands, Taiga. Mm-hmm. Is that it? And Badlands. Yeah. yeah, those three. So you have three, three. Uh, no, sorry, Rob also did. Um, Savannah and Jesper did uh, Scrubland. Yeah. So they did four and four, and that left that left plateau for Drew Tucker in the initial version. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then and Brian, Brian. Snowdy's Volcanic Island. Interesting. Interesting that it's four, yeah. four, one, one. Yeah. I wonder if they were playing to the artist's particular strengths, or it was just <laughs> they they needed to get these in. Who knows? <laughs> well, I also find it interesting that they gave islands which are ostensibly common in the set to mostly to Mark Poole, right? There's a reason why the basics are Mark Poole and Island Sanctuary is Mark Poole and um, Birds right, of Paradise. but not volcanic. Ultimately, right, but not volcanic and not tropical. So they had lots of islands to be drawn of differing types and settings, and they distributed them throughout artists. Yeah, at the same time, if you covered up the art credit on Volcanic Island, I would not excuse someone for thinking it was also Mark Poole. There's a fair bit in common with their art styles. I am fortunate enough that early on in my days of playing Magic, uh, that is to say, collecting for higher-powered decks and things, so this is after I'd been playing for a couple of years, I was attracted to the the power cards. This is before I met you, before I played Vintage. I just kind of wanted to own the power. There's a strong mystique there. So I started getting that. My first year in college, I picked up my most of my set of powers I told you about, but at the same time, it traded in me an interest in dual lands. You'll recall that starting in revised, I've already said that I was really disappointed to open duels in revised packs. Well, I came around on that issue as I started to play a little more competitively, not in tournaments, but just trying to build better decks. And so I recognized the value of the duels. Well, it was about that time that I started just thinking, oh, well, I like this black-bordered one better. <laughs> so so when it came to like Origins, the first couple of years of going to Origins and things like that, when Magic was big and there were tons of vendors, I was picking up Black Border Duels. And I'm fortunately the recipient of three Beta Volks, which Super feels pretty nice, nice in hindsight. Yeah. yeah. Anything else to say about Volcanic Island, Steve? I, I don't mean, think so. It's, it's kind of a, a shame that it comes at the end of the list because it is the most impactful one in recent memory in Vintage, of course. At the same time... The whole list is interrelated in so many ways that we've already covered basically all of it. Yep, this is our final uh, final one, right? That's right. We're done with the duels. 
And now we come to the point in the show where we talk about the most, <laughs> the greatest number of cards all at once. <laughs> and that is, since we're going alphabetically, we've come to the walls. There are nine walls in limited edition. Ke- and Kev- we've talked about all of them in one way or another already. So how I propose that we handle this is I would like to t- talk abstractly about walls and wall design first. And then sure. we can run through the walls simultaneously after that discussion and analyze how they fit into the paradigm as we discuss it. How's that sound? Well, I love that idea, and I've prepared for that type of, that angle of discussion because I looked at all the walls in Gamma, and (laughs) there was a whole bunch of uniformity. There was much more uniformity in wall design in Gamma. Yeah. Because almost every one of them, with, I think, one, one, two exceptions. So seven out of the nine were designed to be four mana. Interesting. They also mostly didn't have abilities, and by that, I mean activated abilities. The The white and the blue, so air and swords, did have flying, and the green and black did have regeneration, but the activated fire-breathing abilities on fire and water were not present in Gamma. Interesting. The walls were just generally simpler and generally more uniform. So we could assume that it was a byproduct of development, of actually playtesting. Let let's step back yeah. even further, though. I, I, okay. So from a top-down design perspective... A wall makes sense. It's a, a a type of object that can c- interact in combat, but it mm-hmm. doesn't actually function on the... It can't attack, right? So it makes sense from a design perspective. A typically inert barrier. Right. <laughs> there you go. There's the dictionary definition, <laughs> OED. Um, but the problem with walls as a concept is fundamentally that players would rather have something that's capable of winning the game. Hmm. And so totally in fair. order to make a design a card that's playable and actually of you know interest to players what sort of features have to be built into a wall and I would posit that the first principle of designing a wall is that it has to be not just good on defense but excellent on defense mm-hmm. that if you're going to try and persuade me to play a wall <laughs> then I need a wall that's going to basically be resilient against a range of types of threats, right? I need yeah. something that's going to have incredible defensive properties, and there are different quote defensive properties is not a one is not one type of thing. There are multiple mm-hmm. kinds of defensive properties, but the primary form of defensive properties is going to be a very large toughness, right? Yep. So that's Definitely. the first thing I would look for as a designer or as a player in terms of considering a wall. The second thing I would look for in terms of a wall, Kevin, is I would look for efficiency. That is, if you're going to try and persuade me to play a wall, it's something that needs to be below curve relative to other creatures. That is, I need to be able to deploy it quickly so that it has defensive application even before I can begin deploying threats that might go on offense. So to put that in, you know, there's a sort of formula. I remember seeing this chart in in uh, Patrick Chapin's uh, books. I forget what his brand was called. Um, Innovate, you know, whatever. But something basically yeah. was a book on understanding magic, and he had a chart in there that showed basically the mana cost first, the ratio of power and toughness. So it's like one one has this mana cost, one two has this mana cost, two two has this mana cost, two two three has this mana cost. Three, three, right. see all the way up, right? Mm-hmm. And so, whatever the mana cost is for three, three, and let's just posit that it's four mana. I would say that you need to 
the wall needs to slide in under that, right? So it needs to be more efficient at every notch of whatever the, mm-hmm. you know, in order to justify playing it over a threat that has, instead of 0-5, maybe is a 2-3 or a 2-2, two, two, right? Yes, I would agree. So those are the two principles I would start out with. The One is that it needs to be, it, it, on defense it needs to have an inordinate toughness, and number two, it needs to be generally on the more efficient side of the ledger. I think there are other ways of building in defensiveness. So regeneration is another. Evasion can help. Um, but the main thing I'm not looking for in walls are lots of power. I think having <laughs> power is a bonus because it does ward off more attacks, but it's not the primary thing you're looking for, right? You wouldn't want a wall that's 7-1. <laughs> Generally speaking, no. Yeah, it's except not, as a gimmick. Yeah, except as a gimmick, it's not going to do you. It's not going to. I mean, seven one wall, I suppose, would be the kind of thing that makes you want to play anime wall. But that's the <laughs> anime wall is rare. So let's just keep yeah. anime wall at the margins of this, this discussion. <laughs> I would agree. Anything that's, else? That's fair. Anything else in terms of first principles from a de- design perspective, top down design perspective, in terms of walls, Kevin. I have one I other thought, but I want to give you space. Go I ahead. think mechanically you hit it on the head, and the next thing that dovetails with that in a related fashion is whether or not you're designing these walls bottom-up or top-down. Because a lot of these walls were top-down designs, and yeah. then the stats were kind of adjusted to fit those top-down designs yes. to varying degrees of success. Well, explain explain what, what a, what a bottom-up wall would look like. A bottom-up wall would be one that was designed to have a, me- a particular mechanical effect on the game to, f- to fill a niche or a role or to have a certain combination of abilities. Yeah. I would argue that Wall of Swords of the nine in limited edition is the most bottom-up because it is a 3-5 flying wall, and 3-5 and flying are, in my opinion, t- very tactically chosen values yes. in the context of limited edition alpha because... Five toughness means you get to block all those uncommon 4-4 four, four flyers and not die. And three power means you don't get to kill those. So it's yeah. right in that spot of, I'm just going to hold you off, but I don't get to kill you. And so well, the I same think would that's be true example. for 0-5, though, Kevin. Uh, it, it, it is, but the Wall of Swords stands out from the rest in this the context of this set because it's also the one that's not an elemental design. Well, right. The other eight walls are all top-down elemental concepts. I would argue that the the three power on Wall of Swords is very top-down, in the sense that you have this concept of a Wall of Swords, and if you were to charge into a Wall of Swords, you would be damaged in the process because of the sharpness <laughs> of the fair. blades. So, but the, it doesn't have to be all or nothing. I think I think that's fair. But the quintessential top-down wall is probably Wall of Stone, right? It's just got the stark stats, right? Zero eight. So <laughs> that's right. The most stark. But the, the the thing I want to introduce into, so set aside from mechanics and set aside from the kind of defensive principles, is if you're a designer of limited edition and you know that you want this concept of walls to be an alpha and you want walls to be a prominent, or in limited edition, you want walls to be a prominent, at least a, a noticeable part of the set. I, I don't want to mm-hmm. overstate and say prominent. I mean, what do we say? There are eight wall, nine walls here. Nine walls, and then a handful of cards that interact only with walls. Right. Nine is what percentage of the set? If we say it's a three hundred and two card set, that's I mean <laughs> it's nine. Still pretty small. It's it's small, but I mean it's what three percent of the set. Um, 
but but it's at common and uncommon exactly so, so that it's gonna, factors in right and a, a hundred of the hundred cards in alpha are rare so they're you know it's it, un, it's larger than three percent of the set in that sense in the average pack you're going to see something that in, that either includes or interacts with the wall right so so here's what i'm getting at kevin if you're a designer of the game magic five magics whatever it is and you want walls to be a noticeable part of the game how would you distribute walls among the color pie I would distribute it mostly evenly unless I had a color pie reason to avoid doing so or to make them more represented in one color or another. Exactly. So pause on that thought for a second. Mm -hmm. The colors are not even in terms of offense and defense, in terms of aggression and defensive capacities, right? I mean, white is is clearly the more defensive color. Red and black, I mean, are clearly thematically the more aggressive colors. Mm -hmm. Blue is the... color of trickery so here's the thing that's interesting if you were designing from a top-down perspective i would posit that white should get the most walls completely agree and yet and yet (laughs) and yet alpha it has the fewest or tied for the fewest with black right now isn't that strange yes i do consider that to be i don't want to go so far as to call it a mistake but i do think it was a a questionable choice so if for you, all the reasons you already stated. So if you were making walls, just just pretend that this set doesn't exist as best you can. Give me some walls that you would design. Well, uh, no, it's it's hard for me to separate myself from my history with magic, but um, flavorful or elemental type concepts that fit the color color pies are one of the places I would start. So, for example, you know the elements of fire and water are pretty easy to align with blue and red. The yes. elements of plants are pretty easy to align uh, plants and growth related things with green and conversely things comprised of death <laughs> you know bones corpses living <laughs> flesh right the the early walls are all pretty elemental for um their uh their colors the one that i think is a big miss for reasons related to what you just said is that wall of stone really should have been a white wall yes because as as we've discussed it's been many hours now but White is the color of infrastructure yes. in this set. And sto- a stone wall, this is the only wall that's built in this, well, you could argue about the one of swords, I guess. But if you move wall of stone into white, then the two white walls becomes the ones that people built as yes. opposed to the ones that are could be naturally occurring. Totally I think agree that's with important. you. I think that so, would have been the correction. There is also a weird thing that wall of ice is in green. Well, why don't we do this now? Now that yeah, we've spent enough time that, that talking, talking about them, why don't you introduce all the walls? Okay, so should I go by color, you think? I think that makes more sense. It's easier to grok. So blue has two walls, air and water. Recall that air is the three mana one five flyer. Water is the three mana zero five with ostensibly fire breathing, which we can (laughs) talk about more. Why why that's weird. Um, So blue has two. Red also has two, fire and stone. Stone's the big one, the biggest one, zero eight for three. Fire is... The exact same card as Wall of Water. Three mana, zero five, fire breathing. So there's a duality between fire and water. They have exactly the same stats and abilities. So red has two, blue has two. Green has the most in limited edition with three. Wall of Wood, very simple, one mana, zero three. It's just kind of a statement on color pie and how green is the most aggressive, so to speak, in terms of wall construction, right? (laughs) The only one that's cheaper than three mana. Then green has two three mana ones. Wall of Ice, which is a vanilla zero seven. Wall of Brambles, a two three regenerator. Yes. 
Then we get to black and white. They each have one. Black has Wall of Bone, three mana, one four, Regenerator, which makes it a little more defensive than green, which is another area that's a little bit strange. And then aforementioned Wall of Swords in white, three five flying. Yeah. Well, the the Wall of Brambles has two power because the Brambles are thorny. Yeah. That's, again, but, more top-down design, you but, know? But the toughness on Bone being one four is what you're referring to in terms of defensiveness, right? Well, I think you can, for the reasons that you stated about the color identity, it would make more sense for Black's wall to be more hostile to creatures just from a yeah. color pie standpoint. But it's not, I don't think, wrong to have Green's wall flavorfully have two power because, you know, top-down wise, it's got thorns and bottom-up-wise, it's green, and green is uh, also just the color of the biggest creatures. So green's wall having high power seems flavorfully to work. So so I, I, there's so much to say here, Kevin. Um, <laughs> yeah. But did did you complete the presentation of the walls? Why don't you finish the... You didn't... That's all nine of them. Yeah. I do want to point out that as between gamma, most of the walls that cost three in alpha cost four in gamma. Almost all of them, in fact. And Walls of Fire and Ice were totally different cards in Gamma. They didn't have their fire breathing, and Wall of Fire was a 2-6, which I think is weird, and became was released in uh, Legends as Wall of Heat, exactly as it was represented in Gamma as Wall of Fire. I'm sorry, it was also Wall of Heat, sorry, in Gamma as well. So Gamma had a card that was replaced (laughs) by Wall of Fire and then subsequently used in Legends. And then Wall of Water was just a different wall. It was... um, what was Wall of Water? It was just a four mana two five. So there was a pairing of two five and two six in red and blue that were completely changed. At four Both mana. of them became zero fives with yeah, at four mana. Both became zero fives with fire breathing, which is obviously a color pie bend for blue big time. But it's also but it's more a concession of a t- to taking away the power, right? They're more efficient, so we're gonna take away the power, but we also want them to be able to yeah. you know, do inflict it, damage. It, it, it is that as well as a top-down pairing of duality between fire and water. In the air, I, being having flying, I think makes a lot of sense because it makes a ton of sense. Yes, yeah. it makes. If you're going to give a flying wall to any color, blue would be number one. So, one the obvious question that 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 pops out to me, Kevin, is that I think if they wanted to make these slightly more interesting, you would try and distribute them a bit more across mana costs. That That's the, a really, really good point. Yes, it seems like they're very, they're bunched, very bent. Yeah, they're very bent around the three mana slot. Yeah, it's all six it's, out of the nine. They're all bunched up there, and you know, so they had wall seven. They had wall of wood, right? Mm-hmm. Which tells you they were thinking about distributing them interestingly. I think that I think it, I think from an overall holistic perspective, you want a, a better mana cost distribution. I I think yeah. what you probably want, honestly, is here's what I kind of want. I kind of want a wall of wood that's a zero four for one mana. I'd like mm-hmm. a wall of stone that's for white at two mana, either white white or one white. Mm-hmm. Um, I pro- that's a, f- a zero four zero five. You're thinking probably zero five or six. Actually, actually, I was thinking zero mana. six yeah. or zero seven. Yeah, um, that's fair. And then I think the regenerator one being a two three with regenerates in green is actually just fine. Agree. Um, and I have no huge problems with the pumping ones being three mana. You could put, you could imagine them at two or three. Um, yeah. Here's the thing, though. I think I would like to have seen so the black wall. You think about black being death, decay. You know, mm-hmm. I think that you could have costed it a little bit more, but built in a basilisk ability or something oh, like that. 
Oh yeah, a black wall having death touch would have been, and obviously it wasn't called death touch then, but the practical ability. Yes, yes. that's what I think is missing here. Like a four mana death touch wall, and you probably wouldn't need the regeneration at that point because it's just wall of corpses or wall of, you know, bone or whatever. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's pretty ironic that they've never actually printed a literal wall with death touch. There are some defender creatures that have death touch. But there's never, ever been just, like, wall of poison. Okay, bad example. Poison has a meaning. But you get the idea. Yes. Well, I think that's partly because walls have kind of (laughs) disappeared from magic. If they were an (laughs) active part of magic, we might see them. Well, you're right about that. At the same time, we still had a lot of time (laughs) between (laughs) then and now that there could have been one. Well, there isn't a lot of death touch between basilisk and cockatrice until they really start making it in more recent years. Like, making creatures with... That, that's that. true that's true so i think that's the i think the thing that's missing for me is is i think three or four things just to summarize one is that wall of stone should have been in white number two is that the the black wall should have been slightly more mechanically interesting number three is that i think there needs to be a greater casting mana cost distribution um of walls mm-hmm. um that said, I mean, these are... Abu- well, the other thing that's just a, a, a thematic flaw is Wall of Ice being in green makes very little sense. Yeah, agreed. From a top-down standpoint, that was just a miss. I don't know I mean, why that, they that should have that. been... I guess it should have been blue, right? Yeah. Maybe they and just... Also, Wall of Water having fire-breathing is also just a miss. <laughs> that was, that was a little too much of an adherence to a top-down pairing with Wall of Fire. Perhaps they thought that Wall of Air being 1-5... They didn't. Should they give wall, you know, wall of water one five as well, and giving mm-hmm. it no power? You know, the alternative is a yeah. zero five, and I, I can yeah. understand they wanted to make those symmetrical, right? The I want to add that there is, in my opinion, one honorary wall in limited edition alpha, and we haven't reviewed it yet, and that is Will of the Wisp. It's a technicality yeah. that Will of the Wisp is not a wall, right? Right. When in most practical applications, it functions as one. Well, I have seen people play with bad moons and unholy strength <laughs> and that sort of thing. But and I think it's it's obviously a superior card for its non-wallness, but it, you know, it really is. It really is an honorary wall. wall. Yeah, yeah. That's interesting. What if they had made a one mana regenerating wall? It, I mean, I consider Will of the Wisp to be a good card. We're going to get to it in a little bit, but. Um, that's why it, it could, there, there's a chance that it was considered, you know, part of the wall cycle, you know, in concept from a, a top-down standpoint. But it's worth noting, Steve, that <laughs> Will of the Wisps was not called Will of the Wisps and was not a black card in Gamma. It's a strange hand-drawn part of the Gamma card section, according to the Magic Libraries, but it was a green creature for... It's hard to tell. It says 2G slash G. What is that? Oh, that means it was two mana. Yeah. So it would have cost one G, and it had flying and regenerating for a G, of course. So the same card, but two mana in green was called Mosquitoes, and then that was removed and became Will-O-The-Wisp in Alpha. So anyway, that that is an, an honorary wall. You know, you could, you could imagine that when they were developing that card, they just kind of... For, didn't think to make it a wall from a top-down standpoint because mm-hmm. it was a creature. It was a, a living being, so to speak. Or at least one that could move. And so from a flavor standpoint, they didn't want a wall that would just sit there, a mosquito that would just sit there and not move. But in practice, I, I do consider Will of the Wisp be honorary. 
and in that context it's funny that that black has two regenerators so um but there's three elements i want to get to i want to get to the art and i want to get to our experiences with these walls but before we Mm. get to that um Kevin, which of these walls is is any of these walls have notable? Do any of these walls have notable constructed appearances, to the best of your knowledge? To the best of my knowledge, no. Um, I can't recall and seeing any of them in in tournament decks or of any kind throughout the years. There's obviously probably a couple of exceptions, but no. Yeah, that's my recollection as well. Sadly. Yeah. Yeah, the first big breakthrough wall in Magic, to my recollection, is Wall of Blossoms in Stronghold, which yes. is the first wall to draw you a card. And Wall of that Roots. That saw tournament play. Wall of Roots was huge. Oh, that's right. Wall of Roots. You're right. Yep. Those two, the earliest ones, I think. Legends recapitulated the theme of walls from Alpha, and yet all the Legends walls were pretty suspect, too. <laughs> yeah. Sad. So none of these walls from Alpha really made it, um, which is interesting. Yeah. Um, have you played with these walls? Which which one of these stand out to you? I'm pretty sure in my early days I cast every one of these. Nice. Because I was kind of drawn into the the defensive value of the things. So I believe, yeah, I believe I've cast every single one of these in my day. With varying degrees of success, you know, I mean, I didn't try Wall of Wood very many times, but it definitely was in a deck here or there. And But I do remember having a pretty strong affinity for Wall of Stone just because of its size and Wall of Swords just because of its overall efficiency, you know, in terms of yes. the impact on the game, Wall of Swords, I think, is the biggest out of all nine. The more I study these, Kevin, the more striking it is that there is simply no two-mana wall. It just seems like yeah. a huge omission. Um. And they had plenty of opportunity to, right? Yeah. When when do we get the first two mana wall? While you're looking at that, I'll I'll just mention that I've cast Wall of Swords innumerable times. I played with it <laughs> in my early versions of the of my versions of the deck, you know, quite frequently. It eventually got weeded out, you know, winnowed out. Um but uh I have a lot of experience with the Wall of Swords, and my experience is roughly what you described before, right? That it's yeah. efficiency really mattered. It, hold off critical threats trade with juggernaut that kind of thing um the first the first two mana wall steve uh was in legends wall of caltrops ah. and one thing that's noteworthy about the the walls in legends was that they started adding a whole bunch of abilities to them interesting i just yeah and there wasn't another cheap wall until ice age tinder wall which is the <laughs> upgraded much upgraded version of wall of wood tinder wall is hugely tinder sick. that's <laughs> That's I completely <laughs> forgot about Tinderwall because we so rarely used it as a wall, right? It was like yeah. Tinder Ritual. <laughs> yeah, what a great wall. The best wall of all time. Yeah. <laughs> well, it, it's now, probably up there with Wall of Roots in terms of construction. But no, I, going back to Wall of Caltrops, though, what weird power and toughness. 2-1, weird. Yeah. Well, and then it obviously has interacts with banding, which makes the whole thing really complicated. So wait and a second. Just Let me it, read this card. It's... It's not just that it has banding, it has conditional banding. If Wall of Caltrops and one or more other walls join to block an attacker and no other creature besides walls block that attacker, Wall of Caltrops gains banding until end of turn. (laughs) (laughs) So it's incentivizing you to play multiple walls. Yeah. Well, Steve, our analysis thus far, we've been at this for so long that we forgot one key thing about um, Alpha, and that is that there is a 10th wall, and we've already reviewed it. And that is Living Wall. 
Oh, great point. Yeah. And Living Wall is more of a continuation of the Gamma model, right? A four-mana wall, which the others didn't survive that way. But, you know, Living Wall is, we've already discussed it at length, but it's four mana, zero, six, and it has regeneration for a single mana. It's it's interesting that the regeneration, which is obviously carved out in green and black, is the thing that they gave to a colorless wall. I find that that's strange, especially in context with all the rest of the walls. Yeah. It reinforces the clustering of the mana cost, too. With, with yes, it. very much so. So how many walls are in Legends? I had forgotten about that. Uh, let me see. I don't know the answer off the top of my head, but I can tell you really quickly. So you've got Caltrops in light. There's two in white. Vapor and Wonder in blue. Putrid Flesh, Shadows, and Tombstones in black. That's three in black. Then there's four of them in red. Dust, Earth, Heat, and Opposition. So it's a total so that's of... four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. Looks like eleven. Wow. Even more than limited so edition. That's right. And also of note, there's not a green wall in Legends. It's the color distribution is four three two two zero. <laughs> so interesting. Um yeah. Ice Age is interesting because it has illusionary wall, which has the Ice yeah. Age cumulative upkeep mana cost, but its stats are bonkers. Yeah, seven four. <laughs> yeah. There's also Thunderwall in Ice Age. Trying to see if there are any other walls in Ice Age that are notable. There are quite a few. I mean, yeah, continue to uh, iterate on the theme, and it's pretty noteworthy that you know limited editions walls are pretty boring, right? You've got some flying, you've got some regeneration, no triggered abilities, no anything else. The closest thing you've got is some fire breathing, which is pretty well cemented in the set. But as soon as Legends, they started doing weird things with walls. Wall of Wonder has an activated ability to go from a 1-5 to a 4-1 and can attack. Yeah. I mean, yeah. they started doing pretty interesting things with walls in Legends. Wall of Wonder is actually a very notable wall. That's, the, that's a wall that I think probably saw more early play than most, most of the walls in in alpha just because of its ability to manipulate its stats it has a kind of like a i mean it's it's four mana to to change its power and toughness in a very dramatic way it's not like morphling you know what is more like morphling though kevin is mm. snow fortress in ice age oh, which is a yeah. wall it's a zero four that you can pay a mana to basically give it plus one plus oh or pay a mana to give it plus zero plus one and then you can actually pay three mana to tim to ping something that's attacking you yeah, that is that is attacking you and doesn't have to be blocked by that wall either, which is right. noteworthy. Yeah. That, that's the kind of ability that they could have put on the black wall in limited oh, yeah. edition if they oh, didn't yeah. want it to do death touch. And owing to your point about how uh, Wall of Ice was in the wrong color, they corrected that issue in Ice Age. The same exact card, Glacial Wall, 3-mana, 0-7 vanilla, was put into blue in Ice Age. Yes. And they, a couple yeah. other walls in Ice Age are Walking Wall and Wall of Shields. Yeah. which have interesting abilities. So, yeah, you're right. I wouldn't have thought that, but the walls in limited edition are the most boring. <laughs> it's true. They really are. But I'm happy to say, in comparison, they they resolved that issue, so to speak, about the boringness part, at least, pretty quickly. Walls start to get a lot more interesting in the next several sets, <laughs> right? Yeah. Legends, 
The Dark even has a couple of walls. Carnivorous Plant, that's a vanilla, but it's super efficient. Four mana, four, five, compared to other things. And then, you know, Ice Age and Beyond, they start to get really interesting. Mirage had interesting and weird walls as well. Kevin, one other thing I just wanted to mention about Tinderwall. We we generally know about Tinderwall as a ritual, but you mm-hmm. can actually pay a red mana to do two damage to target creature that it blocks. <laughs> so it, yeah. it's easy to forget that because it's so rarely I, used. But. I have heard of a couple of classic blowouts with that where the you know players playing against Belcher or something just yeah. swing in with their team and just don't remember that Tinderwall has other abilities. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, Can you imagine, like, you're playing against Belcher and you've resolved, say, um, Kataki or, well, even worse, Thalia, right? You've resolved <laughs> Thalia against Belcher, and then you swing her into a wall, a Tinder wall and get it killed. Oh, what a blowout. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, especially yeah, if, you, has definitely happened. if you pay the Simeon Spirit Guide to activate it. Um, yeah, exactly. Out of nowhere. So, of the walls that we just mentioned from Alpha, from Limited Edition, rather... Um, after Wall of Swords, which which is the next one that you have the most familiarity with? Definitely Living Wall, which is why I suddenly remembered it is because it's it, it's just the one that went in the most decks, right? Yeah. For I said that earlier when I was building decks as a kid, I was experimenting a fair bit with different colors and combinations, and Living Wall just went in a lot of decks. I think. So let me ask you a different question. What's the what is rank the walls in terms of best or worst? Or you don't have to do it all <laughs> ten, but take a stab at yeah. the top three. Uh, the top three, in my opinion, are Living Wall, Wall of Swords, and Wall of Bone. Wall of Bone was one of my favorites for the regeneration. Wall of Brambles is in, in arguably a better card in once it's in play and in practice, but in, in context with the decks I was playing, I didn't need Wall of Brambles because my green creatures tended to be better, but Wall of Bone played more defense for me. I think Wall of Air is either the second or third best of the walls. It's very good. Because it's a 1-5 flyer, just beats the stats. For three mana, beats the stats of everything else. Three is a very odd and sweet spot, as we've covered, right? Because all the four mana, all the four mana uh, creatures, Rock of Kerr Ridges, Illusionary, uh, Phantom Monster, I mean. You know, Illusionary Forces is actually the exception. They're all three power. You know, even Dragon Whelp is two power. So 1-5 is actually a very nice spot. Whether you're playing in just you know, A, B, U, or with Arabians, or with, you know, even extending it to Antiquities, I think that, I think it's possible that Wall of Air is on the cusp of constructed playability. If you're building, like, a mono-blue deck, I think it's a serious consideration, because it's, what else are you going to play for three mana that can give you such good defense? There really is yeah. nothing. <laughs> it's it's very, very good. It can block Sarah's indefinitely, Hypnotic Specters indefinitely at the same slot. I think it's yeah, it's it's I think it's in the top three. I think I I mean I would rank Wall of Swords number one. And then I think I think I rank I think that four is just too much to pay for a wall, honestly. Yeah. But, well, and that's part of the reason why I stopped playing them. I just kind of gradually reached that conclusion over time, and you're right on. I mean besides I, I just contradicted myself. Wall of Swords is four, but I mean <laughs> without you, you get a lot for Wall of Swords yeah, though. Like, yeah. Living Wall, I, I had affinity for it because it was easy to cast and it just fit in so the many decks. The art is but wild. <laughs> the art is wild, yeah. <laughs> well, you wanted to talk about the art, Steve. Yes. And I think, um, so the artists are not evenly distributed. There's there's not really a pattern. Um, four of the walls were illustrated by Richard Thomas in his signature style. Each one of his walls has the common theme of 
the silhouette of a figure being seen through the basically the the matter that makes up the wall so that's air water fire and ice in each one of those cases you can see the silhouette of a mage and i think almost most cases with a staff no it's only half of them have a staff anyway shown through whatever the object the wall is made out of so most of them done by richard thomas i have to admit there's i have a go ahead no please finish the then there's two done by Anson Maddox. That's Bone and Brambles, the two regenerators. Two done by Mark Tadine, Wood and Swords. And then Wall of Stone was done by Dan Frazier. And for the sake of completeness, we've already said it, but Living Wall was done by Anson Maddox as well. And it's gruesome. <laughs> yeah. I I have to say that Anson Maddox is not the top artist I would have selected for walls. Anson Maddox is a phenomenal artist. Don't get me wrong. But I'm looking for someone who is not going to be doing like goth. You know, look, what Anson Maddox, <laughs> Anson Maddox excels at human figuration, right? It, it rendering mm-hmm. interesting characters. That's what he does well, right? Yeah. He is not a landscape artist. He is not, uh, I, I would have, so I think Richard Thomas is basically perfect for this. I would have loved. I think the folios, the folios would have done phenomenal if they had been selected in limited <laughs> yeah. edition, right? They would have done perfect job on walls. But I think Dan Fraser does a good job. Mark Tadine, you know, does some interesting things, infrastructure stuff. He he's great. He should, probably should have done more. I don't think that Anson Maddox's piece are, pieces are bad. I just he's not the person I would have selected for for the for these. Um. I have to say, though, overall, yeah. I love the art on the walls. And my favorites, though, are the Richard Thomas pieces. They're all great. Yeah, I, I think the, war, the art on basically all these walls is uh, fantastic in its own right. I've always found the whatever creature that's being held at bay by the Wall of Swords to be a little too amorphous for my taste. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> but, hey, what are you going to do? I mean, it's a Wall of Swords, and it's pretty thoroughly rendered that way. Yeah. I do wish that some of the walls had a little bit more context with respect to size. Because one of the things that, from a flavor standpoint, that doesn't really work very well about a wall is that um, you can go around it. <laughs> I know that sounds a little bit trite, but the the fact of the matter is is that... You don't get a sense a wall of scale. Yeah. yeah, if the wall is not sufficiently imposing, uh, it doesn't convey too much to me. Like, for example, Wall of Bone goes apparently very high it looks like it's it looks like it's 50 feet tall and it looks like it goes off into the distance it kind of goes to the vanishing point whereas and and wall of stone is similar not 50 feet but you know maybe 20 or 30 feet high and off into the distance for a mile whereas wall of wood is just kind of like some wavy sticks sticking up and some creatures poking it poking out from under it right it doesn't look very interesting granted it's zero three but you see my point the one of the things that richard thomas's walls don't do particularly well is give a sense of awe or scale they just it looks like the wizard is just kind of you could just walk around that wall (laughs) that's what i would say (laughs) but but hey i'm I'm picking nits a little bit i like one of the things i like about wall of bone in particular is how dramatic it is i i those are all interesting points yeah the the camel just sitting in front of it or whatever that is it's interesting the wall of stone yeah yeah there's you definitely get a sense of scale in the wall of bone the wall of stone I have to say though, I really like not just the the des- the design of the Richard Thomas ones are all similar, and that you have yes. the elemental thing with the with the silhouette of the sorcerer or sorceress, and in one case, at least one case, 
that's erecting it. And I love, I love everything about these pieces. I, I also think it's interesting that he chose to create a female figure for one of them, since you yeah. don't don't have a lot of a lot of that on the limited edition pieces of art. Agreed. Do you read the Richard Thomas pieces as the wizard in the that's reflected in the image or silhouetted is the one? Yes. Projecting the wall. Yes, that the wall is being projected to protect the wizard. Yep, I read that same way. Those all are right. all really nice. What else pieces. about walls? We covered the ground. I mean, it's it's yeah. I, well, the only thing I would maybe ask you to elaborate is just how, what's the most recent. Tell us a little bit more about the recent printings of walls. Are there any? You know, what was the last? What's well, the fate of yeah, walls? Let me see. What's the fate of walls? The most recent printing, uh, new printing of a, a new wall card was in one of the more recent sets, Zendikar Resurgent. Uh, it's Tuk Tuk Rubble Fort, which is a three mana zero three that has defender and reach, but it also has the ability creatures you control have haste. The last one before that That's was like an enchantment. It's an enchantment yeah. wall. Warded Battlements is a white wall for three that has attacking creatures you control get plus one plus zero. There aren't very many walls anymore. But one of the common themes, as you just re- observed, is that they tend to be used as blockers that also grant your team something. Like in Eldrain, there was a crashing drawbridge, a two mana one or zero four that had a tap ability. Creatures you control gain haste until end of turn. These are functioning like enchantments that happen to be able to block uh, more so than they were originally conceived in limited editions. Yeah, it's it's pretty rare in modern magic sets that you get a wall where their primary purpose is just attacking and blocking like when's the last one of those that really just kind of did that um wall of runes from war of the spark is a one mana zero four that just has wow. when it comes into play scry oh yeah. that reminds me you know what is significant well that thank you for sharing that you know what a significant constructed wall was was mm-hmm. the white wall the sunscape wall that worked as a medallion you're talking about Sunscape Familiar from uh, Plane Yeah, isn't that, isn't that a wall? It, uh, there, yeah, made made green and blue spells cheaper. Yes. Yeah. I think that's a wall. Yeah, you're right. It, it is, and it's, yeah. a, it's a good card, and I, I play it in EDH a couple of decks um, bec- as a, more as a medallion, but yeah, it definitely so is these, a good card. So these walls have managed to find their way into constructed magic in spite of themselves. <laughs> because <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah, they've just been stapling more and more value onto them, like Wall of Omens from... Oh, yeah. Rise of the Eldrazi was just a straight recapitulation of Wall of Blossoms, but it was played in modern just because it was a, a valuable roadblock for con- control decks to bridge into the mid game. It's great. Thanks thanks, Kevin. Yeah. Well we just So we just, walls walls aren't gone from the game, but they're definitely diminished. Well we just this isn't for the bot, we just faulted ten cards like that, so <laughs> Yeah, right. Well, shall we move on? Yes. Shall we move on to Wanderlust, which is one of the cycle of enchantments that damage you for various types of permanents? This is the one that goes on creatures, of course. This is 2G for an enchant creature. Wanderlust does one damage to target creature's controller during upkeep. Obviously, that suffers from the ambiguity about which upkeep. This, this, so there's not much more to say except for that I find it strange that this is in green. This figure was taken straight out of King's Quest. <laughs> From the garb yeah. and the hat, it's just a straight rip, yeah. rip off. <laughs> yeah, this is a, or homage. a very, very tropey, high fantasy hero's journey kind of design here. <laughs> this this card belies an interesting relationship with green, the color green and your opponent's creatures. 
And I think this is a little bit of a portent of R&D trying to figure out how green is meant to relate to your opponent's creatures. Anymore, your opponent, the only way your opponent gets punished for having creatures is sometimes in green, more so in white. If they have more than you, you get some benefit. Sometimes you benefit from having more than them. But the classic mechanic now for green to interact with creatures is just fighting. Fight, which is much more about removal, of course, than it is about punishing your opponent for having a creature. This Wanderlust ability, I think, properly disappeared from green's color identity pretty rapidly. Interesting observation. Yeah, I don't know. I, I'm of the opinion that this card, this should have been a black card. The, the color that should punish you for having a creature in play is first and foremost black. Yeah, that makes sense to me, that this is in the wrong, that this would make more sense as a black card, potentially a red card, but I think in black it makes the most sense. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Ironic that this art is done by Cornelius Broody, who's the one who's miscredited as Drew Tucker in his replacement plateau art for Revised. So Cornelius, in limited edition, Cornelius did just, looks like two cards, just Wanderlust and Pearled Unicorn, but then gained a card ostensibly in Revised in the replacement plateau art. I didn't realize Cornelius Broody has only done nine cards in the history of Magic. <laughs> There's some good pieces. That's Yeah, he did Pox, which I've always <sighs> had an affinity for, partially because it's evocative of Drew Tucker, <laughs> the Pox, the original Pox art. All right. Anyway, let's move on to one War Mammoth, which, again, like so many cards, we've kind of already reviewed in part. This is a four mana, three and a G for summon Mammoth. It's a three, three with Trample. You know, it's funny, the three, three, the four mana, three, three with no abilities has become the Hill Giant, but there's not quite as much cachet or cultural resonance to the three, three for four with Trample being a War Mammoth. <laughs> I know there are some players, in, in my experience, there are some players who have referred to, uh, hill giants as war mammoths sometimes in jest but sometimes just out of habit but the three three trampler for four is not that common of a of a model anymore true i personally played war mammoth a lot when i was in my youth i cast this card a lot i was really enamored with the the fact that trample was basically frequently relevant in this in the sense of your creatures matching up against your opponent's creatures, right? I played against a number of bears, a number of two mana two twos. I played against Mesa Pegasus and Will of the Wisps and just lots of stuff. And Trample just mattered a lot when this was going up against smaller creatures. Yeah. No, it, it, Trample, Trample is one of those abilities that I think is a mechanic that was a brilliant mechanic for evasion, right? It, but it, you can't put Trample on like a 1 1. <laughs> Yeah, you have to have some power. What's the smallest creature with trample? I wonder, Kevin. Well, there is, as of um, Commander Legends, a zero one wow. with trample. Yeah, a Roga, or Rogak, son of Roga, is the the partner zero mana kobold. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. That has first strike menace and trample, which is you know a bit of a a bit of a joke, but. Still functional when you interact with other kobold cards and or power and toughness buffing buffing abilities. But so to answer your question, the the smallest creature with trample is a zero one. War Mammoth is actually surprisingly good in is in like a, just an alpha forty environment where um you know you can put some buffing stats around it with like holy strengths or some banders and it 
It's it's it, oh, yeah. it's decent. I mean, you can play unlimited number of them, so it's not bad. Yeah, and in, in my youth, I put a, an aspect of wolf or two on a war mammoth and had a good time. Yeah, giant growth it. <laughs> yeah, it's worth noting that while war mammoth was printed a, a number of times, it's been reprinted, Alpha Beta Unlimited, through so fourth and fifth edition. The last printing that was set defining was fifth edition. But a lot of homages to War Mammoth have also been printed in that same time period. So we got in Arabian Nights, we got Moorish Cavalry, which is in, in white, right? But then there are two subsequent just straight-up recapitulations on War Mammoth in Wild Elephant in Mirage and Argothian Swine in Saga. So even though War Mammoth itself doesn't get the credit for having those printings, they just renamed the card and put them in context and printed them again. These days, if you pay four mana and get a 3-3 Trampler, you also get a lot more abilities for your money. <laughs> the most recent example is... Okay, there's an online-only card in Bayloth Pack Hunter, but I'm not going to talk about that. I'm, the, so here's an example. A uncommon legend from War of the Spark is Mowu, Loyal Companion, the multi-tailed dog. Mowu is a four mana, 3G for a 3-3, three, three, has trample, vigilance, and if one or more plus one plus one counters to be put on Mowu, you, that many plus one are put on instead. So you get vigilance and an extra triggered ability these days for that same cost. And it's a legend, so you can play it as a legend in your, for your commander, I mean. So yeah, War Mammoth uh, has been outmoded, but I think it was pretty good deal in its day for, for where it's at. All right, let's move on to Warp Artifact. Not much more to be said that we haven't said already. BB for Enchant Artifact. Warp Artifact does one damage to target Artifact's controller at start of each turn. <laughs> so they somehow managed to make the language different and still ambiguous, <laughs> right? I don't know why, for example, that Warp Artifact says uh, at start of each turn and then Wanderlust says, you know, uh, during upkeep <laughs> i don't know Strange. why they couldn't have seen to standardize that within alpha but here we are also it's worth noting that um in my opinion the the top-down design the the intersection of the art and the name and the effect here no two out, n- n- only two out of three match depending on what you're looking at like warp artifact okay then you look at the art and amy weber has clearly evoked a disc being stretched and and distorted. All right, that's warping an artifact. But why does that make me take damage every upkeep, right? It's if you look at warp artifact and look at the ability, you know, it does one damage to you. So I've I've corrupted this artifact, but then the art doesn't look like corruption. It just looks like straight up stretching, you know. You physically defaced the thing, but I don't see why that like if you did this to my uh I don't know, my cell phone, it wouldn't cause my <laughs> cell phone to do one damage to me. Clear, yeah. <laughs> it's clearly just top down design. <laughs> yeah, it is. I don't like the fact that the the text and the art and the name don't all kind of agree with one another. But then again, this is a statement on the color pie in the early days, which lasted quite a long time, mind you, about black's ability to interact with artifacts. This is on the short list of ways in which black can interact with your opponent's artifacts and punishing them for them is basically it. It's debatable whether or not this card should have been in black. It's about the extent, the apex of what black could do to artifacts in the early days, uh, you know, gate to Phyrexia notwithstanding, but it'd be far more flavorful for this to be in red, in my opinion, or green. I think black and green should have swapped warp artifact and wanderlust, for example. (laughs) 
but they were still finding their ways with uh with color pie identity and this card like it or not was printed i think too much because it got all the way into fifth edition before they stopped printing it that was three sets too many agreed now this is played in alpha league is it not uh not as much as the other ones but i i think cursed land and copper artifact copper tablet are the two most played cursed land and yeah i'm not sure why do you think it's too much of a liability to count on your opponent having an artifact in alpha league it's pretty reliable actually from what you've told me, it seems like the way to go. Yeah. Your creatures should be mostly artifacts. <laughs> You're right. I wonder why Curse Land is so popular. Curse Land is immensely popular. Is it because... Well, you can play it on curve, where if you're trying to put this on a juggernaut, you can't play this on curve if you're on the play. That might be a factor. Yeah. I don't know. I guess I could see some, some defense for that position. Yeah. I guess it's just more reliable in that respect. Yeah. Have you ever played Warp Artifacts? Steve? Never cast it. To my, I mean, I yeah. definitely opened plenty of them back in the day, as you did. <laughs> Same. I'm pretty sure I cast it once or twice, but um, I've always, always disappointed with it. This kind of <laughs> incremental damage thing was never for me. Well, especially once you get to the revised version, it only does it once a turn cycle. It's not even close to worth <laughs> it. <laughs> That's true. That's where I started. <laughs> All right. Let's talk about one water elemental. We already reviewed this partially when we were talking about other elementals, as well as the art when we talked about Sea Serpent, since it makes a kind of pairing with the Sea Serpent art by Jeff Mangus also. Water Elemental is a 3UU Summon Elemental. It is a 5-4 Vanilla, part of a pairing, or not just a pairing, but a grouping with blue and red. You know, we covered the theme with the walls. They've got elementals in their walls, as well as non-wall versions. Water, fire, earth, air, and in my opinion, they were, again, a little too adherent to the top-down design and making this a 5-4 when it's out of character for blue to have a creature that's more aggressive like this. In my opinion, a water elemental should have been a little more toughness-based. It should have been like a, I don't know, a 2-6 a or a 3-6 or something like that. Something that would evoke the fact that water is very difficult to... Um, it's very difficult to get rid of. <laughs> you can you can burn it, you can evaporate it, and it still just comes back. I think that should have been represented with toughness instead of being a five four. But it's a minor it's a minor thing. I cast this card begrudgingly as a kid because I had a bunch of them, but uh, I stopped playing it as much as rapidly as I could. In limited edition, I think this is Blue's best ground creature. But that just goes to show you how limited the ground creatures are for Blue. You know that. Well, and also it's how flying you're right. or artifact. Yeah, and how much good flying you've got for blue as well. You know, right? Uh, Phantom monster and air elemental mean you don't have to you, you don't have to suffer being on the ground very much. Right. Yeah, I would agree. I think I played this card when I had very few packs because uh, you know at common and on rate it's I'm sorry it's uncommon at uncommon and on rate it's okay five four is fine. I mean it's like it or not it's a faster clock than an air elemental. And it'll trade with a juggernaut in a pinch, so it's not a terrible card. It just gets just gets outmoded as soon as you get a, a better collection, you get access to, to some rares. Also, we talked about the art <laughs> and its relationship to this the sea serpent. But if you were to close your eyes or, or you know do the director thing and block out <laughs> all the text on this card, there is just no way that this art is evoking a water elemental. Yeah, this is a guy in a boat. That's right? the central figure. I mean, the water <laughs> elemental is there, but it's not prominent. <laughs> yeah, the fact that there is a 
a subtle face in the uh, in the water is is readable at close inspection but it's a little too subtle for my taste and also what what is it doing it it looks like it's helping the guy you know here let me help you or (laughs) yeah this art it's it's fine it's evocative it's jeff mangus at the same time it's a little too subtle for me and uh, unfortunately or fortunately depending on your perspective this card was printed up until well fourth edition and then in starter with the same art but like so many cards in limited edition this one ultimately overstayed its welcome too but much less so than some other cards did you ever cast a water elemental steve i don't think i ever have to be honest yeah when you dove in you were looking for those more efficient threats i'm sure all right let's move on to weakness now i love this card for one very specific reason and that is directly to do with the text For B, you get an enchant creature. Target creature loses minus two, minus one. If this drops the creature's toughness below one, comma, it is dead. (laughs) And that that is one of my favorite things printed on a magic card, full stop. It's just, (laughs) it is dead. (laughs) And unfortunately, you know, that's one of the things that they... They they left a lot of things on the terrible wordings of cards through revised in fourth edition, as you and I have observed repeatedly. But that language was removed after unlimited, which is a real shame because I didn't even learn of that language for many years after I played the game. I got all these revised weaknesses, which just say target creature loses minus two minus one and it's done, right? I was so happy the first time I saw a limited edition, a true limited edition weakness and saw not only the strategic advice, but... It is dead. I mean, it doesn't get much better than that. Yeah. How many other cards in limited edition actually say death or dead? Probably not <laughs> many. Well, and if you're talking about the the printed version... Yes, printed. I mean, I, I there can't be many. Famously, Animate Dead, you know, was yeah. Enchant Dead Creature, <laughs> which is probably the apex of that, right? But just the austerity of saying it is dead always tickled me. <laughs> <laughs> That said, I consider weakness to be actually a pretty decent card, primarily yeah. due to its efficiency. Yep. Right? Granted, you can't put it on a black or a white knight, I mean, like you'd love to, but it's a one mana solution, so to speak, to Hypnotic Spectre, which is fantastic. Yeah. It renders your opponent's um four and five mana threats much more bearable. Now a three three juggernaut is still a problem, but a two four Sarah Angel, that's much less of a problem. Yeah. Right? I did that a lot when I was playing in the early days. And it, it buys you, and you know, in practice, it buys you more time than a wall in a lot of cases. And it's common, too. So there's this is a yeah. very available removal spell. Yeah, absolutely. And it's funny that we're talking about this on a vintage show because we just passed an era of vintage where a direct descendant of weakness was a staple in the format <laughs> in that the Luris era caused oh, a whole bunch yeah. of people to play Deadweight. Oh my which is god, this Deadweight was same so card. good. <laughs> I know, plus, so Deadweight is this card, but it's minus two, minus two, which makes a huge difference, right? It kills Luris. a lot of things, Luris. specifically Luris, yeah. and it's a permanent that you can replay with your own Luris, so it was doubly effective. But that we've passed that era, now that Luris is banned. But uh, that said, it's very interesting and circular to look at 20-some years later how Vintage went through a period where... A, a card just a tiny bit different than weakness was everywhere in the metagame for a brief period. So, Steve, did you ever play this card? I have no memory of playing this card. Yeah. I think 
I would describe it as a, a convenience and or a necessary evil, so to speak, in my early days, right? As you said, it's common, pretty efficient at what it does. And also, I find that it is disruptive across most the, the spectrum of sizes of creatures in the limited edition context, right? From from your lowly birds of paradise and land or elves, which is just straight kills, it is dead, right? To your <laughs> Austin trolls and your phantom monsters, like it's powerfully disruptive to three power creatures. And so I was not disappointed to cast this a fair bit in my youth. The art is humorous to me. This Douglas Schuler showing this enfeebled person, the, um, it's pretty understated in my opinion, how this person is evoking weakness because I have to be honest, you can't see much of their body. And from what you can see of their body, they don't look malnourished. They don't look especially small. (laughs) I think you're just meant to understand through a little bit of clenching of fingers that they are without strength. And I guess that's kind of it. But if you look at their forearms, they look like they go to the gym a lot. So I I think this card is a little bit of a failure in terms of conveying its message. Weakness was reprinted up until... So it was in the core sets up until 5th edition. In 5th edition, it got new art from Kev Walker, which is much more dramatic art. And then there's a big gap, and it was reprinted in M10, which is noteworthy. You know, we talked about M10 being a, a kind of a homage to Alpha. But the fact of the matter is, is that weakness is just not good enough of a card. Dead weight is a obviously a far superior card, removing one more toughness broadens the spectrum of creatures that it kills uh, immensely and also dead weight is a pretty good card in limited contexts so in most of its printings dead weight has been pretty darn relevant for the limited environment it's in and only occasionally i've seen it in standard because like it or not it's still pretty efficient in removal you know black's version of shock so to speak but i don't expect to see weakness printed ever again and rightly so that makes me a little sad yeah yeah a little bit the card was recapitulated a little bit in Legends as the, I think it's called Spirit Shackle. Yeah, Spirit Shackle, which is BB enchant creature put as minus zero minus two counter on target creature every time it becomes tapped. Counters remain even if the enchantment is removed. So, you know, an early predecessor to punishing your opponent for using their creatures in various ways. Obviously, we... We got some versions of that in limited edition, but this one, pretty fatal, right? Also in Legends, we got uh, Tavern uh, Tackle Maggot, which follows the same kind of theme and is even more punishing. Anything else on weakness, Steve? I think you covered it. Yeah. Next, we have Web. This is one of the many auras, owing to the aura sub-theme in the set. G for an enchant creature. Target creature gains plus zero, plus two, and can now block flying creatures. Though it does not gain the power to fly. In other words, reach. <laughs> In other words, reach. That's exactly right. The Oracle text now, of course, is plus zero, plus two, and has reach. I think this card is a an excellent aura design and perfectly placed, yeah. both on the mana curve and in color. Obviously, green continues to be the color of reach. There's a reason why Giant Spider was so often printed. And it's a great top-down design in the form of it being a spider's web. Right? Yeah. I think this card is just a hit on all angles. It's just a shame that plus zero, plus two, and reach is such a weak effect. <laughs> yeah. It, it's also a rare, which is really odd. 
pretty bizarre, right? Yeah. I, I would never have defended this card being rare. Uncommon for the purposes of making it a little harder to find, I suppose. But but come on, this is like we've got three tent pole uncommon four four flyers across the other colors. Throw green a bone here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, agreed. This is a great card for Enchantress. We went on and on about Enchantress just a few minutes ago. I played a couple of webs in my early Enchantress for Rabid Wombat decks just because. You know, Rabid Wombat makes a pretty good blocker if it has reach. This card yes. has, a, has a, another one of those kind of unique reprint patterns. It was in the core sets up till fourth. Then the only other printing was in ninth, which is strange. That is a very, That's got to be a unique pattern. Yeah. Very I, don't, I don't know why this card was in ninth. I'd have to study that matter. <laughs> <laughs> Just a moment. It's worth noting that this card was not in gamma. So apparently added to alpha as a to fill a functional hole. And we also mentioned it's kind of like the you know there are a lot of creature boosters in this set, and en- enchant creature boosters like an inordinate amount of enchant. Creature. Inordinate, I was is what I would describe it as well. <laughs> but this is also kind of a pairing with aspect of wolf. This is cleaner than aspect of wolf, more direct, simpler yeah. design, and probably better too. Yeah, agreed on all fronts. Uh, it makes me wonder if there's a relationship between the fact that Verdurin Enchantress was added between. Gamma and Alpha, and they also added another aura. Green was not really lacking for auras. You had Aspect and Still Energy, Living Artifact, Regeneration, and Wild Growth. Oh, and Lure. I mean, so that's a half dozen things that are reasonable to put on your own permanence, mostly your own creatures. It's not like green was lacking. So I guess this truly feels like hole-filling in terms of giving green a little bit more reach in Alpha. You've probably never cast Web, have you, Steve? Sadly not, but I would love to play it in an Enchantress deck. Yeah, it would be pretty darn good. And it's a good way to protect her, too, right? Sure. Get her out of bolt range. It's very reasonable. Well, this next card, Steve, I know you have cast. And uh, (laughs) with Reckless Abandon, that is Wheel of Fortune. (laughs) 2R for a sorcery. (laughs) The wording is great. Both players must discard their hands and draw seven new cards. Uh, which is a bit of a cleaned up version, obviously, of the Gamma version, which I think is even better. Further down that road, the <laughs> Gamma version says both players lose their hands Ugh. and draw a fresh hand of seven oh. cards. <laughs> <laughs> I do kind of wish that the Alpha version had kept the word fresh in there, because yeah. I think that's pretty funny. Love that. <laughs> um. Well, I mean, we've both got a lot of experience with Wheel of Fortune. You probably a bit more than me in the context, because you like played combo. a lot of... A lot of combo decks over the years. So what does this card evoke in you? Well, Wheel of Fortune is a card that is immensely powerful, first of all. And so Time Twister, we spent a lot of time talking about its strategic centrality in certain decks, Mm -hmm. like the Recursion decks, like the early Doomsday decks. You know, um, is it kind of manipulate, like a a very well-timed card in the deck Wheel of Fortune is is much more, I think you kind of put it well, it's much more of a card. The first place in which Wheel of Fortune really appears is just in burn decks. You're playing a burn deck, mm-hmm. you want to refill your hand and finish your opponent off, Wheel of Fortune is your guy. Like, that's the, <laughs> that's your tool, right? Your weapon of choice in that moment. Um, but Wheel of Fortune is, so it's interesting in that it's really the only draw set. So, so time twister is a recursion spell as much as it is kind of a refill your hand. 
Wheel of Fortune is much more straightforward. Just let's just refill from wherever we are. Um, it's it also in that respect, it's a card that um is very good in the early game. And this this is a card. The card I'm about to mention is probably not even in the mental database of most of our listeners, but was a hugely (laughs) significant card back in the day. And that card is Underworld Dreams. Mm, yeah. Because Underworld Dreams was actually so powerful in out of Legends, it was quickly restricted. And it was basically a win condition in a lot of combination decks. Um just as kind of like a you know, slowly <laughs> slowly drain your opponent of life. And then if you play a wheel or winds of change or you play wheel and fork it, it it's basically fourteen damage. Deadly. Yeah. Lethal. Yeah. Um in in the Academy and post-Academy period, Wheel of Fortune is basically like a time spiral in that it's just dump all your mana, refill your hand, dump all your mana, <laughs> play another you know Wheel of Fortune type effect, whether it's Memory Jar or whatever, the Windfall, and go for it. Um, and that becomes actually critically important, especially important, at the moment in which Yawgmoth's Will becomes the centerpiece of the format. And that occurs mm-hmm. circa 2002 to basically, what, Kevin, 2009, 2008? Yawgmoth's mm-hmm. Will is like the strategic centerpiece of Vintage. It's kind of the fulcrum of the format. You play Yawgmoth's Will decks or you play anti-Yawgmoth's Will decks. Yep. And Wheel of Fortune is this really interesting position card in that environment. You still see that deck to some extent with Dark Petition, and people will play Wheel of Fortune, the Dark Petition deck, but Wheel of Fortune basically does two things. Number one, it allows you to refill your hand when your opponent has counterspelled all of your threats. Um, anything that goes to the bin that's already been spent can be gotten back with Yawgmoth's Will, which makes it much less symmetrical than it seems, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so what you really want to do is, let's say you've played, I don't know, a Duress, a Brainstorm, maybe you Dark Ritualed something and they countered it. You play Wheel of Fortune. Let's say you go Dark Ritual, Wheel of Fortune with one black floating. What you want to get at that point in the combo deck is like another duress to duress to clear the force of will or mana drain. And then you want to uh, play Burning Wish in the ideal scenario for Yawgmoth's Will there. You know, have enough mana to Yawgmoth's Will and then replay all the stuff you've already played. So you can go, for example, Dark Ritual, Dark Ritual, then another Burning Wish for Tendrils and win right there. And it's not really that difficult to do it. Uh, in the original version of, <laughs> in the original version of Long, you had four lion's eye diamonds to help facilitate that, which was totally absurd. <laughs> because naturally, because also that's the other thing: we, lion's eye diamond and draw sevens are ridiculous. If you know that your wheel of fortune is going to resolve, then you can you can announce wheel of fortune, retain priority, and activate the lion's eye diamond in response. Which of course you can do the same thing with burning wish. Which is why this card would be utterly absurd in legacy, where you have four lion's eye diamonds. Um, and four, which cannot be allowed. Yeah, four lotus petals too, which couldn't be allowed. But even in vintage, where you you could play all that stuff, it was just totally absurd. Um, so Wheel of Fortune evokes kind of a. It's kind of been there in all these different kinds of decks, right? It's been there. It's been there for the burn decks. It's been there for the early combo decks with Underworld Dreams. It's been there for the later combo decks that are built around Yawgmoth's Will and continues to be in that role. It's just kind of an all-purpose, great, nifty, fun card. And I think both the resonance with the art 
having this wheel that you spin <laughs> and kind of the cultural reference as a game show just makes it kind of that much more appealing. <laughs> well, what can I add to that except to say that you're right on all accounts. I find the, there's a lot of pedigree and uh, history that was established by Time Twister and Wheel from limited edition, right? They both were recapitulated in a number of ways. Wheel in the, the next real printing of a wheel, so to speak, was Wheel of Fate, which is the suspend version from Time Spiral. But then we got the Miracle version and Reforge the Soul and the Creature version in Magus the Wheel, as well as a, a little known other creature version in Runehorn Hellkite, which is surprisingly powerful, but also takes six mana to activate. There have been more, I mean, even recently in the most recent set, Commander Legends, there's Wheel of Misfortune, which adds a whole other sub-game mechanic onto the effect, but <laughs> ultimately has the same effect you know, in practice, except for somebody ends up paying a bunch of life. The There have been more, a few more recapitulations of Time Twister, but we don't need to go through all those. The thing that I love about Wheel is a thing that you alluded to in a couple of ways, which is how many different types of decks and or yeah. interactions and goals that it enables. I didn't even mention Notion Thief with it. <laughs> Granted. I, one of my favorites, you know, Yawgmoth's Will is probably the apex, but the more common implementation of Wheel, I think probably historically and even today, is just things like reanimation, right? You dump a thing you can't cast or don't wish to cast into your graveyard, and then it's there as a resource for your numerous, mostly black cards to, to pull back out, right? That's, I don't want to say that's the most popular implementation, but it's a very popular implementation. So you refill your hand, you gain your graveyard as an additional juiced-up resource, and you can potentially punish your opponent for what they've just done vis-a-vis -vis Underworld Dreams, Black Vice, right? The game show aspect always is funny to me because one of the things that Red does more so in modern magic than it did in the beginning is randomness. Drawing cards off the top of your deck has an element of randomness, right? It's fundamental to the game. But Red doesn't play that aspect up for many years, really. They've just started doing more lately with things like Impulsive Draw for Red, which amplifies the quote-unquote randomness of the top of your deck, meaning your draws are temporary resources, not long-term resources like they are for Blue. I think that 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 notion has its roots all the way back to Wheel of Fortune as a top-down concept. You could, I think from, a, from Richard Garfield's perspective, you can wheel into a whole menagerie of different things, right? The, it's not really actively depicted in the art, but there's a, what, a, a chalice, a heart, a skull, and a sword. I think those are tropes that evoke things you could wheel into in magic, especially if you had a pretty broad spectrum of effects in your deck, right? You could wheel into creatures. You could wheel into things that give you life. You could wheel into things that just actively hurt you for one reason or another because there weren't good draws for whatever reason. I think I really like that aspect of the flavor of the thing. But in practice, that's not how we build our decks and haven't for a long time, right? We wheel because we're, we know what's going to happen or what's very likely yeah. to happen because our decks are mostly efficient. The the card Wheel of Fortune has a just a really fond, a great fondness for me for many reasons. It was a very exciting rare to finally open in the revised era. Mm -hmm. I remember specific... There's not many rares I remember having a really powerful effect on me right when I opened them. But when I first opened yeah. the wheel, I thought, 
wow, this is, look what this does. This is a bombastic play, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And keep in mind that in the revised era, you don't have Time Twister in that set. So this is the only, yeah, in the, the revised one context, survives. the only draw seven. That's a great point. Yeah, yeah. There's not a lot of cards in Magic that literally make you draw seven cards. Technically, there's only 17 that yeah. have the phrase draw seven, then draw seven cards. The So the effect is in almost every one of them is a direct homage to Twister or Wheel. Right. Almost every one of them. They either recycle the graveyard or they just draw seven. Discard your hand and draw seven. That's right. That's right. The red ones tend to do the wheels and the, the blue ones tend to do the twisting. And that's great. I think that's awesome. The one standout that is different than both of those, which is more red than, than blue, is a memory jar. Yes. You know, memory jar is the ultimate impulsive draw. Here's your new hand of seven, but you've only got this turn to use it. So, so Kevin, I, I want to emphasize something. I think you make lots of good points. If you were playing type one around the turn of the century, mm-hmm. when you're designing a combo deck, or even if you're designing just a, a, a good stuff deck, usually what you're starting with is there'll be a pile of five cards that you start with. And that five cards are Time Twister, Wheel of Fortune, Windfall, Tinker, and Memory Jar. And that's your five draw right. sevens. And then on top right. of that, you're probably going to be playing with Necropotence, Yogmoss Bargain, and it's, it's like your two broken black spells. And then when it was printed, in that pile goes Mind's Desire. And those eight cards, Kevin, were basically part of the backbone of the combo deck. Because what everything else around it was just basically tutors, draw, and filler, right? Like ancestral yeah. De- defense disruption, defense disruption, tutoring, and mana and around those basically those eight cards and a win condition, right? So you'd play if it was academy, then you'd basically have those cards, and those were all restricted. Time spiral sometimes made it. it, it remember, time spiral was played in the perfect storm when it was restricted, but it was a little slower. It wasn't like one of the standard five draw sevens. In the Academy deck, you would definitely play Time Spiral. But everything else you put in there would just be, you know, Demonic Tutor, Vampiric Tutor, Mystical Tutor, um, so on and so forth. A little bit of disruption. And then you'd have your Wing Condition and Brain Geyser or Stroke. And then you'd have your specific combo with Capsize, uh, Power Artifact, um, and Grim Monolith, um, Fast Bond, possibly. Um, a crop Rotation to find the Academy. In the you know, the long versions, variants, you would have the Four Burning Wish and Yogmoth's Will and Tendrils in the sideboard, and then later on, Grim Tutor. In the pitch long version, you would dispose of the duresses and add, uh, you know, Misdirections and Force of Wills, and you basically have the same deck. But And you have Dark Rituals. The point is that no matter, you know, all the cards around it have kind of like this montage of quickly cycling in and cycling out cards... But this core corpus kind of stays together for basically the better part of a decade, you know, which is really remarkable through all these versions. Um, and Wheel of Fortune was basically one of the best, the best draw sevens. It's the one, you know, it's the one you wanted to see the most because it was better than, let me just be really specific. It's better than Time Twister in the, in the Yawgmoth's Will decks because it builds your graveyard. It was better than Windfall because it's guaranteed draw seven, right? It's basically better than Tinker Memory Jar because the Tinker will cause you to lose an artifact in play. The Memory Jar is more expensive. It usually costs a ritual to cast it. And um, also, in both Tinker and Memory Jar's case, if you can't win right there, you lose at the end of the turn. Unless you can brainstorm, and that deck 
generally didn't play Brainstorm, you're not going to be putting it back on top of your deck. Now, the pitch long version played Brainstorm. But, so, in all those cases, basically, Wheel is the draw seven you wanted to see the most. It was the best draw seven. Yeah, absolutely. It's worth noting that Wheel has been riffed on from a design standpoint in, in most of its recapitulations, including the jokey strategy schmategy from Unglued, which has ostensibly the same art, but featuring a more whimsical goblin and a wheel that is being spun in the same exact design, but a wheel that's being spun with more comedy on it. There's a broken egg and a, a set of glasses with a funny nose and a mustache, and there's a chicken on there. I mean, it's pure comedy. But then the suspend version from Time Spiral is a, like most of the suspend cards were, is evoking two different periods of time with the old wheel kind of breaking through the time barrier and an, and an old figure evoking the original, which is great. And then the magus of the wheel, which is one of my favorites, <laughs> as just obviously a, a human wizard standing in front and in, inviting you behind him to this wheel that is meant to be spun and lots of nasty things are going to be coming out of it. So I like all the ways in which the wheel has become a symbol for this effect, discard your hand and draw seven, to the point where old school players such as yourself and me tend to ref- just refer to that as wheeling, right? Yeah. As a verb. It's true. Pretty ironic too, when you think about it, that something as simple and fundamental to human culture as the wheel came to represent this exact thing. Right. I mean, I could picture in al- many alternate universes where wheel in magic meant They're something completely different. unrelated. Yeah. Something totally different. But for us, it's discard your hand and draw seven cards. Indeed. And it always yeah. will be. Well, and I want to bring it around to modern vintage where wheel is is very rarely played these days. The the pure draw seven decks, as you've described, are no longer in favor, of course. And also, the notion of discarding your hand and drawing seven has become pretty hazardous with the advent of Notion Thief and Narset and now Hull Breacher. I think the days of us wheeling, so to speak, in vintage, I think are in the past. That makes me sad. It's true. It is a sadness. Well, like it or not, Wheel was only printed up until summer. It's one of those handful of cards that was in summer, but then didn't make it into fourth edition. And the only other printing since then is a judge printing. All of those printings having become ridiculously expensive by today's standards and by mostly any standard. Uh, And it's partly for the reasons that Time Twister is also expensive, and that is due to EDH, right? This is one of the power or power adjacent cards from the limited edition. How much does this see? How much play does this see in EDH? There are certain decks for which it is a staple. Decks like Riel the Everwise, right? Oh, a card Riel. that I know you were personally yes. <laughs> excited about, right? Nekuzar, which is the creature version of Un- Underworld Dreams. A handful of other decks. It is a go-to staple in those, and much less often just as a value play for players who like it. I personally have Wheel in just a couple of decks, one of which is trying to specifically be a reanimator deck, so it serves that primary role in that deck. All right, what else to say about Wheel of Fortune, Steve? I think we covered the ground. This is Dan Galan art, and I've always really liked this art because the setting is very monochromatic. There's a some, I don't know if it's blue or green, but the ground is blue-green, the trees are all very Jeff Mangus kind of gray, although much more sharp lines than Jeff Mangus. But then the figure is hooded in red, 
And the wheel, even though the colors are subtle, the wheel pops, right? Because the yeah. wheel is brown in a way that the tree behind it is, isn't. And the four icons on the wheel stand out. And I've always just sort of enjoyed the way it draws your eye specifically to the wheel. Kevin, if I was just if I was just looking at if you covered up the artist and I didn't know who the artist was, I would have thought it's Jeff Mengus because it looks so much like a piece of Jeff Mengus art. It definitely has his palette, but then you look and, then you look closer at the sharp lines, yeah. and you you see that it's a little different. But, yeah. I mean, it is a little bit more sharply rendered, but the the wheel itself, the tree, the trunk, the figure. Yes. It feels very Mengus-like. It really does. It has that same effect. This card is interesting from a versioning standpoint just because I like the way it looks in Black Border. I like the yeah. way the Black Border ties the red card border to the red figure. It really draws your eye that way. And it seems to give the the whole thing... It seems to give the whole thing a narrower focus. Like you're focused on exactly what's happening in the scene, the figure in the wheel. If you look at a revised version, though, the white border amplifies the white that the white highlights in the setting of the card the tree the forest in the background the lightness of the ground i find that the white bordered version actually makes the setting feel larger yeah. and more expansive yes and so it, it feels it's, like you're in a bigger setting it's because the white border feels like an extension of the art this is one of the few cards where in unlimited it's actually a stunning card i mean i think there yeah. are other cards like that like time twister looks really nice and unlimited um this is this card looks fantastic and limited, and it even looks decent and revised, which you can't say that about yeah. too too many cards. But it does. Uh, I agree. One of the time, one of the rare times when the white border actually plays with the art in a in a way that I like. Yeah, I, with Time Twister as well, I like how the white border um, makes the blue just feel. It feels brighter, not necessarily stronger, oh, yeah. but brighter. That's that's a good point. I agree. All right. Any other thoughts on wheel? I'm very glad this card was in revised, by the way. Can you imagine if it wasn't? Right? Oh, my God. <laughs> I mean, it would just be another three or $4,000 card like Twister is. God. Which is, it's so, we so dodged absurd. the bullet there, I guess, to a degree. Yeah. All right. Next up, another high-profile, high-quality card for a different reason. White yes. Knight. <laughs> WW for a Summon Knight, Protection from Black and First Strike, and it's a 2-2. Uh, we've touched on the the reasons why this card is so structural and so important uh, many times over. What do you want to add to that list, Steve? Well, I would say that in the pantheon of weenie decks, white weenie is slightly preferred over black weenie. And there are different reasons mm-hmm. for that. I think there's probably slightly better curving options in, in white. You know, you have... The Savannah Lions, big difference. Savannah Lions, and to a lesser extent, Acacian Javelineers and Clergy of the Holy Nimbus... <laughs> And Crusade just and, and oh, Thunder and Spirit Armageddon. what <laughs> and Armageddon Thunder Spirit being huge um, yeah. in that so there's just you know you can go turn one Savannah Lions turn two Crusade turn three Savannah uh, Thunder Spirit and yes you could go turn four Armageddon and how does an opponent how does an opponent win in that scenario is unclear <laughs> yeah Black in the early days Black didn't have a real close the door kind of thing to well to end on Black has better thing. creatures but they're not in a weenie mold. They're Hypnotic Spectre and Juzim Jin. Mm-hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, the Pump Knights are good, but even b- before the Pump Knights, before Ice Age and Fallen Empires, it's, you know, White Weenie is just far <laughs> superior because of Thunder Spirit well, at, and Savannah Lions. Yeah, r- in terms of rare one-drops, White got Savannah Lions, Black got Will of the Wisps. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So I think White Knight, in some sense, is 
has more play historically. That may have shifted once the Pump Knights, uh, I mean, prior to Fallen Empires or around yeah. Fallen. Once, once the Pump Knights come into existence, and especially once Ice Age is printed and Necropotence is printed, then it, that shifts. Oh yeah. Um, I because then suddenly the Necro decks are you know Pump Knight decks, and I probably in many cases with Black Knight. I do think though um, that. What the white weenie decks still maintained a little bit of their ability. I mean, you had this. If I if I recall correctly, we talked about the slight knight deck earlier that made top mm-hmm. four, and was it ninety five worlds? You know, with white knights, yep. blue blue predominantly white with a tiny splash of blue. So white knight was clearly important in combating. I mean, the white knight strategy was clearly decent at combating necro, but um, in limited edition, I think it's unequivocal that. That Black Knight is the superior knight, is the pairing. I think. Yeah. Because and protection from swords to plowshares is yes. so much more impactful than protection from terror. Right. And in the ambiguity of first edition rules, I mean, the the example of someone asking whether uh, a Black Knight survives Wrath of God is not some sort of <laughs> Alpha League construct. It's actually a very early question that people had. You know. Yeah. And many of them assume yeah. that it survived balance, wrath, you know, you name it. Um, so yeah, t- um, Tom, I just wanted to reinforce what you said about the '96. Tom Champang's deck from '96, the World Champion, had all twelve available knights. There you go. It was '96, not '95. Four Order of Liet, yeah, four Order of Liet Beer, four Order of the White Shield, and, and four White Knights. Yeah, yeah, as well as a Sleight of Mind. In the main deck, and another sleight of mind in the sideboard. So I think I think there's a weird kind of inversion that happens that that white that Black Knight is probably best in 1993, White Knight is best in 1994, and then I think Black Knight probably becomes better again in 95, and then in 96 it's probably White Knight again. And at that point, it any time past that, it really doesn't matter because <laughs> they're not being used in anything, you know, constructive. In old school ninety three ninety four, you don't basically play white or black knight very much because you have the eight. Well, you have at least four of the fallen empires ones. If you play ice in ninety three ninety four, you're going to be playing with the the orders over the knights, right? So, mm-hmm. I might be overstating that, but I think that's basically basically right. <laughs> I don't think you're overstating it. I think that's a fair assessment of how things went down. I, I don't, I mean... But it's worth noting but, that... Well, ahead. I just want to say that if you were playing, you know, Magic Constructed in the fall of 94 or early 95, Thunder Spirit was a very hot commodity. Like, very hot. Seriously, <laughs> it was like, you know, um, I don't know. It's a hyper-efficient card, yeah. I mean, and it's an incredible response to a hypnotic Exactly. Spectrum. It was a very popular card and efficient mm-hmm. card, so... That's all. I just wanted to emphasize yeah. that the, for white weenie strategies, it was it was. I think white knight was just the better. The weenie strategies, which were popular, white knight was better. That doesn't mean it had better tactics. Yeah. Whatever it was just a more more synergistic as such as as weenie as such. That's all I'm saying. Sure, sure. Well, how much of that did you play, or have you played in your time? Um, I am ninety nine percent on the opposite side of those strategies. <laughs> including the necro mm-hmm. strategies. <laughs> I would be playing the control deck, trying to trying to find ways to make my control deck defeat necro, which was generally mm-hmm. a losing strategy because necro was so good. Um but um the white weenie decks could be frustrating as well because here's the other reason the white weenie decks were good in late 94 and in 
early 95, as the deck was rising. Black couldn't deal with moat. White yeah. had four disenchant. So you deploying a moat was no safeguard to be able to... And then on top of that, Thunder Spirit flew over the moat. So mm-hmm. now if your opponent curved into turn one Savannah Lions, let's say turn two, instead of Crusade, let's say they played White Knight. Um, you know, and you and you met have one of your three moats post board. You can deploy a moat, and if you can't protect it right then and there, you might just be overrun and never recover. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If they disenchant right there, then you're left scrambling to find answers to creatures as well as another moat, as well as ward off potentially Armageddon. And if you try and wait, spreads your real thin. Yeah, and if you try and wait, then you're just might be dead. Because they can yeah. just, you know, play Crusade and then Thunder Spirit and maybe Armageddon and you have to counter that and things can get very <laughs> yeah. dicey very quickly. <laughs> White Knight was printed a fair bit, but surprisingly less than you might think as compared to many other cards we've discussed and how they overstayed their welcome in the game. So it was in the core sets, but not as long as you might think. What? It went up until 5th edition and then took a break. Well, at that point, they Wasn't were just... printed again until... Go ahead. They were making other knights. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and that point is well made. I mean, the pump knights, the various versions of the pump knights were filling gaps in the game at that point. But it's still surprising that the next printing after fifths was Legions, which is an interesting positioning for a 2-2 <laughs> first striker and a set filled with morph. Then the card was in 10, M10, and M11. And then has only been in reprint sets since then. So for a card that's so important to the history of the game and the progression and the identity of white and the, the progression and identity of weenie decks in general, it has seen comparatively few printings. What do you make of that? I think the the Pump Knights is really the the catalyst there. Just that there were so many options. They were doing so many variants of this card because of how popular and formative it was that the original just kind of didn't need to be brought back. It was brought back in M10 because that set was, you know, a bit of a return to form. And in fact, the M10 version is the the version that's pre-printed in the mystery boosters, which is funny because it has been reprinted once since then. It was an M11, but it's the M10 version you see in his mystery boosters, which I think is a funny <laughs> statement. Uh, just, uh, But I, I just think that the, we just had a lot of options and the original didn't need to be brought back as much. For the sake of completeness, was the reprint pattern the same as Black Knight? Oh, let me verify. Yes, it is. There is actually no... No, I, I lied. There's one difference. And that is um, <clears throat> Legions. Black Knight was not in Legions. Oh, God. But I think... I think all the other printings are the same. 5th edition, Legions, and then 10 and 11 with a reprint in Mystery Boosters. Yeah. There is one other printing of White Knight that kind of in a dual deck that doesn't really count. And of note, I said it for Black Knight at the time, but these two cards, this pairing, are also available in old frame original art foil. Nice. If you like that sort of thing from Friday Night Magic uh, prizes. And they look really pretty. So if you if you have affinity for these cards, is on the short list of things that you can get in their alpha aesthetic in foil. Yeah, so it, it is a little surprising. If you'd asked me how much White Knight had been printed, especially after looking at a whole bunch of other cards like, I don't know, Warp Artifact, for example, I would have thought it was more than this, but we had lots of options. Because of how popular the knights were, both as a trope and in practice, we got lots more variants. What do you think about this alpha art for White Knight, Steve? Does it resonate with you? It never has with me. It's too flat. It's too two-dimensional. The 
the head of the horse looks like it's on the same plane as the the building in the background. That's interesting. I've never really analyzed and thought about this card in terms of its art too much. I think it's serviceable. Um, it always looked a little yeah. bit like a like a canvas painting to me, like a, a tapestry or something. That's a good way of putting it. It does feel like that. It feels a little tapestry-like. This one by Dan Gillan, who, as we discussed before, hasn't done too many cards, but did some real bangers in the early days, like Lich, Demonic Attorney, yes. <laughs> Love those. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Any other thoughts on White Knight? Nope. All right. From another white card, we get White Ward. Uh, I don't think we have much to add about Wait. White Ward that we haven't said already, Wait. except I want to reiterate that this card is the reason why auras frequently, yes. for years after, <laughs> have the language that this does not remove this, itself or whatever. This card is not only the worst card in the set, it's also the most dysfunctional. <laughs> Inherently dysfunctional. <laughs> I mean, it's, um, it's not as bad as Lich, which okay. in the alpha ruling should just cause you to lose the game, <laughs> right? But as we've already discussed, this card does not actually work <laughs> in the alpha rules. And in fact, it doesn't work until... It's, the first time it's printed in a version that actually works is in 4th edition. Stunning. And and the reason for that is that it grants protection. And one of the things that protection grants is that you can't be enchanted. So if you cast this on a creature, it should immediately go to your graveyard. <laughs> it should resolve and then, as a state-based effect, go to your graveyard. And that's why... In the Oracle wording, the, the wording is Enchanted Creature has protection from white. This effect doesn't remove white ward. It's also the reason why all the other wards and anything else that grants protection in an aura fashion have that extra language that it doesn't remove this itself. Yeah. Comically, have you ever read the fourth edition printed text of this it's card, It's some ex- extreme... Like, it basically explains <laughs> that it doesn't destroy itself, but go ahead. <laughs> That's right. It says the protection granted by White Ward does not destroy White Ward, yeah. <laughs> which is fantastic because even that is not good explanatory language no. because destruction is not what's happening in the case of protection, yes. which is hilarious. Oh, yeah. So even though they, they tried, they right. still failed. They failed. Yeah, it's the worst <laughs> card in the set, and also the worst. <laughs> I mean, I I think I'll put it over Lich simply because it's strongly inferred from Lich that you're not supposed to die. <laughs> That's true. I mean, yeah, I would argue it's strongly inferred here, too. But the bigger factor for me is that Lich has so much more upside. Like, true. Lich has game-winning upside, whereas this is just... Garbage. Now I've got a creature that can't get plowed. Pure garbage. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah is this yeah. really the worst ward, or is Blue blue Ward wor- worse? I mean, if they're functioning properly yes. with the proper rules interpretations, I would argue that Blue Ward is okay. the worst. Yeah. Yeah. And because of plow, right? Yeah. And if you wanna if you wanna finagle the alpha context a little bit, I don't know if this this intersection of realities is ever really true, but White's ward would ostensibly protect you from balance, yes. right? The way it does. For so Black you could Knight. put this so, on a I I take that back. It's actually playable because you could put it on an enchantress. Sure. Sure. Yeah, in that context it would be pretty passable. Right. Draw a card. It's still pretty darn bad, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's still pretty bad. Yeah. This next card is not bad, no. though, and that is Wild Growth. Holy moly. G for an enchant land. When tapped, target land provides one green mana in addition to the mana it normally provides. So... This card is pretty potent. Yes. It's it's an enchant land, 
which means you can put it on a mountain, you can put it on whatever, right? You have a black lotus mm-hmm. or a, an emerald, you can put it on any land, um, which is different from Utopia Sprawl, which is a more modern version of this iteration of this card, right? which is Enchant Forest. A few of these variants have been Enchant Forest. I don't remember how many, but some of them have. So there's so many things to say about this. The first thing I want to say about this card is the first time I really I picked up alpha versions of this, Kevin, is because... Mm-hmm. We held, I organized a local legacy tournament at uh, the Soldiery in Columbus in anticipation of a big Columbus legacy GP, circa 2010. And in our 25-player event, uh, a local Matt Kranstruber won the event with Enchantress using Wild Growth and Utopia Sprawls and nice. Solitary Confinements and, you know, Argothian Enchantress, so on and so forth. I was like, wow, that's broken. I'm going to pick up some of these in alpha so I can build that deck. And that has, so that was the first time I, I got to use as I built that deck. I more recently put this in my alpha 40 deck, not league deck, but broken alpha 40 deck, where I have five channels and five fireballs. And so, yeah, it's pretty good. Yes. There. So what you really want to do is just turn one forest. Well, if you don't have Lotus or Emerald, and I only have one of each in alpha. <laughs> You want to go turn one forest and put a wild growth on it. Turn two, play a mountain. Uh, channel, play a soul ring. Fireball is the goal. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's quite good <laughs> in that context because it can get you a pretty consistent turn two kill and a 40-card deck with five channels and five fireballs. Quite nice. Um, yes. One of the things that you're that you're observing there is something that you don't get a lesson in too much in magic anymore. And that is that yes, Moxen are broken and should have been excised from the game. Should never have been part of the game, but they should have been excised from the game and they properly were right. We only get them with more severe drawbacks these days, but an accelerant that functions like a Mox for only one mana is also still too good (laughs) for the game, right? There's actually comparatively few of them. Think about it. How many mana rocks cost just one mana throughout the history of magic? There's actually fewer of those than there are zero mana rocks. There's Sol Ring and Mana Vault and then Springleaf Drum and then what's the fourth one, right? It's so difficult to answer that because there it's actually the rarest accelerant cost is one. We've got yeah. Rituals, but that's what one of the things that makes these wild growth and similar effects so subtly powerful is that... <laughs> Tinderwall, there you go. Is that um, it, it, recurring... Mana production is still yeah. undercosted at one mana. Two mana is the proper cost for it. And even then, it's really good and good enough to be a staple in EDH. This card is underappreciated. Yes. And I would argue underplayed. So, the CEDH community has, has caught on to this. That It's a staple in that format. Was this played in five and color? I think it's rightly so. Not that I can recall. Should no. it have been? Part of, that, uh, uh, part of that is because five color had you know color requirement challenges right and and back then our mana was not as good five color like kind of the format kind of fell apart with the printing of fetch lands and so you got to appreciate that the best the heyday of five color was pre fetch lands and that means that it was so much kind of fell apart you kind of didn't play spells yeah you kind of didn't play spells that cost gg in that format just to begin with with some few exceptions, channel was played occasionally. So there wasn't much impetus to play wild growth. And if you did, it didn't help you cast contract from below or 
mana drain, you know, like it, it wasn't in the right spot because because five color, unlike EDH, five color wasn't about going big. Five color was about being efficient. So anyway, I digress. Uh, so no, it wasn't really played in five color, but it is a staple in competitive EDH today where they are incentivized to be as efficient in mana generating generating as possible in this card. And and green is a dominant color. Um, I wanted to just make a, mo- a note about, since I've played with this so much, I wanted to just say a couple of things about tactics with this. So you would think that the goal is just to load up a single land with this so you can just, you know, tap it for 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 a fire big fireball right. or whatever but not only is there just you know enough like you don't want to get chaos your land chaos orbed and whatever destroyed but there sure. but there are reasons actually not to load up the land the same land so let me explain how this can sometimes unfold suppose you okay you open with forest and you wild growth right and on turn two you want you need to tap the forest that has wild growth on it to play more wild growths well, to get the mm-hmm. most benefit out of that, you need to actually put the second wild growth on a different land. So if you wild growth a second wild growth on the land that you tapped that already has a wild growth, you can't use it immediately. So it's in that sense, it becomes something that you're investing in, in for the future as opposed to something you can immediately use, like a soul ring, right? And so you want it to use it, you want to use it like a soul ring where you can put it on something and it's mana it it mana neutral it, it's a no net loss that turn but it's a nice little yeah. investment going forward so there are these kind of yeah. like patterns where you'll be laddering um wild growths if you play more than a few on opposite lands over the course of the game so i just wanted to yeah. point that out it's kind of a weird thing yeah, it makes sense it's the the best possible world is when it's mana transparent the turn you play it and all upside thereafter yeah yeah, there's a reason why this card isn't printed anymore. It was in the base sets, the core sets, up till 7th edition, with a stop-off in Ice Age as well. So it's got one auxiliary printing, and then never again. It's been reprinted in the Mystery Boosters, but 7th edition is the last printing of this. Thankfully, it's not legal in Modern. I think it would be actually pretty impactful in Modern. And I think, as I said, that the card is simply underappreciated. I believe that the reason it stopped being printed is... It's it's debatable because it's not like it was dominating standard in the, the intervening periods of the 4th, 5th, and 6th edition. But I actually think by today's standards, it's too good. Standard has demonstrated that Llanowar Elves is a very dangerous printing and can lead to some some undesirable results in the last couple of years. The one-mana accelerants are just really dangerous for standard. I'm, I think the days of seeing wild growth printed in a in a standard set are possibly behind us. Although I wouldn't be surprised to see it printed in more commander products. It was actually in what was the, the printing that is in the mystery boosters is actually a reprint of the commander product from what year is that? C18. I like wild growth and it's a shame that I, I mean, I definitely cast it in my youth and my revised eras didn't really appreciate what it was really doing for me. I didn't appreciate mana acceleration very much back then. And now I am in an environment where it's not really part of the magic that I play, basically. I don't play Alpha 40. I don't play CEDH. But I do think this card is underappreciated in regular EDH. So any of our audience out there, especially think about a green-based deck you have with a three-mana commander. Azusa, Rada, things like this. The uh, The notion of playing 
your three mana commander on turn two is it's pretty hard to pull off sans soul ring and this is one of the ways you can do it so steve would you describe this card as very good in alpha league uh i wouldn't say very good i think lanowar elves is probably a bit better um Sure. It really depends. It depends on how you know. The, the weird thing about it, Kevin, is it might be better. <laughs> it might be better in just pure Alpha Forty, where people are just trying to do the most broken thing possible, than in Alpha League. Sure. Because for two sure. reasons, one is that in Alpha League, um, there are a bit more land destruction. Sinkhole is moderated, so people play Sinkhole and Stone Rain and Ice Ice Storm more than they do when you can combo out on turn two or three or four. Um, sure. The other thing is that, uh, well, the, the the flip side of that is there's probably more chaos orb in in um, there's a lot more chaos orb. I mean, in in just Alpha Forty <laughs> rather than Alpha League. Um, but I think the ability to get the imme- mana out of it immediately is really the difference, and that makes it just much better than Lanowar Elves. Whereas in League, yeah. Lanowar Elves is one of the best creatures in the format. So I think yeah that one that point of power makes a big difference. It really does. But in in uh Alpha 40, you can't rely on getting the turn back. Now, most of the decks are a little, you know, they're not horribly broken, but it's not uncommon. <laughs> it's not uncommon for a player to have two ancestrals or two time walks or something like that. You know, I mean, it's not out of sure. the <laughs> realm of possibility. And people yeah. have four or five uh-huh. soul rings. You know, I have four soul. Alpha 40 is a sprint. Yes. <laughs> Alpha League is a little bit more of a marathon. Right, where where the wild growth is just better. So I think it's weird that uh, situationally unusual where wild growth is better in Alpha 40 and Lanowar Elves is better in Alpha League. Interesting. I like that analysis. This is Mark Poole art in the limited edition context, and I, I have two minds about it. One is I really enjoy it. It's pretty. It's got some fun colors. And if you look close, it's got some fun things to look at. You know, there's a, a stripey, a stripey bug and a bug with strangely shaped wings. It's pretty. At the same time, it's not nearly wild enough for my taste. Oh. Like I would oh. not describe this as wild growth. This is just this is just growth. Tepid, you know, <laughs> this is just growth. This is just to be expected nature. growth. You know, it's not nearly wild enough for me. <laughs> I love this piece of art. I love the. It, you know, you know, we know we don't get a lot of an alpha is a lot of insects. In the point. art. And so I love the fact that there's a pollinating bee, it looks like, in the foreground. Um, I think that's more of a fantasy bee. It's got like a yeah, curly tail. Yeah. But it's still, a pollinating right. insect. <laughs> and then you have another a bird and an insect. And then you've got these, I don't know, gourds hanging. <laughs> or the, sorry, they're flowers. And those, those look like they're bl- you know, tulip style yeah. buds. Yeah. Look, there's a lot to love about this art. I'm yeah. right there with you. The, the palette's great. Yes. The, the forest behind it is dense, yes. right? So it's they're very nature-focused and very nature-evocative. At the same time, if you, were to, if you were to just hand me this art, I would never describe this as wild growth. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> uh, back... No, maybe I'm, maybe I'm over-indexing on the word wild too much. I'm, I'm taking it to mean, like, um, outsized, you know... It, unexpected growth <laughs> but it's the other reading of the word wild is simply that it is um un uncurated yeah undomesticated you know? <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah it's not a garden it's out in nature i think you're yeah, right this is a, so native native growth is a i think a, a reasonable reading of the title and with this evokes that much better fair enough yeah i think that's a fair criticism but i love this piece I mean, of art it, i think mark pool did a yeah, phenomenal c- job here I do too. I this is the sort of art. You know, Mark Poole is great. I love almost everything he's done, especially in the early days. At the same time, I would love to have seen this given to the Foglios. 
<laughs> they they could have done some wild growth. <laughs> All right, what about what else about wild growth, Steve? I think we covered the cover. I mean, there are there other places that you can think of besides Enchantress or Alpha where this is playable. <laughs> um, I've in my day I've seen decks that engage in untapping of lands oh yeah abuse this right so lay druid. you got your lay druids early on but then you get your candle operas then later on you get your um, frantic searches right so if you're in the business of doing that then i've seen that done a few times in casual decks over the years nothing majorly competitive though it really was a stroke of brilliance to to i mean verdure and enchantress in this are just highly synergistic oh yeah yeah Oh, that reminds me. Yeah, the uh, the EDH general Estrid. This is fantastic. If you're not playing Wild Growth in your Estrid deck, you should start. All right, we're we're getting near the end here, Steve. Next is Will of the Wisp, which we've already mostly talked about. B for a summon Will of the Wisp, which is a great creature type, but it's no longer that. Flying regenerates for black zero one. And we just finished talking about how this is a an honorary wall in the set. <laughs> it was originally a green card in Gamma. What else about Will of the Wisp? I mean, uh, it's very efficient, right? Incredibly efficient, incredibly annoying to deal with. Um, <laughs> it's interesting. If you're playing like a Pestilence deck, this can be very useful in a Pestilence deck. Wipe out your opponents. This survives. I, I don't oh, yeah. know if it's better than Drudge Skeletons in that, but it's it's quite good. And with a single Bad Moon in play, this begins. This is an evasive offensive you know, Scrib Sprite just starts pecking at your opponent. I I think this card is notable, less so for its strategic applications. And this, I know this was printed through Revised. Was it still in 4th edition? Yeah. But I think this card's notoriety is almost entirely derived from its the aesthetics and thematic here, the flavor that this card evokes. It's so powerful. Is a flavor card. Uh, yeah, I am... Um... I've always been drawn to this art. It's very subtle. That's the word. It 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 draws you in. It's subtle in, in, yeah. in a way. Yeah, it's subtle, but it's um, yeah. They're mysterious. They're so mysterious. Yeah. What is a will o' the wisp? I mean, you know, it's some critter, but you don't know exactly mm-hmm. what it looks like, and it's it's enigmatic, and that that mystery about it makes it alluring. It's just these these lights out in the bog, <laughs> you know. <laughs> It's it's a, just a really cool card, and the limited edition version comes with a quote from Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, Always which a I will plus. quote now: "About about in real and route, the death fires danced at night. The water, like a witch's oils, burnt green and blue and white, <laughs> which works with the art so perfectly." Well. Yeah, yeah. This card really is just kind of the whole package, right? It's an efficient card. It's 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 impactful, but it's cheap. It's beautiful. Um, it just kind of has a little bit of everything. Yeah, if you... It's just not very often game-winning. If this card had been one black and just been called Mosquitoes, I don't think it would be quite as appealing <laughs> as it is, right? Like, just... Exactly, yes. It's, yeah. it's... I'm glad they replaced the type. Yeah. Oh, speaking of the type, this was on a short list of famous type lines that went through several derivations throughout the years. It's noteworthy that in the limited edition printings of the card, it says summon will o the wisp, which is all hyphenated, right? That type line persisted all the way through its fourth edition printing. In fourth edition, it still summoned will o the wisp. These days, it's a spirit, but it's got one of those great type lines. And there was a point at, at which magic rules 
parsed every word in a type line creature's type line as a different discrete type. And so there was a point at which this card had technically four creature types. Oh my Will, God. Will, oh, the, wisp. Yeah. <laughs> now that didn't live very long, but but there was some this some weird history and I, I would it would be difficult for me to find that whole progression of history but there's some some funny stuff that happened with creature types over the years unfortunately this has just been simplified to a spirit which i think is accurate but way less fun my favorite and in my opinion the pinnacle of that phenomenon was people of the woods which the, the original creature type was just people of the woods <laughs> for some reason uh, and also a drew tucker one yeah, I love me some Will of the Wisps. Unfortunately, I never owned a nice black bordered version. I bet they're pretty expensive. Yeah, aren't they? unfortunately, it's a rare. Yeah. yeah, and it's a cool card. Yeah, one of these days, maybe I'll invest in a well, an FBB one wouldn't be bad, but it just doesn't have the same cachet no. to me as the as the Alpha. And beta. the art doesn't isn't it's quite so as cool. immersive. That's true. They crushed the colors a little bit in FBB in a way that's less much less satisfying. It's that's less gauzy. It's more crisp. Yeah. Yeah. Well, love this card. It was so it was printed in up through fourth edition, and then the only other set defining version is ninth edition, which is funny. So weird. Then it was an M twenty five and mystery boosters. The M twenty five versions and mystery boosters with new art. That is great art. And I, <laughs> this is another example where I would say if this newer art from ninth edition had been in a limited edition, I would probably still love the card as much. Mm-hmm. That's also great art. I think one of them, but it's a little more. One of Go the ahead. most fun aspects of listening to the show, it you know, almost thirty years removed from <laughs> from the origin of magic, is going to be just listening to the reprint patterns, the the wildly divergent <laughs> reprint patterns on these cards. It's just wild. It's so different and so inexplicable. The pathways, it's like the journeys these cards have taken is just <laughs> incredible. Yeah, completely agree. And to bolster that point, I've never noticed before. I, I'm not the sort of person who reads every new flavor text when new cards come out. But the was it the ninth edition or was it the M25 edition? Hold on. Yeah, so ninth edition has new art, which is a much more green and brown and black, but still has the Will of the Wisps floating around in the distance. It's still quite good, I as I said. That same art was used again for masters 25 but they added flavor text that didn't exist in um ninth edition and it's magic lore focused flavor text about liliana and her family which now that i've read it is actually really wonderful and grim it says on dark nights you can still see the light of the vest girl's lantern out in the caligo seeking her lost brother those who follow are doomed to join her endless search which is fantastic and a nice insight into both Liliana's character and her, her progression and her motivation throughout the story, which I think is fantastic. That's really neat. I never knew that they did that. Added a vest specific flavor text to the updated will of the wisp. Anything else on will of the wisp, nope. Steve? Well, this next one is another one. So we're at the end of these. We've talked about almost all these cards at length in other contexts, but then here we at are at winter orb. For two mana, you get a continuous artifact that says players can untap only one land each during untap phase. Creatures and artifacts are untapped as normal. Well, Steve, we've already talked about this card in a number of contexts, right? The tapping of things like um, Icy Manipulator and Twiddle, the fact that continuous artifacts on the rules of Alpha and for years thereafter 
turn off when they're tapped and how this card um, retained that functionality as the rules were changed in a way that other cards did not quite perplexingly right yeah and how formative winter orb has been to constructed magic in several contexts throughout the years yes what else do you want to add well i would just remind everyone that it wasn't until a few years ago that they fixed the does not you know is not operational as long as it's uh (laughs) right and that was a very important what they the way that wizards did that is they printed a new version of it i think for magic online with the updated text so it's a that's right it was the it was the master's edition one version on magic online that was the first one to begin with as long as winter orb is untapped yeah and so that was you know that's how they got around the rules changes i mean that's the loophole on power on power level errata or keeping original functionality is they can just at any time wizards can reprint a card with updated text (laughs) and fix it you know um yeah I have to say, on terms of the... So, this card is incredibly important. I think I've talked about all the ways it's important in the earlier... When we talked about sure. Howlingmon and so on. It's probably the most mm-hmm. important two-mana artifact in the entire set. Even more than Howlingmon, because of its role... is a formative role in, in prison decks um, with IC. Sure. I would buy that. But the thing that I want to say is that the art is both immensely uh, appealing and just totally unsatisfying. <laughs> I on the one hand I just never really cared for this art. It just appears to be polar bear polar bears on the, you know, growling over the carcass of some, you know, carcasses on a bloodied uh, you know, I guess a bloodied and very snowy beach where this weird yeah. w- orb is floating over, you know, over these two bears. Well, you're totally accurate about that. One thing I've always disliked about this art is that the shading on the fur of the foreground bear as it approaches the orb yeah. gets darker and also is curved and articulated in a way that almost matches the curve of the orb yes. in a way that, has, to my eye, has always rendered the thing two-dimensional as though the orb was just kind of sticking into the side yeah. of the bear. When I'm pretty confident it's meant the orb is meant to be in the foreground, maybe even closer to the viewer than the bear, right? And the bear is reacting to the orb, but it's always kind of just looked to me like the orb was stuck to the side of the bear. And it's, I can't unsee that, unfortunately. Yeah, th- there's a lot of problems with this piece of art. And I think that the problems <laughs> only become more obvious when you juxtapose it with the Brian Snoddy reprint art, which is a pretty good piece <laughs> of art, in my opinion. It's well, a bit computer generated ish. It's not quite as fantasy rendered yeah. as I'd hope, but I, I like it much more. Well, I, I agree. The new art does a thing with the orb, making it look made out of ice that I find just very beautiful. It's a it's a bit of a digital effect, as you said, but at the same time, it's really super satisfying to see the frozen orb floating there in a way that is almost photoreal and that uh, Mark Tadeen. It's not part of Mark Tadine's style to render an orb like that. It makes me suspend disbelief a little bit more to look past what the heck an orb does to your lands. (laughs) I mean, obviously, the implication is simply that it's freezing your lands. It's it's making making your lands not function properly because you're in in an ice age. At the same time, I've never really understood why, if that's the case, the original art is depicting polar bears. Yeah. Like... If your if your lands 
are habitable to polar bears, then they were functioning normally as is. Well, the other thing is I mean, the, the polar bears seem to be <laughs> signaling a winter environment, but that's not what polar that's not what polar bears actually signal. Polar bears signal northern, uh, not climate, but northern uh, direction, <laughs> geography. Yeah. So yeah. that's I think a fundamental flaw in the concept. <laughs> a little bit of a, yeah, a little bit of a top-down fail. Um, in this, I agree, in this alpha art. But at the same time, the concept of a winter orb, um, you know... If Latitudes. Imparting winter onto your land, at least, makes a little bit of sense to me. So in a sense, I feel similarly to how I felt about Warp Artifact. I don't feel like the art... I don't feel like the, the components of the card are all in agreement. At the same time, the card is so powerful and omnipresent over the years that um, it still has a powerful effect on me seeing it yeah. just at face value. That's fair. There's something monolithic about the composition of the art, how it, it draws your eye up and down the vertical plane with the shape of the bear and the bear's arching back that I've always just kind of encoded that as this card and this effect in my mind. Is this how the card worked in uh, in Gamma? Oh, yes. The card is basically unchanged from Gamma. It was a two-mana artifact, which has a clunky wording. A player may only untap one land at the start of their turn, parentheses, and must if possible. <laughs> Which is funny. It's basically, it's the same effect, yeah. Nice. Yeah, this card was just hugely impactful to me at a number of early points in my experience with the game. Uh, and it's funny because I've kind of come from full circle a little bit. When you're a casual player just exploring the game and you don't have access to four of rares, you don't, you know, you're building some modest synergy decks, right? It's actually really hard to build a good winter orb deck when you've just got a half dozen packs and a starter or two. Maybe you open an IC or two. Maybe you've got some synergies. Maybe you, you've got a good, nice combination. But at the same time, a lot of players that I, well, a lot of contexts in which I saw Winter Orm implemented in my early years were just people throwing it into a deck because they wanted to see what happened and, I don't know, liked the effect and figured they could, you know, lean it in their favor in some games and sometimes they wouldn't cast it <laughs> or sometimes they cast it and they shouldn't have. But either way, it was never really well implemented and always mostly a feel bad for me in my early casual days. Well, then I went for a long time without ever seeing it. I always knew about it. I had several copies by then in my college years and such. And then some tournament decks came around and I never wanted to play against any of those. And now the only context in which I really encounter this card is potentially in EDH, where it is definitely a a poster child for griefer strategies. Yeah. Like, oh, <laughs> you're the one playing Winter Orb, huh? Thanks a lot. You know, it's it's representative, it's symbolic of all the things that people don't want to frequently don't want to be in their EDH games, which is mana denial. I I just want to say that I think I said this already, but I think that Winter Orb has an outsized role in the history of of magic. Um because of the IC Winter Orb combination, it's the beginning of stacks. I mean, in the early versions of stacks, they even used Workshop and Winter Orb to try and break symmetry. You know, so there were yes. You could also use uh, Relic Barrier. You know. Yep. Yep. And I, I played. Well, I played an old school deck based on that kind of construction. Although I didn't technically have Winter Orb in it, I was using Living Lands and Tabernacle. But yeah, and it's a thing in old school in certain variations of Staxy decks in old school, is it not? Say that one more time. There are Staxi decks in old school that use yes, I had a, I've had great fun with Winter Orb in ninety three ninety four. It's I mean you can build you have ample tools, you know, with uh, Tabernacle <laughs> yeah. and Ices, uh, and Power Sync. It's it's great fun. Yeah. Well, anything else on Winter Orb, Steve? Great card. 
Let's go from one that's great to one that's not so great. <laughs> Wooden sphere. Well, we've, we've already covered the charms pretty pretty closely. So. <laughs> that's right. Uh, the only thing I would add about wooden sphere is that the art is incredibly evocative of a wooden sphere. <laughs> there you go. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's two consecutive cards that ironically in the alphabet go next to each other, winter and wooden. But in both cases, Mark Tadine has effectively evoked an orb with his Ripley style. Um, you know, Mark was the go-to person for evoking Ripley orbs in the early days, and he's done it again here. <laughs> Is this the worst of the charms? Probably. <laughs> didn't we? Didn't we rank them? Already rank them? I already forgot. If we, I think we ranked them, and yeah, I think this one's. I think this one's scraping the bottom of the barrel. I don't know. You could make a case that the white one's worse, just because green is the color that tends to have more mana. So you could expect to get more out of a wooden sphere than a ivory cup. Over the course of a game, just because green makes more. <laughs> Every time it. we talk about him, I just can't help but think about Lucky yeah. Charms. It's like <laughs> my <laughs> horseshoes, Lucky Horseshoes, and <laughs> uh, silly. Well, and I just want to reiterate my my complete dumbfoundedness that this card was printed in fourth, fifth, sixth, <laughs> seventh, and. 8th edition. It's legal and modern for some reason. <laughs> yeah, these cards. Like, this is this is a textbook comparison as, a, as opposed to something like Wheel of Fortune <laughs> or White Knight, right? I mean, this, these cards really overstayed their welcome. All right, let's talk about a card that's much more fun. Yeah, before we do that, just in the um, original iteration of them, they were much more broken, though. <laughs> or at least as they were interpreted. Oh, granted. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I might consider playing one these days if I could do it the way it does yeah. when we do an Alpha League. All right, let's talk about a card that's way more fun, and that is Word of Command. I'm going to read this, and it's going to be partially incomprehensible. <laughs> Blackback for an instant. You may look at opponent's hand and choose any card opponent can legally play using mana from his or her mana pool or lands. Opponent must play this card immediately. You make all the decisions it calls for. The spell may not be countered after you have looked at... I'm sorry, this spell may not be countered after you have looked at opponent's hand. There's all manner of colloquial language <laughs> yeah. going on here. And they just they just really could not solve it, yeah. right? There is an oracle wording, which I would argue is an improvement, but they just couldn't really get to the way that this card was i think designed or intended to work i want to read the oracle wording by comparison look at target opponent's hand and choose a card from it now here's the thing that they they grafted onto this you control that player until word of command finishes resolving that's the key right there they're using the control the new control functionality the player plays that card if able. While doing so, the player can activate mana, mana abilities only if they're from lands that player controls and only if mana they produced is spent to activate <laughs> other mana abilities of lands the player controls and or to play that card. If the chosen card is cast as a spell, you control the player while the spell is resolving. I, 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 th- I think that's an improvement, but at the same time, it's just so hard to actually implement what this card was trying to do. Oh, what a mess. Um, let's just, let's, I, I, I want to dive into the text and try and analyze the gaps between the current Oracle and the discernible design, design intent to the extent that we can. <laughs> uh, but let me just say a couple, right. a couple things. The first is that this was a top down design. 
the cycle of five that we mm-hmm. mentioned before: Island Sanctuary, um, uh, Stasis, Sedge Troll, um, and Birds of Paradise. Um, so this is not going to be found in Gamma because it wasn't tested like that. The second thing I want to say is that this is the predecessor, at least thematically. This is the design space this card this card creates in limited edition is ultimately what creates space for cards like Mindslaver. And Mindslaver yep. plays an enormously important role in the history of vintage, where it was basically for a you know an, a very long period just one of the top tier decks in the format. So so that should not be overlooked in our discussion of this card. But right. but let's focus in let's focus before we get into both of those points. Let's just focus back on the text. So this the text has seven lines, um, one of which is just one word, um, and it has <laughs> it has f- four sentences. Right. Um, yeah. The last sentence in the text is basically just. I don't know, what do you call it? Strategic advice? Reminder text? <laughs> it's, yeah, the strategic reminder text. Yeah, I mean, like, the, it goes without saying. Once it starts it should resolving, go without you can't... Saying, <laughs> you can't counter a spell once you've started yeah. resolving it. Yeah. Right. Um, so the operative, the key operative language is basically the first two sentences. Sorry, this is only three sentences. Yeah. Um, the second one sentence is a very long yeah. one. Yeah. So the first sentence is you look at your opponent's hand and choose a card. An opponent could legally play. The, the the weird thing is what is meant by legally play first of all um taking <laughs> well it's connected to mana. it's connected to uh, yeah what they could cast with the mana they have available to yeah, them yeah but that's not what it says but anyway that's okay uh, yeah i think it's meant to be that like you can't look at their hand and choose force of nature when they've only got five right. lands for example right so you may look at an opponent's hand and choose any card an opponent can legally play using taking mana from his or her mana pool or land so if your opponent has already pooled mana, let's say they're in their first main phase, and you somehow get priority, like they play a spell, right? right. Like, oh, I don't know, Ancestral Recall, just to keep it simple. Mm-hmm. You could respond with Word of Command. If you're under Revised Edition rules, the Word of Command will resolve first. Mm-hmm. So you can look at their their hand and choose a card, and let's say they have a Lightning Bolt in their hand, Right. Um, you if they have a a red mana producing land like a volcanic island or a mountain or a taiga, you could tap it and cast lightning bolt on themselves, right, or a creature. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. it says opponent must play this card immediately. You make all decision it calls for. So all the decisions that can get very complicated if if there's like a, <laughs> a card that has lots of decision trees through resolution, like fork. So sure, sure. So that could be. So if your opponent Let's just continue that example. Your opponent has Ancestral Recall. Actually, if you play Word of Command in response, under 3rd edition rules and 1st edition rules, the interrupt window has closed. So you could not actually fork an Ancestral. Because... You also couldn't... Uh, because the... Yeah, you also couldn't counter their Ancestral with a card with a counter spell in their hand, no. could you? Now, under 1st edition rules, the, the Word of Command and the Ancestral would resolve simultaneously. Under 3rd edition rules, it's LIFO. Which means that you, yeah. it's last in first out. So you would resolve the word of command first, but you still couldn't. The interrupt window, I think, is closed under first edition rules. It's definitely closed. I'm not sure if that's true under third edition. Actually, under third edition rules, you might actually be able to play an interrupt at that point. If you're still allowed to add cards to the stack, 
I'd have to go back and read revised rules. <laughs> but it's possible you could. Under first edition, you definitely would not be able to. Um, so if they have an interrupt, I guess that's the thing, right? What if you want to play Word of Command because you want to cast one of their counter spells on their Ancestral? Now, it raises an obvious circularity, which is why wouldn't they just counter your Word of Command, <laughs> right? Um, that's a good question. So I think you'd have... Well, go um, it's very reasonable, though, if their counter spell is Red Elemental Blast. Very good point. That, there you go. <laughs> Great example. Mm-hmm. Um, right. So that would be an example of that. So under third edition rules, I let's just assume that you can continue to add to the stack. I'm not sure. I'd have to go back and look whether you can mid resolution of the stack add more spells. But I think that I I suspect that the way that both first and third edition rules work is that the interrupt window is closed. You can't add more to the stack once things start res- resolving. Although that that definitely I'm not sure that makes total sense. But I'm just not sure. I'm just not sure. <laughs> it's well it, it's so weird because so few so few of us play with interrupts anymore that it's you know it doesn't even come up <laughs> um so another example might be let's see your opponent has a creature in their main phase you could play a creature or a sorcery a good example might be like let's say they they're holding a wheel of fortune that they don't want to play right you could play yeah. the wheel of fortune or the time twister is probably even a better example um, that's the kind of card that, just, that would refill your hand. Another example, a very, a very potentially useful example would be if they have like a, a brain geyser or a fireball. Brain geyser would be the best possible scenario, right? Because they, they're <laughs> holding the brain geyser because they don't want to play brain geyser. Um, and you play word of command in their, let's say first main. Well, you'd have to get priority. So how would it work? It would be active player passes priority. You get priority, you cast Word of Command, you see that they have a Brain Geyser, you cast Brain Geyser on yourself, tapping them down. That's basically the best case scenario, right? Something like that. Well, I mean, the absolute best case scenario is you force them to play something that kill them actually kill them. Right. But that you um, couldn't do that with Necropotence. No, because that doesn't kill them until it's in play. Also, similarly, you can't do it with something like Channel, because that you don't control them after Channel has resolved. Yeah. But if there was something that allowed that that enabled you to pay an amount of life upon casting the spell, like fire covenant. There you go. Yes, like fire covenant, you could kill them with that. <laughs> okay, let's go back to the oracle text here. So, first step is looking and choosing. Second is you control that player. The player plays that card if able. While doing so, the player can activate mana abilities only if they're from lands that player controls. So you can't tap a land or elf. Um, and only if the mana they produce is spent yeah. to activate other mana abilities of lands the player controls. So you could filter mana into... You can't, You couldn't activate a Gilded Lotus here, or a Black Lotus, or a Mox, which is sad. Right. Um, but you could right. filter a land through, like, the Alliance... The Homelands lands, right? To get the right mm-hmm. color. Yep. yep. <laughs> it's a weird loophole. <laughs> that is... They really bent over backwards to narrow the source of mana in adherence with the original ruling or wording. And I find that original wording to be really strange. Like it's, in my opinion, entirely unnecessary. There's a lot of other mana sources in limited edition. Why did they just yeah, limit to it to lands? They did Well, did they really feel like it was too powerful so to make them tap their land or else? It doesn't though. That's the thing. It says using mana from his or her mana pool or lands. 
So if your opponent has... Right, but you can't make them tap a Llanowar Elf no, or a Mox No, but jet. if they've tapped a Mox Jet, you, you can <laughs> right. make them... You can use yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. Which I think is unavoidable. Like but I mean, that, the alternative to that is even more ridiculous. But that's not in the current Oracle, Kevin. Oh, it is. It is. It says, while doing so, the player can activate mana abilities only if they're from lands that player controls... And only if the mana produces spent to activate abilities of lands. But it doesn't cards. say anything so, yeah, about mana in the oracle. Pool, in the oracle. Oh, I see what you mean. Yes, that's well, the main uh, thing I wanted to point that's, out. I think it is true, but I think in this day and age, that is simply implied. You're controlling the player; they play the card. That's not while what it doing says. so. They have a limitation of what mana abilities they can activate. But that doesn't restrict you slash them from using mana in their pool. Okay, so you think it's, it's implied, implied by, by the sentence today. that says that player plays that card if able. Okay. Th- that's okay. right. Y- y- there's nothing that stops you or them from spending mana that's already in their pool. Okay. Just, you're, I think you're probably... You're right. It's not, it's not explicit. Yeah, it's it's not explicit, but it, I think it's implied by the rules today. Okay. Just like you don't have the last line about you can't counter this well, after they your that's, hand. I mean, that's also <laughs> implied by the rules. There's a mountain of ruling... <laughs> Rulings and Gatherer for this card. <laughs> you know, this card interacts in hilarious ways with the very, very short list of spells that have abilities while they're on the stack. Ooh. And so the, the, funniest exam- the funniest example is the card Lightning Storm from Cold Snap, which is a combo finisher in some modern combo decks. Uh, 1RR instant. Lightning Storm deals... X damage to any target, where X is three plus the number of charge counters on Lightning Storm. How does Lightning Storm and Instant receive charge counters, you might ask? Well, it has an ability. Discard a land card, colon, put two charge counters on Lightning Storm. (laughs) You may choose a new target for it. Any player may activate this ability, but only if Lightning Storm is on the stack. Oh! (laughs) When did that card come out? So you can work... Cold Snap. Okay. It's yeah. a ridiculous, ridiculous card. You can word of command them to cast Lightning Storm, and you continue to control them until it finishes resolving, which means you can make them discard lands God. to amplify its effect <laughs> and then target themselves with it. I have not seen many uh, cards, funny. Kevin, that actually use in the rules text the word the stack. This is extremely rare. There, there are only two cards in in magic that have abilities while they're on the stack as far as i know there's a third card that references the stack and that's caravix torch yeah which says as long as caravix torch is on the stack spells that target it costs two more to cast but it's just lightning storm and torrent of lava they have the phrase on on the stack wow yeah wow um it's a very niche effect in magic and for good reason. So, just to be clear <laughs> though, if you play this on your opponent and they have brain freeze and you decide to cast brain freeze the, the mm-hmm. storm resolutions are separate copies and you will not control them. That is a really good point. And I think the answer... Hold on, wait, wait, wait. Hold on. The, because word of command says you control that player until word of command finishes resolving. So you are correct. Word of command would be done resolving by the time the storm triggers from a storm spell went to resolve. Well, because right? well, storm Bra- triggers brain, resolve before the main Storm spell, doesn't trigger... Though. No, that they resolve before yeah. it, but they don't go onto the stack until you finished announcing the the original spell. It, once you finished announcing brain freeze in this scenario, yeah. word of command would be done resolving. Word of command would go to the graveyard, and then a storm trigger would go onto the stack. Let's walk through that carefully. So your conclusion Let's walk is through correct. that step by step. 
So you cast Word of Command. <laughs> sure. You select, mm-hmm. you look at your opponent's hand, and you select Brain Freeze. You tap two lands, you cast Brain Freeze, targeting, let's say you're, you have your opponent target themselves. Sure. Brain Freeze, sorry, you announce it, you announce the target, Brain Freeze then begins resolving. At that point, uh, no, you, you, sorry. You've skipped ahead there. You've skipped yeah, ahead. Go ahead. Once you've completed an announcement of Brain Freeze, it goes onto the stack. Yes. At which point, Word of Command has finished resolving. Okay. And then... Because you've successfully announced the so, that spell. So, it, with the point at which you, in, you put it on the stack... Well, first of all, you go on the stack, and then... Oh. Hold on. The, tr- the, the storm trigger actually will go on the stack immediately. <laughs> Wait, you, I'm sorry. You're right. I'm, I'm skipping a whole section. The last words in Word of Command's Oracle text are... Uh, if the chosen card is cast as a spell, you control the player while that spell is resolving. So you actually do control so, the storm triggers because they well, resolve but, first. But that's the thing is, you control the player until word of command <laughs> is done resolving, yeah. and then word of command sets up, I guess, a delayed yeah. effect, and I don't know how to explain yeah. this, but then you would control them again <laughs> once the spell you chose was yeah. resolving. That seems totally... But there's an intervening period. That seems totally the what, opposite what, of the actual text of the Alpha Beta Unlimited card, but that appears to be in the Oracle. Uh, yeah, yeah, and I think that's because... Oh, geez, this is really interesting. You're right. The thing is, there's two separate timelines yes. of control. <laughs> yeah. Like, casting, <laughs> announcing the spell, periods. you control them then... And then resolving the spell, you control them then. But anything that happens between those things, like Storm, like any trigger on casting, you wouldn't control them in the period between which you've announced the spell and it resolves. Well, So your opponent would get priority and they would not be controlled by you while the spell they, they personally announced was just sitting on the stack. Like, it's, well, it's their main phase... And, and no, here's the thing. Let me just simplify. You, Hold on a second. Hold on. Sure. Let's get to the nut of this. So when you when you cast <laughs> a storm spell, the storm spell, the trigger for storm goes on the stack immediately and resolves. But the, the storm trigger has to resolve before this before the the original uh, spell begins to resolve, which means that y- and yes, those triggers but. since they go on the stack le- later actually resolve first. So Flusterstorm, Brain Freeze, and Tendrils and Mind's Desire copies resolve before the original spell, which means that... (laughs) Look, I'm with you. Hold on, hold on. But the key key part is that by the moment, at the moment, when a Storm Trigger would go on the stack, you are not controlling that player. I agree agree that you're not controlling the player. Well, I know I agree that you're Mm -hmm. not controlling the player in the sense that under the clause, the second sentence, which says that Word of Command is finished resolving, the problem is this last sentence which says that if the chosen card is cast as a spell, you control the player while the spell is resolving. The problem is the spell that you've selected has not finished resolving, so it's technically still resolving, well, right? No, no, hold on. That's the, that's the trick. It, has, it also has not started resolving. So It hasn't oh, started or so stopped there's resolving. Actually it's a not gap. resolving. So you, that's oh my, my point. God. Yes, there's a period at which <laughs> you are not controlling them and the spell has been successfully announced but is not yet resolving. And then you go... So you don't... When when the storm trigger goes onto the stack, you're in that intervening well, you're period. Them. You're not controlling and them, you, and they get to choose all the choices for the and storm triggers and all them the copies. Again. So it's not a continuous <laughs> period of control. That's so weird. <laughs> well, and so that is it's that's still true even with a non-storm spell, right? That has a so trigger. for example, just it, 
with the ancestral and lightning bolt example. Like, they ancestral on their main phase. You word of command them in response. You choose lightning bolt in their hand. You tap their mountain. You announce lightning bolt targeting them. Then word of command is done resolving, and they get priority yes. again with their lightning bolt Outside targeting them control. on the stack. Yeah. And yeah. then as soon as they, if they pass and lightning so, bolt goes to resolve, then you happen to be controlling them during resolution of that lightning bolt, but there's no choices to be made. Yeah. So it's a it's a generally a relevant control period, but I suppose it, it's I mean it's relevant when there are choices to be made on resolution for yes. spells, of which there are many many such spells. Yeah. It's just it storms a bad example. Storm is not choices you're making on resolution of the spell. It's a trigger based on announcement, you, so which doesn't apply you can to imagine word of if, command. So here's the thing. Here's the one possible inference. Look at, hold on, Kevin. Look at Limduel's vault. Okay. Yeah, Limduel's vault's point. a great example. Yeah. Yeah, with Limdul's can, Vault, you can just choose to let them kill themselves. They can just go until they yeah, die. Yeah, you can keep making decisions. Because um, because that the choice is all on resolution. Doomsday. You cast Doomsday. You cast this on... They you, they play Doomsday. Oh, yeah. You can just make them fail yeah. a find and exile their whole library. Yeah. Um, but here's, here's something I want to point out, though. The alpha text... <laughs> the oracle... The alpha text is open enough that you could have different oracle versions of this because it doesn't the alpha text clearly the limited edition text clearly does not contemplate (laughs) spells with triggers right that's the thing i mean it 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 should have but it it didn't didn't. which means that a plausible reading is that it could encompass spells and all of their triggers i suppose so but when you think about it the the alpha wording only gives you two it gives you just a couple of discrete actions you look at their hand that's not very interesting you choose a card yes. um they play it and you choose how the mana happens but basically they have to play it and then and then you make well, all here's the choices the, here's the key word. Now, th- yeah. that making all the choices bit is the real open ended part yes. but like it doesn't use the I, I wanna, word i want to just toss in the words decisions it calls well, for okay, no, but no, but I just <laughs> I know, so, I know. Yeah, it does four but things. Let's, let's yeah. add in, let's add in a throne of bone though. That's that's the <laughs> alpha. That's the alpha thing though. Is if 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 they have a throne of bone and you make them cast a let's call it a dark ritual. Yeah. You make them cast a black spell. You wouldn't control their decision on paying for a throne of bone. Well, it actually depends on how you template throne of bone. Uh yeah, well I grant that there's the, a universe well, where Throne of Bone could be com- more well, complicated than it in, already well, is. No, we, we, in, we covered this when we covered the first charm, but the Alpha League rule clarification for the charms mm-hmm. is that the mm-hmm. payment for the charms is an additional cost to play the spell. Oh, good grief! That's, that's I, I okay. know that that's not you know you're we we spent an hour and a half on that. <laughs> I know, but in, in that in that particular interpretation, yes. you're right. That strongly muddies the yeah. waters here with respect so, to this situation. So let me just summarize something you said. <laughs> There's four things that happen. You look at your ha- opponent's hand. Mm-hmm. You choose a card. You can tap and you can use mana or tap lands, and then you cast the spell. Oh, sorry, five things, and then you make all decisions related to the spell. The key ambiguity yes. is around decisions it calls for. And there's two ambiguities. Yeah. The first is around decisions, and the second is the word it. I would say that the word it actually <laughs> creates the most ambiguities here. Because the card... Fair. I mean, part of it is what we're talking about by card, right? I mean, these triggers, yeah. like kicker, well, we can assume that you can pay the kicker cost. That's obvious. I think it becomes a little bit muddier when you get into these things like Storm, right? Because 
They're separate copies, but yeah, the thing is, they're separate. They're not the card, right? But you could mm-hmm. imagine a world in which they're contemplated to be byproducts of the card, such that you know, well, you could, yeah, that that it's part of the decision tree set up by the card. <laughs> the word "it," I think, at a simplest reading, refers to the card, yeah. but it could very much refer to the act the holistic act of playing That's the card and I'm resolving it. You're very much yeah. right. Yes, it very, it very much could. Um, and the rules were not firm enough at, at the original stages to even differentiate between those things very much. I do think the Throne of Bones issue, you know, I, I don't agree with the Alpha League ruling on the thing, but regardless of whether or not it uses that particular language, it's still pretty ambiguous in the specifically Alpha context how you're meant to make choices related to a throne of bone because um adding the cost as part of the announcement of a spell i think is indefensible but at the same time it is entirely unclear thanks to the ambiguity you just cited whether or not making that choice is part of announcing slash resolving a spell in specifically the alpha context so let me tell you how i would argue that it is not but it's not rock solid yeah let me tell you how they have decided to um, handle this card in Alpha League. <laughs> <laughs> I'm certain that you'll probably disagree with some aspect of this, but... Well, there's a lot of roads this yeah, <laughs> There's two clarifications. The first is you cannot use sources of mana other than mana already in the pool or tapping lands, which means no artifacts or creatures can be used to pay these costs. That's a reasonable... Yeah, I don't... Cons- well, that's actually stated on the card. Yeah. I don't think that's a clarification at all. Fair enough. The second is you do not get to specify which specific mana and lands are used to cast the spell. Sorry, you do get to specify, but you may not okay, that's, yeah. tap additional lands which are not requisite to the ca- to cast the spell using the colors of mana you specified. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so um, using mana from his or her mana pool or lands. Yeah, that that last bit I think is actually a little bit of a reach but because I would argue that that is not actually specifically stated by the alpha wording. The the relevant sentence says, choose any card they can legally play using mana from his or her mana pool or lands. It's pretty open-ended as to as to what it means to tap mana to pay for a spell. Yeah. Like, you're, al- you're allowed to just tap yeah. all your lands and get a whole bunch of mana and then pick and choose, but yeah, I think there's a, f- a fair bit of design intent reading into that. I think I like I like it that you could tap your opponent down on a mana because it makes Word of Command more powerful and therefore more useful. <laughs> right? Well, that's I think that's unarguable. Yeah. I mean, at least even if you can't get a card, at least you got you know to mana short your opponent in that way. Yeah. I think I prefer it that yeah. way. Yeah, because like it or not, you're not guaranteed to get anything out of this spell. You might just look at their hand and say, oh. Yeah. You don't have anything you yep. can cast. How how did I know? What a great turn I chose to play this word of command. And let's also just not forget the simply that they can respond, right? Yeah. The kind of the worst case scenario here is you word of command them and they just respond with some instant that is both good for them and effectively stymies your word of command. Right. Which is the worst of all possible worlds. This card is awesome. I knew we were gonna have fun <laughs> talking about this. It's so cool. The art is well, you start with the art. Well, the art is, you know, I, I, to be perfectly honest, I don't know if this is apocryphal, but the art is just the eyes from Howling Mine. 
It's just ah. a black background with two narrow slits. But it's worth noting that the in Howling Mind, the eyes don't have uh, pupils. So it's not like a straight copy and paste. And this is Jesper Mirfors, and the Howling Mind is, of course, Mark Poole. But when push comes to shove, it's just the eyes from Howling Mind. <laughs> like, whether or not that's exactly the case or not, it it's still, that's what you see. So, I, I don't think I agree with that, but it doesn't matter. Um, it's a, <laughs> Well, that's why I'm saying it may not be literally true. So this is by far the most nondescript art in in limited edition. I think we can both agree on that, right? <laughs> this is just it's a it's a complete yep. void with two eyes uh, that are very mm-hmm. narrow, as you said, call them narrow slits. But here's the thing that's interesting about this art. So number one, there's been complaints that this is just lazy art that there's nothing here. This is not exactly a you know a stunning piece of art out of Alpha. You know, this probably be the least desirable piece of art in Alpha. Well, maybe, maybe just for, <laughs> you know, collector eccentricity. You know, you'd, you'd want it. But right, but here's, right. The Streisand effect. But here's the thing that I find <laughs> amusing about this art. This is actually not just completely black. Mm-hmm. There are appeared to be all in the same direction scratches, brush marks, pen marks, mm-hmm. whatever this is. There is clear texture. texture. Yeah, there's clear texture, and it gives. It's almost patterned, as I said. Like the the strokes are in the same direction. Mm-hmm. Um, there are kind of grays and and whites and and shadows and shading and smoke. So it's not as if this is. I, I would love to know what's actually going on here, but this is not just a black void. It's a kind of very lightly textured and dimensional void, mm-hmm. which makes it, I think, even more intriguing on some level. That it's not, you know, <laughs> like if you were making an art where you just wanted a dark background with two eyes peering out, that's easier to do than what's done here. You just make a solid black, but that's not the choice that Jesper yeah. made. Yeah. Look at Howling Mine. There's, there is not texture in the depths of the Howling right. Mine. So I find that to be a very yep, curious and interesting decision. And clearly it's a choice. Yep. Yeah, I would love to know that the reality of how this art came to be. <laughs> maybe it Just was maybe Jesper. there was a deadline. Maybe it was Ask a, him. I mean, yeah, this um this is one of those cards that was added, so maybe they were on a deadline and maybe they just said, let's do something simple and, and purposefully did it that way. Or maybe there is actually a lot of subtlety that is not conveyed well due to the size of the card, and and maybe there's a lot more to it. It's a really good question. I'd love to talk to Jessica. One other about point, it. though, Kevin. So the eyes are actually surprisingly large for a kind of a, a void. Like I understand that the the eyes um, need to be large enough to show up on a magic card, but if you if mm-hmm. you kind of peer at this at this piece of art as a piece of art, and you have these again these like diagonally diagonal direction brush strokes and scratches that are clearly visible the eyes actually make it you know the the texture gives it dimensionality but the eyes are fighting that dimensionality if they were set you know if they were smaller and given perspective pushed further backward into the frame then the texture would mm-hmm. seem to be, i think be more creepy and eerie more along the lines of the howling mind but they're not and and by the way, the reason I think this is clearly not Howling Mind is because these are human eyes, whereas the Howling Mind is clearly not human, non-human. 
Well, I don't think that's as open and shut a case as you make it sound. Fair enough. But <laughs> either way, I- I'm with you that these are not literally the exact same eyes from Howling Mine. Yeah. It's just as a strong correlation. Well, it's, I think that's an interesting analysis and, and deeper than I expected to get on the art for this card exactly. <laughs> and uh, I think you make some good points. There's there's a little bit more to it than what you might see on the surface. Have you ever cast this card, Steve? I'm trying to think if anyone's put it into a cube I played with. I can't remember, <laughs> and I, I feel like it would be memorable, although I, I think some part of me thinks I probably have and was greatly disappointed. Have you? I'm not sure if it was with you at any point, but I used to have this in my Type 4 stack. That's what it was. With the ruling yeah. that the card that you make them cast doesn't count as their spell for yeah. the turn, because otherwise this card would be garbage. Yeah, it, it it has for a long time been in my Type 4 stack, and it wasn't ever really very good, but occasionally you got the big blowout. You know, when your opponent, uh, when a player spelled out in Type 4, um, and then you just word of command them and make them and choose the juiciest thing in their hand, it can produce some outsized effects. So for all you type 4 aficionados that are listening, consider this with the extra added ruling that whatever you make them choose doesn't count as their spell. But It's pretty good. By the way, I can't explain this, but the community... Don't look, but guess what the community rating is on Alpha Word of Command? The card rating. Uh, I would expect it to be high. I think this card's well re- well regarded. Out of 30 votes, this card has a 4.1 out of 5. Hmm. It says basically four and a half stars in the sorry more than four stars that to me is surprising i have to say <laughs> oh this is weird on the master di- master's edition four version of this has 4.5 stars of 67 votes wow dang i wonder if black lotus is that highly rated i mean look <laughs> black lotus is only rated a four three five seven so, word of command <laughs> for Vintage Masters. Word of command is a higher community rating than Black Lotus. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. I wonder why that is exactly. It's all flavor, man. Well, the card's not exactly at the bottom of the barrel when it comes to EDH, for example. I mean, it's not it's not one of the most played cards, but it's also not at the very bottom of the list. Yeah. I'm, I'm looking at Scryfall and sorting by... The EDH rec ranking, and where does word of command come in? It's pretty far down the list, but it's not. It's not at the bottom of the list, though. It's actually more played than. Oh wait a second! Hold on a sec. I was I was not inc- I was including cards that were, yeah. So let me see what does what does uh, word of command outrank in terms of, um, EDH rank, according to submitted deck lists. Well, wait a second. It's not there. Where is it? Oh, there it is. Yeah. So if you if you go to limited edition alpha and search for cards that are legal in EDH, which there are several that are not, you get 273 cards. If you then sort that in Scryfall by EDH rec rank, then um, word of command is about two thirds of the way down the list. That is to say, it is more played than luminaries such as Holy Strength. Living Lands, Gaia's Liege, Mahamodi Jin, which is a little bit sad, Cockatrice, you know, it's more popular in EDH than Sunglasses of Urza and Veteran Bodyguard. <laughs> so, I don't know. It's not the worst card. It's more popular to Disrupting Scepter and Plague Rats. So, you know, I don't think any of these are, are any good in EDH, but uh, but Word of Command is slightly better and more sought out than, uh, let's say, Personal Incarnation. 
All right, let's let's move on to our final two cards. All right, well, the penultimate card in our review here today is just another long-time stalwart of the game and formative to its identity, I think, in many ways, and that is Wrath of God. Two white-white sorcery. All creatures in play are destroyed and cannot regenerate. Well, there's a reason why we call this effect wrathing, yeah. right? And and this is it. This is the 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 forerunner, the ancestor that begot all other wraths across blue and effectively all other colors over the years. And it, in a sense, it is still one of the best. You know, there's not a lot of four mana wraths anymore. This from standards perspective, that effect at four mana has become slightly too good. It tends to be. Um, watered down at four mana now there's usually some kind of caveat or or they make the effect at five or six mana and give you some upside because it turns out that like counterspell at two mana four mana for wrath is just slightly too cheap but we didn't learn that lesson for quite a while we got day of judgment and mutilate and several other variants before r&d really learned that lesson steve i imagine you've cast many a wrath of god in your day actually not as many as you might think Oh yeah, I I have played this precious few times. Probably, I think probably the most I ever played it was the. So I've dabbled in Type Two only a few times. I played Type Two when it was created as a format for obvious reasons, mm-hmm. right? Um, because I enjoyed playing back in the day, um, and you know I still strongly prefer Type One. But as Type One became was weaned out, I you know kind of wound down as a format. When this when the schism occurred, when they created Type One and Type Two out of Magic Constructed, there was a clear intentionality to make to make standard the default you know format for constructed tournaments for tournament play, and I mm-hmm. resisted that as long as I could until <laughs> I finally just got disgusted at the lack of Type One and just quit for a while. Um, but I did I didn't really enjoy Type Two, but I would play it because other people played it, and that's probably the most I played Wraths was in Type Two circa you know nineteen ninety five. 96. Um, beyond that, I think I played Wrath in ty- our Type 4 stacks, played Wrath, probably, I mean, I played Damnation and Toxic Deluge and variations on Wrath, but I don't think I played Wrath that much, aside from from those two times. The other two times I've dabbled in Standard is I played the Fires era, right during Invasion, and then I played the Psychotog during Odyssey, Standard during Odyssey, but I don't think I've ever, those are the th- only three periods in which I played Standard. Yeah. Um, so, Wrath... Yeah, I, I don't have a tremendous amount of experience with Wrath. I you very rarely put it in my control decks. Basically dislike this card. Um, it didn't feel powerful enough. I would just play Moats or the Abyss or Balance or whatever. What about you? Were you a big Wrath of God player? I, in a casual kind of setting, I actually did play this card a lot. When I started to build slightly better decks and to try and... Um, ramp up the synergies i built a couple control decks and wrath of god was a real go-to for those things so yeah i I have actually cast wrath a number of times in in some okay decks that were pre-tournament era for me once i started playing in tournaments of course wrath was just not good enough outside of standard you know my first tournaments experiences were mostly things like extended played a little bit of 1.5 before it became known as legacy and then obviously once i started playing vintage uh, that all kind of went to the wayside that said there is one key era after i started playing tournament magic that i played wrath a lot in and that is five color 
I played Control almost exclusively in five color, and I have still have my set of four yeah. drawn on, carved up, it's funny awesome. Wrath of Gods from my five color era. So that was a staple in that deck, which I did cast it a number of times then. So I guess it could be that through a combination of casual and other various non-tournament formats that I actually cast Wrath as much, if not more than you. What was it like in five color playing with Wrath? Well, you had to have a lot of answers. You had a 250-card deck, and so you had, I mean, I had four Wraths and four Plows and four Lightning Bolts, frequently four, um, uh, the red-white one that gains you life, Lightning lightning Helix, and then things like just, just a, a smattering of other things that were good at removing creatures. Balance was legal in that format as a one-of, and than all manner of tutors and things to, you know, later on things to get those cards back, the regrowths and the snapcaster mages of the world. So I was casting a lot of high quality and and high quantity removal spells in that format. Wrath was kind of the pinnacle. This was, this was pre toxic deluge. So there wasn't really a good aside from balance, which is obviously ridiculous. uh, There wasn't, a really effective three mana wrath that really got all the threats you wanted it to at that point. If I was playing today, if the format was alive today, I would probably be playing toxic deluge. But anyway, so yeah, wrath was kind of it. Um, and I really kind of stopped. I, I didn't play day of judgment cause I didn't need a lot of extra wraths, but you could obviously just play day of judgment for the most part in that format. Wrath just has extra upside because it prevents regeneration, which was rarely, uh, but yeah, oh, that's a good still point. upside. Yeah, yeah. When was the last time Wrath was legal and standard? Well, the printings of Wrath, in terms of you know booster legality, only go up to tenth edition. But that's basically because they handed off then to Day of Judgment, because Day came around in Zendikar and then was used in M eleven and twelve, and also was used in uh, various promos. So really, the last time we had a four mana Wrath in standard would have been I can I can tell you cuz I have the M12 yeah M- M12 was the M- last You I mean M10 Well no I'm talking about a day of judgment because M10 was the last time we had wrath or sorry 10th edition was the last time we had wrath of god but then wrath oh, passed see. the torch to day of judgment yeah So M10 yeah, 10th was edition for wrath Well M10 was last legal sorry M10 was last legal and standard in on September 30th 2010 yeah, so it's been a while. That's what that's what I was referring to earlier. Is that R and D kind of came around to the notion that four that unconditional four mana wraths were just slightly too good for standard and, and M- not the world they wanted to be in. M twelve was last legal in standard on October fourth, two thousand twelve. Yeah, um, I think that's the last time we had a, a true unconditional four mana wrath. Although I, now I think about it, it there might have been some mutilate might have been legal for some time since then. I, I don't remember. I have to double check. Got it. Well, Steve, the art for Wrath of God is somewhat famous, right? This amazing Quentin Hoover expression of this massive battlefield of corpses um, and, and you know, an expression, a visage of what you would assume was God, right? Expressing their will over this field of corpses and quite famously the, the thonged buttocks right <laughs> in the foreground, which is, I know, a fan favorite. What, what do you feel about the aesthetics of this card? I have to say, I think this is kind of the forerunner to the kind of magic art I dislike. It has a lot of elements that I dislike. So number one is it's incredibly crowded, <laughs> just in terms of the rendering. Overly Definitely. crowded. 
Definitely. Um, not only does it have, like, I don't know, an uncountable number of figures in the art, <laughs> you know, probably at least like 20, but even like the atmosphere and the smoke and the, you know, the image of the god or god, just, it all feels very crowded. Even if you were to take out, you know, half the figures, it would still feel too crowded. The second is, it's incredibly comic booky. You know, it's, mm-hmm. the rendering is like comic book art. The third is that it just doesn't even, it doesn't even feel artistically interesting in any way. Like the, like, okay, so you've got like the foreground, you have basically like a goblin or ogre or troll or something. Basically like a goblin laying backwards, facing you, head upside down, right? And then you have a human laying on top of it and they don't seem to be in, you know, in the, they don't really seem to be in the same field as the rest of the the rest of the figures. They just seem like overlaid in a very odd and awkward and unrealistic pose. Mm. So it just reminds me of like bad early 90s comic book art. The perspectives are bad. They don't there's nothing naturalistic about this. There's nothing artistically interesting about this. Well, I take that back. The one thing that's artistically interesting is the rendering of the of the god figure. It was kind of like a plasma <laughs> beam, you know, like weird, I don't know. Yeah. There, but even that, you can't tell whether it's like in the foreground of the image or in the far background of the image or in the sky. It's just really hard to tell what's going on in this piece of art. <laughs> I've always given it a little more credit for being a little more distant in the background, but I I always kind of enjoyed the fact that the the visage of what is ostensibly God here is um, both not a a corny white bearded man and also how as you said it kind of is an embodiment like a manifestation of energy which i find kind of satisfying that it's just kind of the the glare (laughs) you've just died from the presence and the glare of this being which is a little bit satisfying to me from a storytelling standpoint I've always found this art to be a little bit of just kind of an exercise in what you've just derided too much detail. Like this art's existence appears to be to celebrate all of the, the line art, you know, to be had in, in the lower 70% of the, the art. And it doesn't really do much for me. But at the same time, kind of like Winter Orb, even though I don't necessarily enjoy the art from an aesthetic standpoint, I also encode this art as kind of a wash of lines and shapes that represents the effect wrath of god to me so it's super hard for me to tease out my opinions about the art from the whole aesthetic of the card it works much less good in white border incidentally where the white border with the white frame of the white card washes with the mostly negative space of the visage it uh, it just doesn't work as well, in my opinion. I think the card works much better in Black Border, where the white portion of the card frame is also darker, and then the face stares, stands out as more blue, a little more cerulean or sky blue. It draws your attention much more to it. The other thing I just want to point out, not in terms of art, is that this is the completion of the destroy-everything cycle. Armageddon, Wrath, <laughs> right. is, is pairing. Much like yeah. Hurricane and Earthquake are kind of a pairing. But right. This is the logical conclusion of having that sort of thing. 
Yeah, and Wrath obviously forms a bit of a cycle, so to speak, in that regard with the later, much later printing of Damnation. Yes. The color shifted Wrath. Plain shift. And so, yeah, so much so that they also printed Magic Player Rewards cards, textless versions. In 2007, we got Wrath of God, which in that version just kind of shows a giant smoking crater. And then a year later, we got Damnation, which is much less a smoking crater, but much more like a fetid crater. <laughs> um, in, in in both cases, you know, it's a little more Phyrexian kind of evoking a little more Dante's, but, um, but in either case, we got this nice pairing of damnation versus wrath. That pairing is kind of an homage to the pairing that happened with the subsequent printing of wrath of God in seventh edition, which is much more simplistic, giant bright ball of light, um, and, yeah. and then in the in dominating the image and in the foreground, some figures and other things are being disintegrated. That is the art, the seventh edition art, which was primarily evoked in the original Damnation then, which is kind of just like a photo negative of that one with the black orb causing that kind of disintegration in the foreground. So basically, Wrath has kind of... <laughs> I don't know what the word is. There's a circular self-referential history with itself and its reprintings and its color shiftings that has become a little bit satisfying to me over time. If you look at the comparison of Wrath and Damnation, there are obviously far fewer printings of Damnation, which is part of the reason why it's cost a bunch of money. Kevin, I just have one question for you about this before we move on. Do you mm-hmm. think, from a design perspective, this should prevent creatures from regenerating? Yes, I believe that it should. I think that regeneration is the sort of thing that's meant to evoke what happens when you're in combat. You know, when you're tussling with another creature, you get bitten or stabbed or something like that. I think that the the top-down design of Wrath of God is meant to really be able to destroy all creatures. Fair enough. That was our penultimate card that leads to the final. That's right. And it's, you know, it's a good penultimate card. Unfortunately, the, the final card of the set is a little bit of a, a dud. <laughs> that is Zombie Master. <laughs> now, we've talked about all the various pitfalls of the um, tribal lords in limited edition. Zombie Master is 1BB for Summon Lord, which is a, a noteworthy creature type line, right? All zombies in play gain Swamp Walk and Black Colon regenerates for as long as this card remains in play. And Zombie Master is a 2-3. That ability is not as good as giving them additional power and toughness, right? As we've previously discussed. But at the same time, it is imparting two additional abilities on all the zombies in play. And we've also, for purposes of context, recently, well, I guess it's been a couple hours now, discussed the fact that Scavenging Ghoul is has been retconned as a zombie, but at the time of limited editions printing was not a zombie. So literally speaking, at the time of you know, limited edition coming out, the only card that the zombie master actually benefited was Skate Zombies. Add into that the fact that Skate Zombies is an otherwise very boring creature, like vanilla, you know, overcosted on curve at three mana two two. Zombie Master then just kind of fails the test completely as compared to the Goblin King and the uh, Lord of Atlantis. Lord of Atlantis obviously is comically only has one even smaller creature, but um, Merfolk of the Pearl Trident costing one mana getting buffed by the the Lord of Atlantis is arguably more potent in practice than the Zombie Master giving Skade Zombies some regeneration for all the reasons we've already previously discussed. 
Steve, what would you like to add on Zombie Master? Just that I actually, I think it might be my favorite art of the Lords. Interesting. Why is that? I'm not sure. Well, I'll put it this way. The Lord of the Lannis is pretty, but it's overly sharply rendered. You know, it's it's a classic Benson piece. Um, okay. The Goblin King is great art, but it's, I don't know, it lacks any subtlety. You know, it's just, <laughs> <laughs> it's just kind of in your face, you know? Um, okay. This is, this is kind of a weird thing. Like, you don't know exactly what this is. What is this? Is this a zombie itself? Well, clearly it's not. It's someone who's controlling the zombies. The positioning is awkward. I love the horizon and the sunset. You know, kind of the, 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 the or, faint orange in the right background. I like this, this character's garb. It appears to be like dragging a cape behind them. The arm must be up. They've got, you know, a knife on a holster. I don't know. I just like this art. It's I like Jeff Mengus art. I really like this piece. Mm-hmm. We just don't know much about this thing. It's clearly, it doesn't. We don't know whether this is a zombie itself, but it's clearly not a a kind of natural human being either, right? It's just warped or twisted in some sort of way. I don't know. It's too bad this card isn't better, but I really like this piece of art. It just feels it just feels very interesting to me and kind of fantasy fantasy laden and autumnal at the same time. Yeah. Well, it's worth reminding our audience for I guess the third time that these lords in Gamma were all a cycle of enchantments for two designated mana, R R U U B B, and they had this uniformity to them where they didn't they were there weren't creatures for one, they weren't lords, but they all took their associated creature type from your opponent zombie master for bb is an enchantment that says take a zombie from opponent for bb return it after game (laughs) when taken the zombies are tapped all zombies have regeneration for b likewise the goblin lord did the same thing but goblins got plus one plus one and the lord of um atlantis did it for it just gave the merfolk island walk so it's really strange we talked about this obviously with the prior lords but the the implementation from a top-down perspective of what it meant to be a lord in Gamma was all about controlling creatures and taking them from your opponent. But as we discussed, especially with the merfolk, that's a really super niche and narrow ability. You know, in the Gamma context, your Goblin King luckily had two tar- targets in the set, but the merfolk and zombie lords only had one each. Yeah, And without the buffing part of the merfolk, the Lord of Atlantis, I mean, that was just like pay four mana to steal a merfolk of the Pearl Trident. Give me a break. So anyway, the, the cards were dramatically changed and I think it's undeniable that they were improved, but it's also undeniable that the more magic we get after your 20 plus thousand cards into the game, the original gamma Lords would actually be more attractive now by today's standards. Like the, be more value in being able to take an opposing creature of the appropriate type, even though it's still a narrow ability. So anyway, Zombie Master was a two-mana enchantment that stole zombies in Gamma. This version, I think, is a far superior card. It's also worth noting, and this is something that caused me to play the card, actually, a little bit when I was a kid, you know, in Revised. It's a 2-3 for three, which is just one of those points at which it helps you match up against your opponent's creatures on curve. You know, this wins in a fight against a gray ogre, ironically a zombie, a pearl unicorn, all the bears, 
And so it was just slightly good enough that I actually put it in a couple of decks, even though I legit only had Scathe Zombies <laughs> and only a couple of them at that. But since this was rare, I think I only ever opened one of these in all my revised pack opening. I certainly wasn't trading for them. <laughs> yeah, they just don't buff each other. That's the fatal flaw that makes it the yep. worst lord. Good I do old also zombie like master. In your affinity for the art, I I love the implication of the night sky or the the dusk sky. Yeah. Right. There's just a subtle hint of sunset in the back. I, I think that's really effective. I, I like that too. It's really nice. Yeah. Well, we did it. Limited edition. We did it, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's in the can. <laughs> and for those of you listening to our voices right now, congratulations. You really have accomplished a feat. One that's comparable to the feat that we've just accomplished recording this all. I, I have to say, though, is a kind of... I don't want to sum... I don't want to present a summation of limited edition, but I do want to say this. That as a result of this exercise, my appreciation for both magic but and magic design, but also for the origins of the game, the evolution of the game, and the set itself have been deeply enriched. So yeah, thank you, Kevin, for doing this with me for our 100th <laughs> episode because I have a much... I feel like... I feel like I've peered behind the camera, you know, in a sense, and like seen behind, you know, the bare bones of of what's actually going on in this incredible set. And I think that it's going to be, an, it'll be inter- interesting to see, Kevin, how our analysis of this set will inform our appreciation of magic going forward. Yeah. Well, I feel very similarly to you. I'm it's really satisfying doing this and identifying some themes in the set that I didn't appreciate before. This just strong preponderance of auras, for example, yeah. which I've always kind of knew intuitively, but never really quantified and appreciated literally. It, that was very interesting. As well as the just the repeated comedy of the language <laughs> that's printed on the cards. And the realization that so much of that comedy persisted for several printings in many cases. Yeah, that's, that is one of the most shocking things about this. Is that, yeah. so I had a conversation with someone recently who asked, so this, you know, we, we covered a lot of this ground and we talked about Time Vault. But I had the conversation mm-hmm. with someone around this, this, the specific issue of can you discern design intent from reading the text of a card? And I said, I, I pointed out the numerous ways in which early, really rules, rules managers got it wrong. And this person asked me a simple oh, yeah. question. Did they get it wrong more often than not? And you know what the, the amazing answer is? If you look at, for example, the very first card clarification from Dave Howell, the answer is actually yes. They got it wrong more often than not. <laughs> Even yeah. in 1993. When they could have just asked Richard Garfield <laughs> that it's such a hazard to try and I think the whole project of trying to discern design intent from the text of a card is a fool's errand. And um and I think, you know, if if you really study the early card, you know, the rules, decisions that people made, I mean, you would think that by the time they got to fourth edition, they would be getting it right. But the answer is actually no. And in fact, they were getting it wrong with a frequency that's just baffling. Not only were they getting interpretations and templating wrong, they're getting the rules were becoming more convoluted and, and, and worse. 
and it's like it's it's just it's remarkable yeah. the 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 learning curve on magic yeah you said it early and in prior episodes for a number of contexts but it's uh easy to encapsulate the advancement of magic rules as being constantly forward yeah <laughs> and that is patently wrong yes the, the, or the first decade of magic was an exercise in getting things wrong as much if not more often than getting them right yeah every step, major structural ways yeah there'd be a step forward but then there'd be a step backward i mean revised was in yeah. many ways an improvement but then fourth edition was re- retrogression. They would solve some yeah. things and then they would ruin others. It's just, it, <laughs> it wasn't a linear progression. The Absolutely not. Yeah. And then you yeah. get to fifth and you have mana sources and, oh, what a mess. <laughs> what a mess. Yeah, that whole creature type will-o'-the-wisp thing that I cited is a pretty uh, yeah. sedate and, and low-impact example of that larger issue. Yeah, and and I think that we saw the trajectory of printings, right? You know, revised third, fourth, I mean, revised fourth, fifth. And when you see how these things are inserted, cards that were clearly just garbage made it all the way to fourth edition. Just baffling to me. Because by that time, you have two years of experience. How is that even acceptable? But what were the decisions they made? I mean, you could understand because they're making decisions about revised, you know, when antiquities had you know, hadn't even been printed, been released yet, right? Yeah. <laughs> but for yeah. fourth edition and Chronicles, and uh, that's it's just it's inexplicable. <laughs> well, and I love the different categories of cards that we get to group things together in as we re- review this set, but have historically encapsulated it. Right? There's lots of different categories. There's the power, the power, the yeah. cards that are not necessarily complicated some of them are very simple and elegant like the box and black lotus but just their overwhelming power and impact on our favorite formats then there's the mystifiers right those (laughs) cards that are just hopelessly complicated and had to be excised from the game because players couldn't get them and the r&d couldn't get the rules right around them you know the raging rivers of the world yeah then there's the (laughs) an illusionary mask is the poster child yeah there you go perfect and then there's just the, the kind of the grunts, the cards that have just been consistently good quality cards in multiple formats, not necessarily overpowered, but just staples. Your your birds of paradise, your wrath of gods, icy manipulator, yeah, your juggernauts, like cards that it's, have just were pretty much designed correctly the first time and and t- stand the test of time. I think we said this, but juggernaut is represented as being in the very first Magic tournament ever. Which is the ninety yeah. the, the Gen Con tournament that has a brief write up of the finals, and then for Juggernaut to continue to see play um, in vintage as late as you know the t- this past decade, you know, and then right show I mean that that's remarkable to me, you know that it's pretty satisfying, really is. Also, you know the, the, the we got to see just the the role that some of these key uncommons played, you know, looking be beneath the set. You know that these struct, this kind of like the four corners of the set, the fa- some foundation of the set are basically like these Juggernaut, Senjir, Sarah, you know, uh, and the role some of these key staple, other staple cards play is was I think also really satisfying to see to talk about that and think about that. Yeah, yeah, and set balance is a difficult thing. They, uh, Richard and his friends made a number of mistakes from a lot of different types of mistakes right. in, in the early days, right? But as a collective unit, 
I believe the limited edition is a is greater than the sum of its parts. Incredibly so. It's yeah. um it introduces a lot of concepts, sometimes subtly, sometimes only yeah. on one card. Word In fact, of many times on only one card. Yeah. yeah. It tackles a lot of complicated things it tries to, like word of command, for example. And yet it is rife with simple things. Simple like synergies. The walls. Yeah. The walls are a, a good assessment of just simplicity. And they're not always great, but that's not the point. The point is there's a lot yeah. of Winter Orb, effective... Icy Manipulator, Wild Growth, Verdurin Enchantress. I mean, just so many yes. nice little synergies built in. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Howling Mine and Island Sanctuary was one that I like. Yeah. Yeah. Phenomenal. Yeah, it this has been a lot of fun. I'm I'm really grateful. I love these set reviews, but I I really feel like this is the apex for you and me. <laughs> we won't I mean, try something th- like this, this again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we we down the yeah. road we we will entertain invitations to do smaller sets. We will not tackle something this big. <laughs> That's true. Maybe for our 200th, well, but probably not. <laughs> boy, we're going to have to really outdo ourselves for that. <laughs> <laughs> We've got years to go before we hit that one. Oh, well, Steve, this brings us to the end, really, of our multi-part episode 100 extravaganza. And it turned out to be bigger in terms of time than you and I had expected, but but ultimately very satisfying. And I'm glad for all the topics that we undertook as part of this. And I'm glad for those of you in the audience who've really stuck with us, not just through this multi-part affair, but... We have received many, surprisingly many people who oh, have God. written to us over the years and said, I just finished listening to all episodes of, of our show. And I thought, <laughs> really? Not only, I mean, you were inspired to do that and thank you, but wow, even I don't want to do that. <laughs> well, so I'm just, I'm saying that I'm grateful to those of you who are so enjoying our content and committed enough to both do that and share with us. Very much. And I think, you know, we've, we've had different, lots of different types of shows. You know, we have kind of pare- oh, yeah. we have shows that are very much in the moment, like the set reviews. Mm, we have meta oh, gamer, yeah. you know, end of the year episodes, and then we have sets that are more perennial, like our scenarios episodes. Yeah. Um, and I think that what we're trying to do is make content that is, even if it's in the moment, it's historically interesting. You know, and so we we haven't always done that, but I'd like to think that you know, for our first 100 episodes, all but a few are uninteresting from a historical perspective. There are probably a few where we got too much in the weeds into contemporary debates that <laughs> we probably shouldn't have gotten so far into. Um, you know, where we got into very heated and very narrow niche debates about banned and restricted list decisions or whatever. Sure. But sure. for the most part, I'm very proud of the, you know, the content we've created. Even our first episode, you know, is last. I think you listen to it and get quite a bit out of it in this moment. So, yeah. Anything else before we adjourn this massive affair here, Steve? (laughs) We did it. (laughs) We did it. So with that, thank you to listening to all of episode 100 of So Many Insane Plays. As always, and until the next 100 episodes, (laughs) we wish you many insane plays. Ha, 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 ha.